Chapter 16 Looking Away Jenny had a razor-sharp edge on four of the silver coins. The key was a bigger issue. It made more noise when she scraped it, and the metal was much harder. She also couldn't grind it just anywhere, as she did with the coins. Those she scraped across the floor and then covered the marks with straw. The key she had to file down carefully. Jenny needed to grind away all the teeth except the top one. That meant she could only use rocks that protruded, providing an adequate edge. The rocks comprising the floor were flush and smooth. She was instead forced to scrape it against one of the three stones that jutted far enough out from the wall. Luckily, all three were hard and abrasive. And with nothing else to do, Jenny managed to reduce her trunk key into little more than a cylindrical barrel with a single tooth at the end, like a tiny, mouse-sized hoe. After nearly two weeks, the key was close to done. And so were Jenny's fingers. They throbbed, and her knuckles were a series of abrasions, two of which had scabs. Taking a break, she hid the key in the wall crevice. Then she lay down on the straw and sucked on her fingertips, staring at the ceiling. The underside was plaster. Parts of it had been painted. Most had faded. Other sections had chipped and fallen. An old bird's nest was in one corner. She wondered how a bird had gotten in, then realized the door must be new. Why am I still here? Why hasn't Leo agreed to the demands? Even if her life wasn't in jeopardy, what Mercator was asking made sense. If the situation were reversed, she would have traded the duchy for Leo. So why hasn't he? Jenny knew why. The answer to that question was too obvious, sort of like standing in a lush field and wondering about the color of grass. All she needed to do was look down. But Jenny didn't want to. All her life, she had looked, forced herself to see what others refused to accept. How much easier it would have been to welcome her role as a dutiful daughter, to blind herself to the facts and pretend everything was fine. After her mother's death, her father gave up. Because he was a whiskey distiller, everyone expected Gabriel Winter to resign from life by becoming a drunk. Everyone thought he'd crawl into one of his casks. But that just showed how little they knew him. Her father didn't drink, never had. Even when he taste-tested, he spat. But there was more than one way to withdraw, and a man didn't need to be a drunk to become mean. People made excuses for him. Some even lied. And there were those who came right out and said that her life would be easier if she looked away. Get married, they told her. Find a man and make a new home. But Jenny knew that wasn't in her future. Not back then. Even as a young girl, she knew spinsterhood was all but certain. Instead, Jenny ignored all the advice. She looked, she saw, and she accepted the way things were. And then she decided to change them. 
With the general abdication of her father, Jenny took the reins of the business and rebuilt it. In less than a decade, Winter's whiskey went from a cheap black market product to a posh commodity. A few hidden stills that ran on stolen grain became the largest warehouse and distillery in the world, buying thousands of pounds of rye, oats, and barley. Jenny even went so far as to purchase rights to farms from Count Simon, an unprecedented act since only royals controlled land. That could only happen in Colnora, which had always had its own rules. As long as the money flowed, the crown looked away. Jenny made a habit of ignoring traditions, of pushing the boundaries that others observed, but she saw as too limiting. With a loud mouth, a refusal to accept restrictions, an irritating habit of being right, and absolutely no concern as to what others thought of her, she ran naked and laughed at the fools who raced her in long robes. Success proved she was right. And that was all she needed. This was the one lie she told herself. The only reality she chose not to look away from. Jenny convinced herself that saving her father would be enough. That and beating all those arrogant merchants who called her names. Hatred was another form of admiration, she concluded, and wealth was the measure of worth. The deception was hardly a choice. Love wasn't a commodity she could buy. Her blind eye was a simple matter of finding contentment within the bounds of the possible. Then one day, a man, a duke, a short, portly, balding eastern noble smiled at her. And just like that, what was possible changed. The situation was made unbearable because she genuinely liked him. Leah wasn't handsome or dashing. He was awkward and often silly. But when she was in the room, his eyes never left her. Many suggested he only pretended to care to get at her money. Her own father had told her that. He smashed a window with his bare hand, lacerating his fingers in the process to ensure she heard him. She did. Jenny heard all of them. But for once, for the first time in her life, she chose to look away. To believe in a dream. She rationalized that her money which was considerable, wasn't enough to make a dent in the coffers of a kingdom. The Duke of Rochelle made more in taxes on any given month than Winter's whiskey did in a year. He's not marrying me for my money, she assured herself. And in a way, that was true, which was why it was so easy to believe. In doing so, she understood what she never had before, why people decided to lie to themselves. Jenny wanted to be loved, to be wanted, desired, cherished. Not because of what she was capable of, but because of who she was, what she was. This was something she'd never dared dream of before. And Leo Hargrave was holding it out to her, begging Jenny to take it. She so desperately wanted the fairy tale to be true that she fell into the habit of looking away. But he didn't come to her on their wedding night, or the night after, nor any night since. 
they slept in separate bedrooms. Leo didn't talk much. People said he was naturally quiet. She accepted this. Then, when the whispers started, and even the servants began calling her the whiskey wench, Leo did nothing. He still smiled at her, gave Jenny whatever she liked, complimented her. But the hugs were few, the kisses fewer. He loves me, but not everyone shows affection in the same way, she told herself. She needed to believe he felt the same way she did, because if he didn't, it would break her heart into so many pieces there would be no putting it back together. Why am I still here? Why hasn't Leo found me? Has he even looked? Tears welled up. She felt them coming hot and painful, along with the truth. Jenny wasn't stupid. That was part of her problem. She had figured it out some time ago. Leo hadn't married her for the money. That was where everyone had it wrong. He had married her because he needed a wife. He needed one fast, and it didn't matter who. It's not true, part of her still protested. But that internal voice was losing volume, smothered by facts that could no longer be overlooked. She was fighting a losing battle. Jenny cried as quietly as she could. She didn't want Marketa to hear. It didn't work. Are you hungry? Marketa asked. Is this a trick question? Jenny said, wiping her eyes and sniffling. I have bread. Would you like some? I'd sleep with Villar for some bread. The bread isn't that good, Marketa chuckled. Jenny laughed with her. Since that first real conversation about eating gold, the mood in her prison had changed. Mercator wasn't ready to fling open the cell door and set her free, but it was obvious she felt the abduction had been a mistake. The moment they shared was soft, gentle, comforting, fun. Strange how the flip side of tears was laughter. They could have been a pair of visiting friends up past bedtime, hiding from parents. Snickering as they shared secrets about boys, about clothes, about all the things friends were supposed to talk about. Only Mercato wasn't her friend. She had no reason to cheer her up. I'm sorry for disrespecting your husband, Jenny said. Who? Mercato asked. Isn't Vilar your- Oh, blessed Feral, no! How could you possibly think that he and I- She faltered. Pilar is merely the leader of his clan, the Orphi. I'm the head of the Sicara. Ours are the two oldest and most respected mere families. We have no romantic relationship, and, to be honest, I think he finds me repugnant. Well, he has no reason to feel that way. You are very kind. I was involved in kidnapping you, remember? How is that kind? You offered me bread. And I know you don't have much. You didn't have to do that. Makata didn't say anything. There was no sound on the other side of the door. Oh, I see. Is that bread meant to be my last meal? No, Makata replied hotly. It's just bread. Nothing was said for a moment, and the silence felt suffocating. There's 
still time, Makeda offered. And when the time runs out? Makeda sighed. Honestly, I don't know. I suspect Villar does. Jenny clenched her jaw. She felt lying to herself now was pointless, and yet there wasn't much point in not lying either. The result was going to be the same, and it didn't matter one bit either way. Listen, do you want the bread or not? No, Jenny said. Why waste it? Silence followed, and lingered. No sounds came from the other side of the door for a long time. Then Jenny heard Mercator sigh again. What's wrong? Jenny asked. Now I don't want it either. Don't be that way. You spent good money. You should eat it. Another pause. Mercator shifted in the other room. Jenny wasn't near the door, couldn't see her, but it sounded like she sat down, and none too gently. I don't like doing this, you know. The Mia said, her tone miserable. You seem like a nice person. It's just like Villar to grab the only decent noble. It's just, I have to. We have to. Something has to be done. And nabbing you was certainly better than the alternative. Which is? Death. Many would die. There was a loud noise on the other side of the door something clattering on the floor. If only our husband would concede to the demands, this whole mess would be over. It's not like we asked for riches. We just desire the same rights everyone else already has. And you were already trying to do just that. So, you believe me? I do now. I asked around. You really did attend a meeting of the Merchants Guild. And you suggested the Calaeans and Dwarves be allowed membership. You're being nice. I doubt anyone who was there described it like that. You're right. They said the whiskey wench had lost her mind, that the bitch was blackmailing them and would ruin the city as a result. At least I made an impression. You did, Mercator said. So why hasn't the Duke agreed? Why hasn't he demanded the guilds alter their charters? Doesn't he care about his people? Doesn't he care about you? Jenny didn't answer. She couldn't. She honestly didn't know. And not knowing hurt so badly, the tears came again. She cupped her face, trying to muffle any sounds, pushing them inward so that her body jerked with the agony. I'm sorry. Mercator said. That was an insensitive thing to say. A key turned in the lock, and the door to the cell opened. Normally, Mercator set her meals carefully, never coming close. This time, she took a step into the room and handed her a bit of bread. Eat it. Don't eat it. I don't care. She left, slamming the door and locking it behind her. Thank you, Jenny said. Don't say that. I mean it. So do I. Jenny bit into the bread. This was the first real food she'd had in days. Thank you just the same, 
Jenny muttered softly. I can still hear you. Sorry, Makata groaned. Makata looked up. The cloth drape that hung over the arched entrance in lieu of a door drew back. Villar had come to bother her again. He was soaked and paused just inside to shake the water out of his hair. Slipping off his cloak, he snapped it twice to shake the wet off. Is she still alive? he asked, looking at the closed door to the little chamber. This had become something of a ritual, being the first thing he said each time he entered. Every church needs its rituals, Makata thought. Yes, the Duchess responded. I'm still alive. And how goes your search for proof that you aren't the accidental love child of a whorish weirbat and a horse's ass? This made Makata chuckle. She put a blue hand to her face, trying to hide it. Just as Villar always asked the same question, the captive always replied with a new retort. Some of her responses quite creative. The woman had a surprisingly inventive mind. Villar glared at Mercata. Then his sight shifted to the fresh dye on her arms, and his expression of disgust deepened. Mercata hated herself for it, but she pulled her sleeves down just the same. Is it raining again? No, Villar said, throwing his soaked cloak on the only stool in the room. Mercata looked at him, puzzled but he refused to explain. The feast is in two days, and the Duke hasn't taken any action or uttered a public word concerning the demands. He's not going to concede. Humans don't care about anything except keeping others down so their position at the top is maintained. Mercata toggled a finger between them. We're both at least half human. Our lesser half, certainly. And you're- He stopped himself and stared at her. An awkward moment lingered. Makata did nothing to help. She didn't say a word and stared right back, daring him to say more. Villar was less a book to be read and more a clear window one hoped the owner would drape out of common decency. He turned aside. The point is- Compromise doesn't work. You can't say I haven't tried to be reasonable. I've given them a chance to avoid blood. But time has run out. And now, we have to do things my way. You can't. We have to. You're suggesting suicide. And not just for those of us in Rochelle, but for all of Alban, all of Avron, maybe. Even if we succeed. The backlash will be a generational tidal wave of hate and persecution. Are we not persecuted now? We're already drowning. What difference is a wave to those trapped at the bottom of the sea? She pointed at the Duchess's door. She agrees that things need to change. Maybe if we let her go, she could talk to- She is lying, saying what she knows you want to hear. Villar threw up his hands. You're so stupid. Do you hear yourself? Let her go. 
We kidnapped her, held her for weeks in a filthy cell. Do you honestly think that once she is safely back within the estate's walls, she'll lift a pinky finger to help us? And don't forget, a man has died. Do you think they grant pardons for murdering the ducal cofferer? You should never have killed him. She will point us out and cry for revenge. She's not like that. Maybe it isn't stupidity. Maybe you're so indoctrinated into accepting their views that you've forgotten who you are. Ours was once a proud and respected people. And we can be that again. I've called for a meeting tomorrow. And I expect you to attend and support my plan. You're the head of the Sicara family. Your great-great-grandfather was Mir Sikar, and mine, Mir Plymerath. It's time that those who currently rule accept the truth about this region's past and give us the respect we deserve. Things will change, but not all at once, Maketa said. You can't obtain respect at the point of a sword, not from people who despise us. Respect needs to be earned. Trust needs to be built up over time, over generations. Although she argued against him, Maketa understood his hatred all too well, and, even more, the damaging effects of ridicule. In many ways, she wanted to join in his outrage. They only disagreed over methods. Her outrage of principle was as acute as his, but after more than a hundred and twenty years, she had learned that wisdom was superior to passion, and that the easy and the fast never changed much. In fact, it often made matters worse. At a mere sixty years old, Vilar hadn't learned that lesson yet. Knowing Vilar, she wondered if he ever would. At this meeting you've called, will Griswold, Dinge, and Erasmus Nim support your plan? If they don't, will you reconsider? No need. Their people have suffered nearly as badly as ours. He stole a look at the locked door and frowned. We can only achieve our goals by force. Change, real change, happens no other way. And you're wrong. The only means of gaining respect is at the point of a sword, because power is the only thing people respect. So, you respect the Duke, do you? Because he has plenty of swords. And the King, whoever he turns out to be, will have even more at his disposal. If you shed blood, you'll be starting a war we can't possibly hope to win. No, not a war. That presupposes a conflict between reasonably able forces. This will be a slaughter. She fixed him with a steely gaze. Do you know what a scapegoat is? I know the term. But do you know what it really means? Its origin. Ages ago, before the time of Novron, people lived in small villages. They were superstitious and easily frightened. Once a year, they would take a goat and cast all their faults and offenses on it. 
Then they drove it out of the village to die in the wilderness. They did this in the hope that the gods would punish the goat instead of them. As it turns out, people haven't changed much. Makato walked over and grabbed a blue cloth off the line and held it up in a fist. They're still just as superstitious and ignorant as ever. The nobility of Albon will use us as their scapegoat. They'll point at us and say, there is the cause of our hardships. Punish them. Only they won't wait for the gods to deal out the retribution. They'll take it by their own hands. Would that be any different than how things are now? Our people are starving. I doubt Emil will live to see another week's worth of dawns. Histivar, you pass him every day. He lives under a bridge. Under a lousy bridge. How can you stand there and suggest things can get worse? Because they can. Right now we are alive, and alive is better than dead. No, it's not. Not like this. You'll only get us killed. And not just here. You do this, and the repercussions will ring out all over the world. Our people everywhere will suffer. I don't care. Better to die than live and suffer in poverty and humiliation. Better still to take some of them along. Villar snatched up his cloak, threw it back over his shoulders, and started toward the exit. And one more thing. He paused, turning back. You need to prepare yourself. When this happens, you have to do your part, too. My part? He nodded and pointed at the door that trapped the Duchess. Mercator shook her head and mouthed the word, No! The revolution will start here. He spun and walked back out. Mercator stood staring at the drape, but not seeing it. She felt cold, mostly because her dress was soaked from working with the dye. Mostly, but not completely. Are you going to kill me? The Duchess asked, her voice uncharacteristically soft, hesitant. Mercator looked at the blue-black of her stained hands. Even to her, they looked like the hands of a monster. She didn't answer. Chapter 17 The Gathering Breakfast the next morning was a surprisingly civil affair. Royce and Hadrian were on time, and Evelyn showed her approval with a slight nod before taking her seat. The meal was every bit as sumptuous as the morning before, but this time with waffles pressed into the shape of elephants. Evelyn didn't bother asking either of them to do the benediction, but Hadrian and Royce waited patiently for her to do so, and showed respect by bowing their heads. These waffles are excellent, Hadrian said, mostly to break the silence, but also because it was true. Evelyn was an incredible cook, and he was wondering if she did indeed employ an army of fairy helpers. Thank you, she replied. Then, as if in acknowledgement of their fine behavior, she scrutinized Royce, 
who not only had risen early to wash and shave, but had also elected to leave his cloak in their room. That's much better breakfast attire. I approve. Thank you, Royce replied with equal propriety. Then Evelyn narrowed her eyes at Hadrian. Is that a new scarf? Hadrian sat up and smiled. Yes, do you like it? It's blue. Popular color in Rochelle, I've discovered. Only among idiots. This brought a surprised smile to Royce's face, but shocked Hadrian. Your front door is blue, Hadrian pointed out. I didn't paint it, the old woman said. That was my late husband's doing. He had some fool notion it would protect us from a monster. Hadrian looked down at his scarf, disappointed. He had expected the old woman to appreciate his adoption of the local style. Why he cared remained something of a mystery. But perhaps his desire to please her stemmed from the loss of his mother. Hadrian couldn't remember much about her. She had died when he was still young. But he imagined Evelyn was what mothers were like, or supposed to be. Stern, correcting, fault-finding, and great cooks. Her disapproval, as ridiculous as it was, bothered him more than all of Royce's scoffing. Her mention of the monster, however, opened a door too tantalizing to let close without a peek. Hadrian gave up trying to win approval for his choice in fashion and asked, You don't believe in the Morgan? Evelyn's brows rose as she delicately tore a pastry in half. Yesterday, you didn't know basic history, but today you're steeped in local arcane folklore, are you? We're trying to educate ourselves, Royce offered. Evelyn wiped a crumb from the corner of her mouth, then sniffed. Well, you won't do it by listening to gossip and ghost stories, gentlemen. The Morgan is nothing more than a silly old legend. Honestly, I would think two grown men would know better. But of course you aren't the only ones. Tomorrow, you'll see. If you go to the Feast of Nobles, the whole lot will be attired in a bewildering spectrum of sapphire, cobalt, ultramarine, navy, turquoise, cyan, cerulean, and azure. All in an attempt to ward off a monster straight out of a children's tale. She focused on the scarf. I think a man who carries three swords ought not fear a ghost. What exactly is this ghost story? Royce asked. You won't like it. There's more of that icky history stuff you're not fond of. Make it short, and I'll try and stay awake. She tilted her head down and peered up at him. You washed this morning, so I let that go. Evelyn paused to refill her teacup, set the ceramic pot down with a petite tink, and then picked up her cup with both hands. She sat back, watching the steam rise. Yesterday, if you recall, I mentioned a fellow by the name of Glen Morgan. He was the brute who, back in the year 2450, conquered all the other petty little mongrel lords and called himself the New Emperor, a title the church later changed to Stuart. He's also the one who set up his capital in Irvanon and forced the Church of Nephron to do the same. 
Well, he had a civilized son, but the boy didn't live very long. His grandson, Glenmorgan III, was different. While still young, the child demonstrated he was just as barbaric as his grandfather, and he ran off to fight the goblins in Gallianan. To his credit, he won that battle, which was thereafter known as the Battle of Villon Hills. At least it was until recently, when another battle was fought. And now that original engagement goes by the less significant title of The First Battle of Villon Hills. I was in the second, Hadrian mentioned. Evelyn lifted her chin and peered at him over her cup. Under whose banner? Lord Belstrad. You fought under the banner of Chadwick, Warwick's first regiment in the coalition force commanded by Lannis Ethelred? That was the conflict that turned back the Baran Gazelle's second serious invasion of Averin, the one where Sir Brecton, Belstrad's eldest son, had the rightful glory stolen from him by Rufus of Langsteer. The Northmen's ill-advised and downright ludicrous charge into the ravine won him the title of Hero of the Battle, despite costing the lives of nearly all his men. Would have killed him, too, if the Baron Gazelle hadn't been just as dumbfounded by the stupidity as everyone else. Hadrian blinked, his mouth hanging in surprise. Close your mouth, dear. This is Rochelle, and more than mere goods flow through these ports. Here, we are fond of our history. My late husband was a particular maven of all things antiquated, and his passion became mine. She took a sip of tea. As I was saying, Glenny III won the first battle of Villan Hills. The celebration took him across the bay to Blythen Castle, the one-time stronghold of the exiled empire and Nephron Church, at least until they built Grom Gallimus. Glenny spent the next few days drinking and basking in the praise of his nobles. When it came time to leave, they had a surprise waiting for him. The old families didn't like the idea of a strong emperor who wasn't sanctioned by the church. They were afraid the true heir of Novron would be forgotten. They killed him. She shook her head. Heavens no. Just as they are now, the nobility of that time were notorious cowards. They shied from murder. Instead, they locked Glenny III in the bowels of Blythen Castle. Rumor says the granite cliff the castle sits on is riddled with ancient tunnels where the Serret have carved out a vast number of oubliettes. They sealed him in, walled him up, and walked away. As you can imagine, betraying your emperor after he'd just saved the empire from disaster generated a fair degree of guilt. So here in Rochelle, the city nestled in the shadow of Blythen Castle, there arose a ghost story to accommodate that shame. The tale tells that Glenny was upset with his fate, and being a bundle of ambition that even death couldn't squelch, he turned into a monster and found a way out of those tunnels. Now he creeps down here to Rochelle in search of the nobles who betrayed him. They're all long dead, but Glenny doesn't know that, you understand. And when it sees someone that looks like one of them, the Morgan has his revenge. 
And it's bloody. It's always very bloody. Evelyn took another sip, set her cup down, and reached for her pastry. And the color blue? Hadrian asked. Evelyn flipped her hand in nonchalant dismissal. Blue wards off evil, of course. That's why proper baby boys are always covered in it, to protect them from demons and evil spirits. Superstitious fools are willing to pay the exorbitant cost to protect their precious darlings. Hadrian considered this. What about baby girls? Aren't parents concerned about them too? It's not a matter of concern. They don't need protection. Evil spirits aren't interested in them. Evelyn made no attempt to hide her caustic sneer. They're females, after all, entirely unimportant. No self-respecting demon would waste its time with a girl. So inexpensive pink is just fine. Where are we headed today, my faithful hound? Hadrian asked, as Royce, having donned his cloak once more, darted off at a brisk pace up Mill Street, heading away from the river. Once again, Hadrian struggled to keep pace with his partner as he moved swiftly uphill. While Hadrian maintained his belief that the two had been lucky the day before, there was no denying their efforts had yielded little progress in finding the Duchess. They knew the whereabouts of an estate-employed dwarf who might or might not have been the driver of the Duchess's coach. They also knew that the aforementioned dwarf was in nefarious contact with a Calean who was now dead. The victim, it seemed, of the 500-year-old reincarnation of a betrayed emperor. Then there was the phantom who had tried to crush them with a rock, whom Royce had thought was dead, but wasn't. This elusive mere had survived a high dive from the cathedral roof into the Roche River well enough to pay them a visit, but failed to leave his name or address. Back to Dwarfland, Hadrian asked. No, Royce replied. Today we're going to a funeral. A funeral? Whose? That's what I hope to discover. Royce stopped when they reached the first cross street. A brisk wind gusted down its length, blowing a tumbling basket past them. Which way leads to this wonderland of Calean shopping you love so much? It's down near the harbor, in Little Gurham, close to where we ate yesterday. Royce set off down the street, staying on the walk to avoid the wagon traffic. I'm betting the Calean with the missing face had a family, and families have a tendency to bury members when they die. If we see a funeral, a procession, a gathering at a graveyard or home, odds will be good that we'll have found the faceless man. Traffic increased as they headed south toward the bay, where the salty air mixed with the smell of fish. Men wheeled laden carts uphill and empty ones down toward the docks. Others carried hods or toolboxes or ladders. Several, in the loose-fitting dress of sailors, staggered out of doors, squinting at the sun as they dragged themselves back toward the ships. Others milled about in a daze, with no clear purpose. They wandered without an evident destination, looking with child's wonder at the buildings, shops, and carts. Hadrian realized that they acted much as he did, and in that instant, 
he understood that these were visitors to the city, there to witness the historic crowning of the new king. Hadrian studied the streets and building shapes, trying to recall his trip from the night before. He looked for anything familiar, but it was significantly different in daylight. Recalling a neighborhood of dilapidated houses, he turned down a narrow street and found what he was looking for, an avalanche of busted crates, an open sewer grate, and a familiar clothesline stretching overhead. Clothes had been taken off the cord, and the ladder was missing, but the dollop of manure was still there, complete with the slide mark from his boot. Getting close, Hadrian said. After a wrong turn, he doubled back and found the shabby wooden fence. With no one watching, they jumped it together. Back in the land of dented buckets, Hadrian found the intersection, verifying his memory by looking down the street and seeing the spires of the cathedral. The crossroads, so ominous the night before, was laughably mundane in the daylight. He turned his back on Grom Gallimus and walked only a few steps before being rewarded with a stain of blood leading to an alley. The bells of Grom Gallimus were chiming as Royce bent down studying the ruddy blemish. He scooped up some pebbles, chips, and shards of rock recently scattered. He sniffed them. What's it smell like? Hadrian asked. Gravel, Royce replied. From the box, Hadrian said. I probably spilled some when checking it last night. Royce nodded and stood up. He looked around and sighed. Nothing, Hadrian asked. Other than the fact the body is gone, I have nothing. After that, the two proceeded to imitate the rest of Rochelle's visitors who wandered the maze of streets. Royce and Hadrian explored the back areas, those residential sections where chickens wandered free, where hanging rugs formed all the privacy available for roadside privies, where naked children played in puddles, and gatherings of mothers watched the two of them with suspicious interest. Royce made a methodic search, up one row, then down the next, with an eye to the impoverished homes. They looked for crowds, for groups dressed in black, for weeping huddles of those who might be mourning the loss of a loved one. After hours traipsing through trash and garnering unfriendly glares, Royce stopped. I suppose it's possible he didn't have any family or friends. Someone took his body away, Hadrian said. Maybe the guards or neighborhood elders. Can't have the children playing with dead bodies. Might give them sicknesses and a true understanding of their genuine worth to society. Maybe we should head down to the harbor. That's where they probably dump bodies. This city looks like the sort to have a cadaver sluice. Our Calean conspirator is likely halfway to the Goblin Sea by now. He had to have somebody who cared about him, Hadrian said. Why? Everyone has someone. No, they don't. Royce focused on a scraggly little pug-nosed dog that was rummaging through a pile of rotting fish bones and tangled netting. Think about all the stray dogs out there. The ones like that, the mangy wretches no one wants. The sort that people throw rocks at to drive away. 
They don't have anyone. And people like dogs, right? Man's best friend, isn't that what they say? There are a lot of stray humans, too. Royce continued to watch the dog with sympathetic eyes. There was something odd about the mutt. The dog wasn't a stray. It had a collar. A blue collar that... You're not a stray anymore, Royce. What? Royce turned with a puzzled look. I'm just saying that if you died, I'd bury you. And if not me, Gwen would. He laughed. By Ma, Gwen would build a tomb for you and paint it blue. I wasn't talking about me. Sure, I was just saying. Perhaps you should try not saying anything. When Royce looked back, the dog was gone. The light of another day began to fade as they returned once more to Little Gurham's Merchant Square. The bells of Grom Gallimus chimed. I don't know, Royce sighed. Maybe we should look for the dwarf. He might not have relocated. If I put a knife to his throat, or better yet his wife's, he might- Royce paused. Looking around at the crowd, his expression became puzzled. What is it, boy? What do you smell? Royce glared. Sorry, Hadrian grinned. Royce nodded toward the people moving around them. There were three young girls carrying cloth-covered baskets of baked goods. A man with a saw looped over one shoulder walked past and tipped his hat. An elderly couple strolled hand in hand, shuffling along as slowly as a pair of lazy snails, looking both romantic and cute. Most were Kalean, a few were dwarves, and several were Mir. At first, Hadrian saw nothing odd. Then, as he watched, he saw it. Where earlier people were going, coming, and milling about, now everyone, every single person, right down to the children, was heading east. They weren't doing that a minute ago, Hadrian asked. The bells. Royce nodded in the direction of the cathedral. They just rang. Hurry up, or we'll be late, a Calean woman said as she ushered children out of her home. She caught sight of them, offered a cautious smile, then looked away and shooed her boys along. One by one, the shopkeepers and cart vendors closed their doors and covered their wares. After locking their treasures away, they, too, headed away from the setting sun. Where do you think they're going? The two stood in the square and watched as it emptied of people, draining like a leaking bucket until only a few stragglers remained. As the light faded and night crept into the city once more, Royce and Hadrian followed. Pursuing the parade east, Hadrian noticed they were leaving Little Gurham and entering a decidedly less inviting part of town. In all his wanderings and late-night chases, Hadrian hadn't been here. Based on the way Royce was looking about, he hadn't either. Like the fringe of an old coat, the eastern edge of the city frayed. Rochelle had been bigger once. Now the forest worked to reclaim stolen land. 
Grand homes and shops abandoned to decay had been uprooted by trees, bursting through foundations, popping roofs, and throwing branches through windows so that the forest appeared to wear the houses. Streets had lost stones. The gaping holes reminded Hadrian of missing molars in an ancient mouth, while the tufts of yellowed grass that spurted in doorways were the unwanted hair of the aging. Wind blew shredded curtains, tattered awnings, and loose boards, which made a hollow, lonesome sound that echoed down the cavity-plagued road. The procession took several routes, but all of them concluded at a stone ruin that might once have been a warehouse. Large enough to have been used to construct sailing ships, the building had four intact walls and half a wooden roof. None of the windows retained any evidence of glass, and the stone exterior showed only a speckled stain of paint, where a mural had once decorated a wall. Conversations had been few, but as the many groups and individuals transformed into one tight crowd, soft murmurs rose. Royce and Hadrian drew their hoods up as they slipped inside. The sun was gone, the land dark. A single bonfire shimmered brightly at the front of the building, casting giant shadows on chalk walls. Hadrian had no idea what he was seeing or was about to see. In many ways, the confluence of people reminded him of a church service. But he couldn't understand why a religious meeting would be held at night in such a fearful place. Something seasonal, like a winter tide or summer's rule observance, he guessed, as a cold wind shook the branches of a tree, clacking a branch against the broken roof. This was winter's last night, and the season thrashed with a spiteful anger. Royce clapped Hadrian on the arm, and with a slight tilt of his head, he indicated a small figure near the fire. With the dwarf's hood pulled back, Hadrian recognized Griswold, who stood on a wooden crate alongside a taller figure. That person wore his hood up, his face hidden. Seventeen days, the hooded one next to Griswold said loudly. He turned halfway around and then repeated it. Seventeen days ago, your leaders embarked on an ambitious plan on your behalf. The disappearance of the Duchess of Rochelle was our doing. We took her to apply pressure on the Duke to get him to grant rights for those who have none. Our demands were reasonable, easily granted, and completely ignored. For seventeen days we sought a peaceful solution. But tomorrow is the spring feast, and we can't wait any longer. Even the low murmuring stopped. The interior of the ruined building grew silent. We all wanted a peaceful solution, but injustice cannot be defeated by good intentions. Prejudice cannot be reasoned with. It cannot be beaten back without a cost. We must rise. Blood. That's what it takes. Blood must be spilled. The noble houses were blue, 
But they should fear red, the crimson of their own lives. We need to show them we will no longer silently withstand their degradations. Seeing the color splattered on the walls, on the cobblestones, and on their pretty blue jackets will get their attention. Oh, it will certainly do that, Amir said. Dressed in a deep blue kirtle, the woman had equally dark skin, her hair nappy as any East Calaian. She walked up to stand next to Griswold and the hooded speaker. A full head shorter than the one she interrupted, she was small and slight, but she stood tall, chin high, eyes bright. It will also terrify them, and not just the aristocracy of Rochelle, or even the three great houses of Alban. I've already spoken to Villar about the folly of his proposal. If you listen to him, if you take up arms, you'll be declaring war and gain the very fervent attention of both the nobility and the church. And I'm talking about not just here, but all across Avron. Not one of those kings, dukes, Earls or marquises will abide such a filthy house. They'll scrub the streets clean and use gallons of our blood for the washing. For every drop of theirs we draw, they'll demand a barrel of ours. Mercator Sicara, everyone, the tall one said, holding his hands out and introducing her to the crowd but his tone wasn't inviting or welcoming. Hadrian suspected everyone already knew who she was. Villar shook his head. What would your grandfather think of you? Of your fears? Of your willingness to abase yourself? Would he approve of you offering your people the illusion of safety through complacency? I don't deny that sacrifices will be made, but anything worth having comes at a price. We have had our heritage stolen from us, all of us, he pointed at Griswold. Once proud Belgric Lungrians have been shuttered into ghettos, locked in on festival nights, and forced to lock themselves in during their own celebrations to avoid being victims of violence. Chileans, once the noble merchant citizens of the imperial province of Calinia, whose city of Orlinius was the last to surrender its imperial banner, are now forced to beg for the right to buy and sell on the streets of a city that considers itself the last echo of the imperium. A city that should welcome them the most. And the mere. He paused, shaking his head. He took a breath, as if it was far too much to go on. But somehow he managed to continue. Mere. That was once a term of respect. A title of an honorable heritage. Those of us who can trace our lineage back to the imperial province of Meredith know that we were once proud and admired members of the Novronian Empire. 
Mir Sikar sat on the Imperial Council beside Mir Plimarath, both of whom personally knew and fought beside the living Novron. But now, now, he faltered and gestured up at the walls around them. Now we barely exist, denied even the right to dwell in a house, the freedom to conduct a business of any kind, and the dignity to provide for ourselves and our loved ones. That voice is familiar, Royce whispered. The one in the hood? Royce nodded. Living in the past is no way to create a future, Mercator said. It's from the past that we find our future, Villard declared. I wish he'd lift his head high enough so I could see his face, Royce said, peering up. Hadrian was acutely aware that all the people in attendance, other than the two of them, were dark-skinned Calaeans, short dwarves, and easily identified Mir. Anyone getting a good look under either of their hoods would know they didn't belong. Given that they had stumbled into something akin to a pre-revolution rally, Hadrian preferred not to be noticed. Spies were always given the same reward, whether it was handed out by kings or insurgents, and three swords wouldn't be enough to fight off hundreds of furious people. You're asking us to commit suicide! Mercator threw up her hands, her voice growing shrill in frustration. I'm asking for us to stand up for ourselves, to be brave, Villar countered. We outnumber our oppressors. We can defeat them. We can take control and make our own rules. Our numbers are greater only in Rochelle, Mercator argued. Outside this city are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who would like nothing better than to see every one of us dead, and they'll respond to this attack. Well-equipped and well-trained armies will have no qualms about putting down our little insurrection. And do you think it will stop there? No. The aristocracy of every kingdom will purge their homes of the unwanted. Today, we are seen as merely a nuisance. But after tomorrow, we'll be a threat. If you do this, you doom not just ourselves, but every mere Belgric, Lungrian, and Calaian across the face of Elan. You launch a universal war that we have no hope of surviving, much less winning. Villar's voice showed disgust and an end of patience. You have all heard Mercator's words before. And as I said, I tried things her way, and at great personal risk. I was the one who kidnapped the Duchess. And what did the Duke do? Nothing. He has ignored our demands. So many of you have suffered. So many have asked why we don't stand up for ourselves, why we don't fight. Tomorrow we will. On the first day of spring, the nobles from every corner of Alban will be at the feast. It's our best chance, a 
perfect opportunity. They are not expecting a revolution. And they won't be protected by thick breastplates, nor will they be carrying swords. But we will. The dwarves have secretly prepared nearly a hundred weapons, ready to be handed out. The Calean soothsayers have confirmed that tomorrow is a turning point for this city, and it will be if the Mir, the Belgric Lungrians, and the Calaeans all join forces and attack the Feast of the Nobles tomorrow at midday. Listen to me now, and we won't ever have to listen to the nobles again. I ask for your support. By a show of... Villar finally lifted his head high enough that the light splashed his features, and both Hadrian and Royce got a good look at the person beneath the hood. A triangular face, black hair, angled brows, a mere, and an angry one. There was a cold hate in the pull of his lips, and an intensity in his dark eyes as he scanned the crowd, seeking to speak directly to everyone gathered. Royce had also tilted his head to get a better look. And in that same moment, the two recognized each other. Lowering his head, Royce whispered, It's him, the guy I chased last night. Villar shouted, Grab that man! and pointed at Royce. Time to go, Royce said. They struggled to retreat, but ran into a mass of bodies. Villar continued to shout, Get him! Both of them! They're spies for the Duke! The phrase, spies for the Duke, did the trick. And instantly, Hadrian felt uncountable hands. Royce reached under his cloak. No, Royce, don't! Hadrian yelled. His partner hesitated, and in that moment was equally besieged by a dozen men who swarmed until they had him in a firm grip. Royce glared. The crowd was filled with innocent people, the elderly, women, and children. Any hope they had to get free would require killing, lots of killing. And even then, they might not get away. That sweet old couple Hadrian had seen on the way to the rally stood four rows back, still arm in arm, looking upon them with fear. Beside them, a beautiful blonde girl, a mere, stared at him wide-eyed in shock. The rest of the crowd was confused and frightened. These people weren't soldiers. They were a host of Griswolds, people who came home from a long day with nothing more than a miserable excuse for a chicken. And even so, their meager offering garnered a kiss from a grateful wife. None of this would matter to Royce. There's too many, Hadrian said. What are you talking about, Villar? Mercator asked. Who are these men? They have been searching for the Duchess, asking questions and hanging out with the captain of the Duke's guard. Just last night I came upon them spying on Griswold and Erasmus. I chased the little one, and the large one murdered Erasmus Nim. Nim's dead? Someone asked, but was ignored. Hadrian tried to pull free, but it was hopeless with so many pressing in from all sides. Someone put an arm around his neck, tilting Hadrian backward and off balance. 
he felt them take his swords. Hadrian and Royce had been turned to face the front of the room. Mercator, whose arms were two-toned as if she were wearing black gloves to her elbows, stepped forward. Is what Villar says true? Hadrian was encouraged by the sincerity of the question. She, at least, hadn't made up her mind. He looked to Royce, who refused to answer. Hadrian offered as charming a smile as the chokehold allowed, and focused on her. Yes and no. Mercata wasn't amused. No, I didn't kill anyone. Yes, we have been looking for the Duchess. No, we aren't spies of the Duke. We've never even met the man. Yes, I know the captain of the guard. We served together years ago. I was there, Griswold said. I saw you chase Nim last night, and now my friend is dead. Well, yes, I did chase him, but we got separated. And when I found him again, he was dead. But I swear I didn't have anything to do with it. He's lying, of course, Villar said. I'd lie too if I were in his place. He's only trying to save his own skin. And why are you looking for the Duchess? Mercator asked. My friend and I were hired by her father, Gabriel Winter, who was worried about the disappearance of his only daughter. He feared for her life. See? He admits it, Villar said. They know we kidnapped her. They know what happens tomorrow. Let them live, and we die. We need to kill them, throw their bodies in the roche. Let it take their stink to the sea. No, a voice in the crowd yelled. The girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. Leave him alone. She pushed through the crowd to face Hadrian. I know this man. I won't let anyone hurt him. Royce looked at Hadrian, and Hadrian looked back, his face mirroring the confusion. Seaton? Mercator asked pushing forward toward the girl. What are you talking about? This is the Raza. The blonde pointed at Hadrian and stared at Mercator with big eyes. Mercator continued to appear puzzled. The Raza? Her eyes widened. She studied Hadrian closely. Are you sure? How can you be? How could he be? I'm positive, Seaton said. I could never forget his face, his three swords, those eyes. Hadrian, on the other hand, had clearly forgotten hers. She was vaguely familiar, but only because he thought she looked a bit like Arbor, the shoemaker's daughter from Hintendar, whom he'd been in love with at the age of fifteen. But this girl was a mere, and Arbor must still be living in Hintendar, married and with children by now. Hadrian had no idea why this young woman was defending him, or why she called him a Raza. Given his position, he wasn't about to deny anything she said. Villar pivoted. What's all this about? This is Hadrian Blackwater, Seaton said. Seven years ago, he saved my life. 
Chapter 18 The Raza She didn't say any more. The beautiful blonde Mir, who literally and figuratively stood between Hadrian and Royce and death, looked uncomfortable as she faced Mercator with pleading eyes. Villar shifted impatiently. He likely wanted them dead, their bodies jammed down a sewer shaft. And while Hadrian obviously prepared to avoid that future, he was also curious to understand why this girl was so adamant about saving his life. Seaton, Mercator said gently, you have to tell the story. The blue-stained mirror looked out across the crowd. I know this isn't the... I'm sorry, but you're going to have to explain. Seaton nodded, but still struggled to find her voice, and when it came, her words started faint and so low that Hadrian strained to hear. I was living in the village of Aylesworth, a few miles north. That's where I was born. Lord Aylesworth had defied King Reinhold. I don't even know about what or why, but one day the king's soldiers arrived. Louder! Someone in the back shouted. We can't hear you, someone else said. Seaton's embarrassment showed. But when she resumed her story, her voice was louder. And as she spoke, it grew even more so. Everyone was called into the castle. We were told that anyone left outside the walls would be slaughtered. I didn't think they would let me in, but I guess with my hair covering my ears, they didn't notice I was a mere, and I slipped in with everyone else. She paused and swallowed hard. The battle went on all day, and on past sunset. I hid behind the woodpile. Then, in the middle of the night, the gate burst open. They set fires everywhere, and men in chainmail carrying swords ran through the courtyard, killing everyone. They didn't... She stopped her eyes searching the dark for the words. They didn't look human. They looked like monsters, cruel and horrible. One was worse than all the rest. He was tall, powerful, and covered in blood. Among my people, there are legends of vicious creatures called Razas, terrible fiends, part elven, part beast, wholly possessed of evil. That's what he looked like to me. She paused, regained her composure, and then continued. He charged in, swinging this incredibly long sword. Lord Aylesworth's men attacked him from all sides, strong men, good men. I was certain they would kill this savage invader. Instead, they all died, their blood adding to his gore. He cut them down, cleaving off arms and legs, beheading, and in one case he cut a poor man nearly in half, slicing him from the shoulder to the hip. As she spoke, her eyes focused on Hadrian, squinting as if she peered into a painful light. He killed the horses, too, the ones the Lord's knights rode when they came at him. This man, this Raza, 
down mounted knights with no more difficulty than a butcher slaughters a lamb. Before long, they were stacked around him, bodies in a pond of blood. The crowd was quiet as she spoke. Only the faint crackle of the campfire broke the stillness, the sound and the flickering light adding to the imagery she conjured. When all the soldiers were dead, the invaders came for the women. I was discovered. They liked my hair and how young I appeared. In the dark, they thought I was human. She paused, her face tense, her sight dropping to her own feet. She took another breath. I could smell the beer on their breath. The battle was over. The celebration begun. Everyone was drinking. I held on to the hope that I might survive, that if they continued to think I was human, they would let me live. I feared they would, would, but they didn't want me for themselves. Instead, I was dragged to the Raza. The blood-soaked man was in the middle of the courtyard beside a barrel of beer, his giant sword still in one hand, a cup in the other. He was drunk. The soldiers threw me and three other girls down at his feet. To Hadrian Blackwater, the hero of the battle, go the spoils, they yelled. Pick your favorite, Blackwater. He picked me. Seaton paused there and began to cry. I was terrified. After seeing what he'd done to the Knights of Lord Aylesworth, I was certain this man was capable of unspeakable horrors. I knelt in the dirt, made muddy by the blood of so many, and I waited. All around me was fire, smoke, and screaming. My stomach was so bound in knots that I vomited. I didn't care if he killed me. I just wanted it to be over. I couldn't, I couldn't. It took her a moment to find her voice again. And when it returned, she looked directly at Hadrian, as if she were speaking only to him, like they were alone. Then he did something so unexpected, so unfathomable, that I thought I hadn't heard him correctly. He said, I'm sorry. The Raza's voice wasn't what I expected. It was soft, soft and gentle and sad. I thought he was speaking to me. I thought he was telling me that he regretted what he was about to do. But he never moved. He just kept saying it, repeating those two words. I realized he wasn't talking to me at all. He was looking at the pile of bodies. Staring at it, he drank and repeated his apology. Finally, he did look my way. He acted as if he'd just noticed I was there. I was sobbing and he stared. I thought my life was about to end. When he reached out and grabbed me, I screamed. And then? Another from the crowd asked, a woman who glared at Hadrian with hate. What did he do? He, Seaton lifted a hand in Hadrian's direction, reaching out. 
He held me. He held me tight, but gently. I was still terrified, expecting the worst at any minute. He too was crying. Then he let go. A couple of other soldiers came up. They saw he wasn't doing anything with me, and they tried to pull me away. Said they didn't want the blonde bitch to go to waste. He told them no. They weren't happy with that, but he said if anyone touched me, anyone, that he would kill them and their horse. And their horse? Hadrian asked. I really said that. Seaton nodded. You did. Hadrian started to remember now. It was seven years ago, not long after he had joined Reinhold's army. Most of the memories from that night had been mercifully washed away with beer. But some returned to him in nightmares, or came in flashes triggered by fire and screams. The last time was when Queen Anne of Medford died, when Castle Essendon went up in flames. The next day, Seaton went on, continuing to look at Hadrian, I was alone, just me and the ruined castle walls. The army of the king had gone, and so had the Raza, who had protected me. I searched. I looked everywhere. Not a single person was left except me. I later heard folks who said the king was teaching his nobles a lesson. I only learned one thing, that I, too, would have died. If it weren't for this man, this man who scared me so much that I vomited out of fear, he protected me. I'm the only survivor of the infamous sacking of Aylesworth Castle, and I walked out with my life, dignity, and virtue all intact, and all because of him. Now, for whatever reason, fate has seen fit to swap our places, and so help me, Feral, I'll fight anyone who tries to harm him. She peered into Hadrian's eyes and added, And their horse. Seaton took Hadrian's hand, kissed the back of it, and rubbed it along her cheek. Thank you, she told him, and lifting his fingers to her lips, gently kissed each one. Thank you, thank you. Hadrian couldn't imagine that a young Mir, even given her gift for storytelling, could dissuade a mob bent on killing two outsiders threatening their existence. And yet the demeanor of the crowd had markedly changed. Whoever this girl was, she held significant status in this underground society of theirs, one that exceeded her apparent age. They still must die, Viola demanded. Seaton, you'll have to step aside. The blonde, who had appeared so shy and gentle until then, sharply spun to face him. You want him dead? Fine, but don't ask others to do it for you. Seaton pushed one of those holding Hadrian aside. Let go. She pulled on the fingers of another man. The others released their grips, and she pushed them back. There. Go ahead, Vilar. You kill him, but by your own hand. 
Show us the way to your bloody revolution. Be the first to draw blood. Go ahead. Don't let my foolish little story worry you. The man is unarmed, surrounded. Go on. Villar stared at her. Not Hadrian. In his eyes smoldered a seething hatred. Do it! The girl's voice rose to a shout. We don't have to kill them, Mercator said. We only need to keep them from informing the Duke or his guards of our intentions. If we vote for revolution, our actions will make what they learned here moot. If we take no action, then there is no crime, and no one will believe a crazy story of murderous plots from two foreigners. They know about the Duchess, Villar reminded them. The Duke will kill us for that. Mercator nodded. Yes, us, you and me, no one else. Her abduction was our doing and our responsibility. Even so, they have no proof, and it'll be our word against that of outsiders. But if we kill them, then we- He's right here, Philar, Seaton exploded again. No one is stopping you, go ahead. She took a step toward him, staring him down. You tell us that we must fight. You say we have to stand up for ourselves, but what you really mean is we have to die. To die for you, for your pride, your hate. You want us to sacrifice yourself so you can have a better future. That's not leading, Villar, that's exploitation. You want any of us to listen to you, to follow you, to risk our lives for your vengeance? Then give us more than words. Risk your own life first. Take his life yourself, or shut up. Villar was shaking. Sweat glistened on his face in the torchlight. Hadrian thought he would attack her, hit the girl, make her stop. Instead, without a word, Villar turned away, pushed through those watching, and disappeared into the crowd. Griswold, can you get some rope? Mercator asked. We can. In the drama, nearly everyone had forgotten about Royce, who hadn't said or done anything. Those holding him had relaxed their grip, likely believing they were in charge of the quiet one. They discovered their mistake when one cried out in pain and another doubled over as the thief twisted free of all the rest. In a flash, Alverstone appeared, followed by gasps and the sudden retreat of those closest to him. Sorry. Don't like ropes. Royce. Adrian spoke in a measured voice, the same one he would use when calming a spooked horse. Don't. Don't do anything that you'll, I mean, that I'll regret. Would be more productive if you told them that. Royce spun, played out, and everyone took another step back. We aren't going to hurt you, Mercato said. She was one of the few moving toward him, but not quickly. Smart woman, Hadrian thought. Not going to tie me up, either. We can't just let you walk out. If you were to tell the Duke, who said anything about walking out? Royce fanned the dagger as he moved closer to Hadrian. We came for the Duchess, Jenny Winter. You're going to give her to us. Mercator stopped 
and folded her arms, staring at him. Or what? You'll kill us all with your dagger? Royce frowned, glanced at Hadrian, and sighed. Why does everyone jump to that conclusion with me? Polka dots, Royce, Hadrian thought. Polka dots. Look, Royce told her, I don't care for being locked up or killed. Big surprise there, right? And I'm guessing you'd prefer that we don't reduce your gathering's population by even a single life, true? Given her story, he indicated Seton, I suspect you understand it'll cost you at least that if you force the issue. So, let's try something else. How about a trade? We have the Duchess. I get that, Mercator said. But what do you have that we could want? Royce smiled. The Duke. No one returned Hadrian's swords, but neither did they attempt to tie the two up. Makata left the crowd in the main meeting hall with a promise to update everyone before morning. Then she sent a runner to fetch someone named Seely, convinced Griswold to come along, tried in vain to discourage Seaton from doing the same, and chose a dozen of the larger Calaeans and Mir to act as guards. Then the entire entourage escorted Royce and Hadrian across the street. They entered a small, dilapidated building with a partial roof, broken windows, and a mostly intact wooden floor. A well-worn path had been cleared through the debris down the stairs to the cellar. Four stone walls without a single window, six wooden chairs surrounding a rickety table, and the stub of a candle melted onto an overturned cup made up what Hadrian suspected to be the headquarters of the revolution. Makata took a seat and gestured for Royce and Hadrian to join her. Seaton looked at the dozen men and Mir who were trying to look as tough as possible. You don't need them. Not all of us share your unwavering faith, Makata told her. It's not faith. I'm just saying... Seaton smiled shyly at the guards. No offense, but if Hadrian wanted to kill us, they wouldn't be able to stop him. He doesn't have his swords, Griswold said. I know. Mercator puzzled on this a moment. As she did, an older, dark-skinned woman entered in a rush. Mercator, I was told you needed me. We do. Mercator motioned to the open chair. This is Celie Nim, Erasmus's widow. She will be acting in her husband's stead as a representative to the Calaeans. Agreed? She looked to Griswold, who nodded. I'm sorry to impose on you at a time like this, Seely, but we have an emergency. The widow shook her head. Don't go to worrying about me. This is bigger than an old widow's problems. Erasmus would never forgive me if I didn't pick up his part in this. Mercata folded her hands on the table and took a breath. Okay, we're listening. Royce straightened up and faced the three. Hadrian was telling the truth. We were hired to find and, if possible, rescue Genevieve Winter, the Duchess of Rochelle. If she's still alive, we can help each other. She is, but it doesn't matter. 
Her husband doesn't care what happens to her. Or he does, but not enough to meet our demands. Or there's a third explanation. Which is? That he doesn't know anything about your requests, and he thinks his wife is dead. Mercator's brows knitted, her eye shifting in thought. That's not possible. Is it? She looked to Griswold, who only shrugged. How were your demands relayed? Royce asked. We wrote them down and left a note in the carriage the night she was taken. Royce shook his head. Maybe it got lost in the debris, or it blew away. But in any case, the Duke knows nothing about the note. What makes you say that? We've been investigating her disappearance, remember? And Villar was right about us meeting with Captain Weiberg of the city guard, but he didn't say anything about finding a note. And Leopold had the guard searching the city, and none of them knew about any demands. In fact, Weiberg thinks she was most likely killed by some rival for the crown. Royce leaned in. If you could prove to the Duke his wife is alive, and make your case for reforms, he might agree in exchange for her return. Your original plan can still work, which means there would be no reason for the revolt tomorrow. Isn't that what you wanted? Mercator's eyes showed a momentary glimmer of hope, but then it vanished. Except there's absolutely no way to get to the Duke. I can't enter a shop to buy a loaf of bread at midday. So there's no way anyone is going to let me into the estate at night, especially to have an audience with the Duke. Royce looked at Hadrian. I'm guessing the captain could get us an audience, right? He nodded. Weiberg could manage it, and he owes me favors much larger than this. So, all we need is proof that his wife still lives. If we have that, I think he would listen to what you have to say. Then, if I could persuade him to agree. Royce can be very persuasive, Hadrian explained. The thief nodded. I have a lot of money riding on this job, so trust me, I'm motivated. You want me to speak face to face with the Duke? Mercator gave a little laugh. That sounds incredibly risky. What's to stop you from handing me over and saying, this is the kidnapper? Royce shook his head. If we did that, you'd have the Duchess executed, right? The Duke would lose his wife, and I'd be out of fortune. Where's the benefit in that? Technically, Royce could make even more money if he let them kill her, then gathered up the heads of those responsible and carried them back to Gabriel Winter. But Hadrian imagined such a debate was for another day and a different crowd. Hadrian watched Mercator. She was no fool, nor was she one of the typical meek elves he so often saw on the streets of Medford. While appearing not quite middle-aged, she had a demeanor that suggested otherwise. Her eyes surveyed them with a careful judgment born of wishful thinking, but tempered by years of disappointment. Mercator looked to the widow Nim and Griswold, both of whom shook their heads. These boys have no skin in the game that they're setting up, Seely said. We're betting the house, 
and they're tossing in a copper din. Akata nodded. She's right. Your fortune doesn't stack up against the gamble we shoulder in this proposal. I need greater assurance. Lives are at stake, mine being the least of my worries. But the two of you, the architects of this grand plan, have no serious risk. Royce faltered, searching the ground for ideas. Adrian noticed Seaton was still watching him. She wanted a solution almost as much as he did. His time in the East had always been a dirty stain on his life. But she'd showed him there had been at least one pinprick of light. Another one would be nice. I'll stay, Hadrian declared. What? Royce and Mercator asked together. I'll spend the night here, under guard, as insurance. Royce can escort you to the Duke. If he betrays you, has you killed or whatever, then your people can kill both me and Jenny Winter. Griswold pointed at Seaton. According to her, that's not too easy. But unlike Royce, I'll let you tie me. Makata looked surprised at the offer, and nodded. I could agree to that. Yes, Griswold nodded. That seems fair. No, it doesn't, Royce said. In fact, that sounds really stupid. Why? Hadrian asked. Do you plan on betraying anyone? No, but... But what? I don't like working under pressure, okay? And what guarantee do we have that they won't... Won't what? Hadrian asked. Won't kill you anyway. Hadrian looked at Seaton. I have a protector. The blonde smiled. Yes, you do. I'd be happier if it were someone a little taller, Royce said. Does everyone agree? Hadrian asked. Griswold nodded. Seely? Mercator turned to the Calean. What do you say? Old Eras never did like the idea of fighting. Couldn't even bring himself to argue with me. Just said, Seely, there's no reason to be that way. And he was usually right, too. Her lips shifted as tears slipped down her cheeks. People got the wrong impression because he was always haggling, but he just liked the sport of it. Couldn't understand why folks refused to get along. He would have wanted to find a peaceful solution. She looked around to nodding heads. We agree to this. Mercator gave a single nod. So it's decided. Let's pray to each of our gods that this will work. We're going to need all the good fortune we can get. Chapter 19 Living Proof The key was done. Jenny finished it more out of habit and a sense of accomplishment than anything else. She had no idea if it would work, and only a mild desire to test it. Curiosity was the only driving force now. Escaping felt almost counterproductive. Better to be killed and retain a thread of hope than live and discover the truth. In a choice between the murder of her body and a murder of her spirit, 
she suspected the former might be best. At least she wouldn't be forced to suffer needlessly. Besides, if it worked, the key would only open the collar. The shackle around her throat was held fast by a warded padlock. But the door's lock was a tumbler, and she didn't know anything about those. She rubbed the key with her thumb. You did a good job, old girl, she said aloud. And she wasn't just referring to the key. She was alone again. Makata and Vilar were both off to the meeting, which meant that Jenny didn't have long to live. If they decided the way Vilar wanted, Makata would return to perform her final task. Jenny wondered if she would follow through with it. While she'd never killed anyone, Jenny imagined it wouldn't be an easy thing to do. But it was clear that no point in Mercator's life had been easy. The mirror hadn't said a word, but that last argument with Vilar, how he looked at her, and what he didn't say, told Jenny everything she needed to know. Mercator would kill her. She wouldn't like it, wouldn't want to would probably apologize and possibly cry as she dragged a knife across her throat. But she'd do it. Mercator was a survivor, and her sort did what they had to. Jenny looked at the key. She thumbed it, feeling where the rest of the teeth had been, noting how smooth it was. Her old trunk key was now a skeleton key. The problem with warded padlocks like the one that held the collar, was that they only had a few configurations for the obstructions, or wards, that made it impossible to turn any but the correct key inserted in the hole. With so little space in each mechanism, and so many unique locks to make, some were bound to be identical, which meant keys for one could open others that used the same design. Worse, Almost all warded locks left the first notch unobstructed so that a universal key, a skeleton key, could be used. This was handy for when a key was lost, or when someone had hundreds of locks to deal with and didn't feel like carrying hundreds of keys. Jenny had learned this after discovering a consistent discrepancy in her inventory. Her warehouse in Kulnora had a fine-looking warded lock, big and new, but a locksmith explained how useless the thing was to anyone who knew the first thing about how locks worked. This was bad news in a city that was home base to the Black Diamond Thieves Guild. She replaced the lock with a far more expensive and elaborate version, and the thefts stopped. Jenny thought nothing more of the matter until she woke up with a collar locked on her neck and an old chest key in her purse. How many noble duchesses know how to pick a lock? How many have potential skeleton keys in their wrist purses? So what are the odds Mercator and Vilar used an irregular ward lock? Jenny felt her odds were good, but getting the collar off was only half the battle. The other was the door. Mercator opened it for every meal. The myrrh wasn't very big, but Jenny had never been in a brawl. She didn't know how well she would fare, and she honestly didn't want to find out. That's where the sharpened coins came in. If she could... But why bother? I gave all my love to a man, 
and received only lies. What do I have to look forward to now? Jenny decided to stop looking away and face the unpleasant truth that some people, no matter how hard they try, never get what they desire the most. She tossed the key, letting it skip across the stone into the corner. Jenny heard someone. Quick steps rushed up and flew into the room on the other side of the locked door. She held her breath. This was it. Whoever had come was there to end her life. The door would open, and she would see a knife or a sword or a- Can you write? Makeda asked. Jenny was confused. Do you hear me? Can you write? Are you talking to me? Jenny asked. Makeda was moving around outside the door, shuffling loudly. She appeared to be in a hurry. Of course I am. Don't take that tone with me. How am I supposed to know? I'm locked in a room. Makeda paused, took a breath, and began again. My apologies, but I'm in a bit of a rush. And you should be too, if you want to get out of here. Get out of here? Is this a trick? Doesn't make sense. Why trick me? Yes, I can write. Wonderful. I need you to do something for me, and for yourself. Jenny slid to the door and peered out the central knothole. Outside, Makeda flipped over piles of wool. She was searching for something in a mad dash. I need you to write a letter to your husband. Are you serious? Yes. Makeda found a feather and cut the end of the quill with a small knife. Why, I'd love to, dear. Can I tell him where I am and give him your best wishes? Do you know where you are? Makeda set the knife back down, then reconsidered and stuffed it in her belt. No. Makeda found a sheet of parchment and grabbed it up. Then, I suppose not. What do you want me to say? Tell him what we talked about. Ask him to do what is right, and mention something that only you two share, so he'll know the message came from you. Wait. What? Leo doesn't know I'm alive? There's a rumor to that effect. A rumor? You don't know? Why don't you know? By ma, are you serious? Makeda opened the door and set the parchment and quill before Jenny. We think the Duke never received our first note, and that's why he hasn't done anything. But if you can convince him, if that's true, does that mean, could Leo love me after all? Jenny's heart leapt as she took the paper and quill. Then she hesitated. No, she thought. It doesn't explain everything else. Him keeping his distance, our separate beds, his failure to defend me. Leo doesn't love me, she told Makeda, an admission that brought tears. He married me so he could be king. This won't change anything. You don't know that. Jenny bowed her head and sniffled. Yes, I do. I pretended he cared, but it's not true. She set the quill down and wiped her face with the back of her hand. Makeda sat down opposite her. Maybe you're right. 
Maybe he doesn't love you, and only married you to better his chance for the crown. Makes sense. But he still needs you, if he's to become king. And if he's crowned, then you'll be a queen. I don't care about that. Never have. You should. Why? Why should I care? If he doesn't love me, if this has all been a charade, if all he wanted was a crown, it could save your life. I'm not sure I want it saved. If the only person who ever said they loved me doesn't, I'm not sure life is worth living. Mercator's tone lowered, her eyes growing stern, nearly angry. It's not just your life at stake. She changed from hectic jailer to disapproving teacher scolding a petulant student. If the Duke doesn't agree to reforms, there will be an uprising followed by a retaliation. Hundreds will die, maybe thousands. Mercator picked up the quill. I don't care if the Duke doesn't love you, and right now you shouldn't either. You have the power to save lives. Your ladyship, isn't that worth pretending he loves you for at least one more day? Jenny looked down at the parchment and sniffled. As pathetic as it sounds, you're the closest thing I have to a friend in this city. Call me Jenny. She sniffled again and reached out and took the quill. I need ink. I don't have ink, Mercator said, then smiled and looked at her arms and hands. But, Jenny, I think I can manage something. Chapter 20 Jiggery Pokery Royce waited in the shadows between two stone giants, torturing himself. Standing in the dark, narrow street, dividing the imposing Imperial Gallery from the immense Grom Gallimus, he watched people carrying lanterns and moving through the sprawling riverfront plaza, celebrating a festival of rebirth. The populace danced and sang in joyous abandon as they said goodbye to winter, the way a squirrel waved farewell to a frustrated dog thwarted by high branches. They wore bright colors and waved streamers of green, blue, and yellow. Giddy as children, they were oblivious to the dangers around them. They were prey. He'd grown up in a city like this, old, dark, and decrepit. Royce was a panther in the grass, gazing out at a watering hole after a drought. But he wasn't there to hunt. He was waiting for Marketa. As unpleasant as it was to ignore the temptation to act when the revelers were such ripe pickings, they weren't the source of Royce's agony. What needled him was the way the stakes of their job had risen while the payout hadn't. What Royce suffered was the contradiction that was Hadrian Blackwater. While he hoped that his friend survived the night, he also felt, in a purely theoretical way, that Hadrian deserved to die. The fool had willingly surrendered to a mob of revolutionaries, a group that believed he had killed one of their own. That was stupidity taken to an art form, like giving up higher ground or leaving an enemy alive. And yet, 
This was only a symptom of a larger, more perplexing issue that irritated Royce like an infected splinter. He couldn't ignore that their lives had been saved by a random act of kindness that Hadrian had once shown to a total stranger. From Royce's perspective, the best insurance for a long life was murder. Potential threats, even remote or indirect, had to be eliminated. Not broken, not reduced, but burned out of existence. Royce left no hatred to smolder, never granted revenge the potential to return to roost. He wouldn't have violated the blonde mirror either. The very idea was repugnant. But given the circumstances, he imagined he would have seen her dead. When you're part of a force that wipes out an entire town, you don't leave anyone alive. Not even a young girl. Back in his Black Diamond days, when Royce was a member of the infamous Thieves Guild, he had been one of three assassins the BD employed. The other two were his best friend, Merrick and Jade, Merrick's lover. Jade had been a young girl too, and just as sweet as Seton, but she'd become one of the most feared assassins in the known world. Not despite her gender, but because she was female. Men always underestimated her. Was Jade a mere too? Thinking back, he couldn't help wondering. Not all mere have elven features. Since meeting Hadrian, he'd recognized that the man was unnaturally lucky. But that thought, that excuse, was too consistent an occurrence. It had become less a rationalization and more of a truism, which irked Royce. If it had been me, if I had saved her life, Seton would have spent the last seven years training to kill, and one by one she would have seen to it that each of the Duke's soldiers who took part in that raid died a horrible death. Then when I showed up, she'd be overjoyed to find the one guy that got away. My reward would have been a vivisection. But it had been Hadrian, and he received a tear-filled oratory of appreciation and an advocate for his defense. That was the problem with life. It often failed to be consistent. Nothing could be relied on. Royce was positive that if he dropped a rock enough times, he'd eventually see it fall upward. He was also certain that this event would coincide with the worst possible moment for it to occur. What others saw as miracles, Royce perceived as dumb luck. Still, there was a problem with that. And its name was Hadrian Blackwater. By all accounts, the man shouldn't have survived childhood. Maybe he had caring parents who watched over their son. Yet another example of the universe showing preferential treatment. Still, after he left home, he should have died within a week, a month at best. Ridiculous skill with a sword can protect someone from only so much. Tonight is a good example. We both should have died, but we didn't. Why? This was the puzzle that frustrated Royce, the embodiment of the sliver. It challenged his very clear and proven worldview. Aside from Hadrian's professional soldiering, during which he apparently killed the equivalent of a small country's worth of men, he was unusually kind 
empathetic, and forgiving. Everything in Royce's life had convinced him that those three idiosyncrasies were synonymous with swallowing brews of arsenic, cyanide, and hemlock all in a single gulp. Even if the result wasn't suicide, such attributes should result in massive handicaps when trying to survive in a world that claimed to value such qualities, but in reality punished people who possessed them. Except in Hadrian's case, it hadn't. And by virtue of being with him, Royce had been rewarded. The worst part was that Royce couldn't pass it off as a rock falling up. This wasn't the freak singular occurrence. Four years earlier, the idiot had made the worst mistake of his life by staying to save Royce when they were on top of the Crown Tower. Hadrian had the opportunity to escape, but he had stayed performing a suicidal defense on behalf of a man he hated. Anyone else would have paid for such an error with their life. Not Hadrian Blackwater. And again, by virtue of being with him, Royce had lived, too. Then there was Scarlet Dodge. She was another person Royce would have killed if Hadrian hadn't been with him. Another example of a good deed rewarded. Royce and Scarlet had once laughed at Hadrian's naivete, his moronic integrity. But given how things turned out in Dulgarth, Royce didn't find it funny anymore. Once could be explained as a fluke. Twice was a coincidence. But three times, three times was a pattern, wasn't it? And if it is, what does that pattern reveal? Royce pushed the thought away. It didn't expose anything. Weird stuff happens all the time, doesn't prove or disprove anything. Even a rock will eventually fall upward, right? He was making too much out of nothing, something he criticized others for doing. People spot a goose heading south in early fall, and they expect an early winter. They see a squirrel amassing nuts and convince themselves the winter's snows will be deep. All this from an over-eager goose and a greedy rodent. One thing doesn't dictate the other. Hadrian was lucky, that was all. Except, I don't believe in luck. Luck, as it was understood by most people, was some supernatural force that benefited one person more than another an incomprehensible, impetuous power that blessed certain people without reason and would abandon them just as inexplicably. What a load of nonsense. Luck was a word insecure or envious people used to explain events they didn't understand. What they didn't realize was that everything had a certain probability. Those people described as lucky were merely individuals who increased their odds of success either by their actions or lack thereof. A man who lives on a mountaintop but isn't hit by lightning isn't lucky. He simply didn't go outside in a storm. People made their own luck. This too had been an axiom that Royce had believed. Now these two established principles were slammed against each other, and he didn't care for the new landscape the collision left behind. The pattern was wholly strange, an alien thing that challenged all he knew to be true, everything he'd learned. If Royce didn't know better, 
he would almost conclude that... Mercator appeared, moving through the crowded plaza. She had added a blue shawl to her attire and dropped part of it over her head. Does she own anything that isn't blue? She entered from Vintage Avenue, but that didn't mean anything. Royce had known Mercator for only an hour, and already he knew she wasn't stupid enough to travel in a straight line from where Jenny Winter was being held. The best he could determine was that the Duchess of Rochelle was somewhere in the city or on the outskirts. Somewhere Mercator could have gotten to and back in less time than it took Grom Gallimus to chime twice. It took her several minutes to cross the plaza. Because this was the night before the big feast, it seemed everyone was out. Royce watched as Mercator threaded her way through the crowd, looking for anyone who might be following. She seemed unobserved, and Royce met her in front of the cathedral. That didn't take long. Are you certain you have ample evidence? You realize we won't get a second chance at this. If he isn't persuaded that she's alive, this whole thing fails. Mercator presented Royce with an understanding smile, the sort an adult would offer a child who has just said something stupid. This will do the trick. Mercator drew out a folded parchment. A letter. Royce was disappointed. Were you expecting a finger? Behind Mercator, not far from the fountain, a Calean man was juggling flaming torches that made muffled whoomp sounds every time they spun. To be honest, yes. Fresh-cut finger shows the victim was recently alive, and there is the added bonus of indicating the seriousness of the kidnapper. Mercator continued her patient smile. You've done this sort of thing before, haven't you? Hadrian and I weren't hired for our looks. Nor for your intelligence. The insult was presented without malice, making it sound more like constructive criticism. Royce was never one for criticism, constructive or otherwise, and certainly not when it came to his area of expertise. The presumption of this mere was astounding if she thought she could educate him on blackmail and coercion. She looked to be the type to spend most of her days scrounging garbage for food or begging for handouts in the street. A ring of people in colorful clothes held hands and danced in a circle as a trio of fiddlers played in the center. All the dancers were red-faced, from either the exertion or drink. Likely both. Royce found it hard to believe that he and they were the same species. The Duchess wants us to succeed, Mercator said. Given that her life weighs in the balance, and since she knows her husband better than either of us, it's sensible to assume she is far more capable of providing us with the means of convincing him to act wouldn't you say? Royce didn't answer. As simple as that concept was, he re-ran it twice through his head, looking for an error. He couldn't find one, beyond the possibility that the Duchess might encode a message only Leo would understand, which would convey her whereabouts. This, however, seemed unlikely. What? Makeda asked. Nothing. Royce shook his head. You're shocked. I can see it on your face. You didn't believe it possible Amir could think. 
Royce shrugged and gave a glance at the revelers laughing and dancing, as if they were mad from fever. Don't take it as a slight. I'm usually shocked that anyone can think. But how much harder to accept from me, a mere and a female. You assumed I was incompetent, didn't you? She was right, and such an admission wouldn't have troubled him a year ago. But a year ago, he'd thought he was human. Discovering he was also a mere made it difficult to think that those with mixed blood were inferior. Difficult, but not impossible. The fact that he didn't exhibit elven features allowed Royce to believe his blood was only slightly tainted. This was a weak, impractical argument. But prejudices were a form of fear, and fear was often senseless. Groundless anxieties permitted ludicrous rationalizations. At least they did in the quiet, controlled spaces of his own mind. Such carefully crafted constructions tended to fall apart when facing the reality of a blue-stained mirror who showed no evidence of inferiority. Yes, he admitted. No offense or anger surfaced on her face. Instead, she nodded while maintaining that understanding smile. So, what now? We're waiting on Roland Weiberg. The captain of the city guard is supposed to meet us here. He wasn't at the guardhouse, but I told one of his men that I'd found the Duchess, and he anxiously volunteered to fetch him immediately. I hope he didn't lie or exaggerate. You didn't mention me, did you? No. But would it have been a problem if I did? Mercator sighed. It could. People have a lot of preconceptions about my kind. We're not what you think, you know. We didn't cause the destruction of the Empire. We aren't lazy or stupid, nor are we abominations. We don't carry disease, aren't cannibals, don't steal babies or worship Uberlin. We're the same as everyone else, except more destitute because the rest of society hates us. They keep us dirty and desperate, then condemn us as if we chose our circumstances. The irony is that long ago we were considered superior to humans. I'm guessing you didn't know that. The term mere comes from the word mire, an old speech word that originally meant son of. It was also an honorific, like sir added before the name of a knight. If you put those two things together, you must conclude that we are descended from pretty good stock. It was only after the fall of Meredith, a province of the old empire that was governed by Mir, for Mir, that the term became derogatory. No offense, but all of that contradicts history as I understand it. That's because the history you know is wrong. History isn't truth. You're not too foolish to recognize that, are you? The dancers moved away as acrobats tumbled into the center of the square, encouraged by applause. Men in tight clothes jumped and rolled and climbed onto one another, creating human ladders of various designs. And how do you know your history isn't a lie? Royce asked. Mercata grinned. I'm older than I look. A lot older. 
That's one of the things about Mir. We live a long time. Not so much as elves, I suspect, but longer than humans. My mother lived to be four hundred and fifty. She could remember Glen Morgan and his Second Empire. Age gave her wisdom to conclude that our long life was a gift turned into a curse by a world filled with ignorant hate and bad timing. My grandfather, Sadarshakar Sikara, was born in 2051 and lived for 567 years. Can you imagine that? He remembered the birth of Nevrik, the heir of Novron, and the appointment of Venlin as the Archbishop of Persepluquis. And he witnessed the fall of that grand city. He was in Meritid at the time, a province established for the Maya, who chose not to live with humans. She leaned in, placed her hands to the side of her face, and whispered, Rumor has it the Maya were a bunch of bigots. She laughed as if it was a joke. But Royce couldn't tell if it was ironic or just silly. If you're the descendant of such an esteemed family, why do you look so... Royce hesitated. Kalean? Mercator glanced at her hands and nodded as if she'd expected the question. When Mary did fell to barbarians, Sadarshakar brought his family here to what was then called Alburnia. Few survived, and Sadarshakar took a Kalean woman as his wife. The situation didn't improve, and my mother married a Kalean man. Mercator drew back the shawl off her head and pulled on her nappy hair, which makes me arguably more Kalean than Mir. A highly respected combination, I must say. She laughed again, managing to find humor in every tragedy. Royce could understand that, at least. Fact is, she said, I learned history from someone I trust. My grandfather, who witnessed the events firsthand. That's how I know. Tell me, Royce, is it? How do you know about the history of your people? I actually don't care, Roy said. All of this clearly means a good deal to you, but it doesn't mean anything to me. Doesn't matter whether your version is true or not. I'm here to do a job, not debate ancient history. Now, if you want to talk about something, I'd love to hear where the Duchess is. Mercata shook her head. Sorry, she's the only good card I still hold. But she's safe and unharmed, as this letter attests. I'd like to keep it that way. I've grown to like her. She's different. It was worth asking, Royce said. He gazed out at the plaza once more, trying to decide if he was pleased or irritated with the number of celebrating people. They complicated everything, which was both good and bad. We probably- Royce saw movement, where there shouldn't have been any. The plaza was still a swirl of activity. Dancers spun, acrobats tumbled, jugglers tossed, spectators clapped, and children ran. But overhead, nothing should have moved. Too dark for a bird, too big for a bat, 
Royce looked up at the front of Grumgalamus. The great doors were huge, but dwarfed by the massive bell towers on either side. Above those doors stood a row of sculpted figures of robed men. Then came the oculus of the great rose window. Next, a colonnade of pillars and arches, and above that, and still only halfway up, was a pediment upon which perched a series of gargoyles. What's wrong? Makeda asked, craning her neck, trying to see what he saw. Thought something move. They both spotted it then. The third gargoyle from the left flexed its wings. I'm not from here, Roy said. Is that normal? Of course not. It's- Oh no. The gargoyle's head turned. Like so many others, this figure was monkey-like, with powerful hunched shoulders, the wings and face of a bat, and saber-like fangs. As it looked down at them, Royce noticed that the eyes had been sculpted to look decidedly evil. But he guessed that was how he'd have seen them, regardless of what the artist had carved. Because the gargoyle looked right at him. Royce expected it to shove off the side of the cathedral, spread its wings, and dive. Instead, the beast began to climb down the front of the church, moving awkwardly at first, but gaining balance and skill as it descended, until it moved with monkey speed, leaping from pediment to column. Run! Makata shouted at Royce. Why did you kill Nim? Griswold Dinge asked Hadrian. The dwarf sat across from him in the little room. With Nim dead, Seely preparing for his funeral, Villar gone and Makata off to meet with the duke, the dwarf, the last of the civic leaders, had apparently pulled guard duty. Hadrian was glad Erasmus Nim's widow wasn't there, as he was certain Seton's story didn't absolve him of that accusation. If anything, it cast more doubt and he'd preferred to deal with an angry dwarf rather than a grieving widow. He didn't kill Erasmus, Seaton affirmed faithfully. The three sat cozy and close in the stone cellar, which was littered with rat droppings. Griswold had bound Hadrian's hands behind his back. As an added precaution, he held a naked dagger. His manner wasn't overtly threatening, but the menace was there. She's right. I didn't kill the Calean. Hadrian smiled, but his charm had no effect on the dwarf. Oh, yes. Even though you were right on his heels during your pursuit, someone else came out of nowhere and took his life. Do you expect me to believe that? I honestly have no idea what killed him, Hadrian said. Don't you mean who? Seemed more like a what? All I know he was dead, and his face was gone. It looked like it had been chewed away. I only knew it was him because of the clothing and the box he had been carrying. Didn't seem like a typical murder to me. He didn't kill Nim, Seaton asserted again. And how in the bloody name of all that is holy do you know that? He spared your life, so what? He also butchered a pile of men. You said so. Your own words show he's a killer. No innocent little lamb here. And his story about Nim missing his face is beyond belief. No, it's not, Seaton said. And it's not because he spared my life that I believe him. 
This caught the dwarf's attention, and he turned, revealing a little gold earring piercing his left lobe. Decoration? Mark of a sailor? Wedding gift? Hadrian knew so little about the small folk that he felt not only stupid but ill-equipped to help himself, much less his cause. So, what makes you think he didn't kill Erasmus? Killings where people are mutilated the way he described have happened before, Seaton said. That's the reason the nobles wear blue. The dwarf shook his shaggy head. Bah! The nobles are skittish. The streets are dangerous. Not every person butchered in the alleys is a victim of- I'm not talking about the recent murders. Seaton's voice lowered and grew several degrees more serious. Her eyes supported the shift in tone, growing solemn. Hadrian found it odd to see so much darkness in a face that looked so young. I'm talking about Thrum Hodinel. Griswold squinted his eyes. Who now? Thrum Hodinel. He was the curator of the Imperial Gallery. Some said he was a relation to the Killians, a distant cousin or something. I saw his body the day they found it at the feet of the statue of Glen Morgan, and his face was a mess. They had to identify him by his clothing because- Seaton hesitated, her eyes focusing on Hadrian, as if he knew the answer. Because his face had been chewed off, he answered. Seaton nodded. Actually, it wasn't just his face. A large portion of the man had been eaten. But yes, his face was gone. So were a good number of his bones. Sounds like wolves, Griswold said. Inside the gallery. The dwarf stared at her skeptically. I've never heard this story. It happened before your time. The dwarf tilted his head and studied her more intently. How old are you? She grinned at him. Thrum Hardinel died fifteen years before you were born. This raised the bushy brows of the dwarf. Griswold looked too easily be in his forties, maybe older. Seaton wasn't a teenager, wasn't human. And if what she said was true, she was decades older than Hadrian. Adding these truths to the embarrassing fact that he hadn't initially recognized her, Hadrian realized that while he had misjudged women before, this time marked a whole new level of stupidity. Thrum Hardinel wasn't the only one, Seaton went on. Every few years, someone dies the same way. It's almost always a noble, or someone suspected of being an illegitimate child of one of the old world dukes, usually male, and always within a few miles of Blythen Castle. The murders happen at night or around dusk in a heavy fog, and in every case, the victims are eaten. Some are only eaten a little, others are almost completely devoured, but their face is always gone. You're speaking about the Morgan. Villar told me that was a myth, the dwarf said. Villar doesn't know everything. Where is Villar? Hadrian asked. Don't know. He spoke the words slowly, not looking at either of them. The statement caused the dwarf to frown, 
and his considerable brows knitted the equivalent of a full sweater. Is something wrong? Griswold looked up but didn't answer. Griswold, what aren't you telling us? Seaton asked. Riots are a bloody business. If something went wrong, if our people were in jeopardy, we wanted protection. We needed a backup plan, so we could intercede if necessary. But only if necessary. Is that what the three of you were meeting about? Hadrian asked. For the most part, yes. But I also needed to give Erasmus his supplies. Hadrian nodded. The box. I found it with Erasmus's body. But it only contained some rocks, just gravel. The way he carried it, you'd think it was dangerous. In the hands of a skilled dwarf, dirt, stone, metal, and wood are all dangerous. Adrian felt that rope ought to be included on that list, as his wrists were starting to ache and his hands throbbed. In binding him, the dwarf had exhibited a level of skill that his people were known for when creating stonework or anything mechanical. I don't understand, Seaton said. Of course you don't. How could you? It's old magic. Older even than you. Older than Rochelle. Older than Novron. What are you talking about? Seaton asked. Do you think only Mere hold the claim to ancient secrets? For all your age, our collective history goes back far beyond yours. Before Novron and his empire, before the Mere, before humans, the Belgric-Lungrians lived and thrived. I'm talking about the days when only full elves and dwarves roamed the lands, when Drumondor was the world's greatest forge. There was a time when we had a king, an age of greatness, an age of wonder. They say it was Advari, Burling, and King Midian who did it, but the magic predates even them. It goes back to the gods of the ancient giants, the ones known as Typhons. They were prohibited from having children of their own, according to legend, but they found a way to bring forth life from the earth and stone, a magic they used to create the giants themselves. My people discovered that secret, but because it was outlawed by the gods, it was forbidden. Only once it was attempted, and that was during the War of Elven Aggression, when King Midian saved our people. Elves had used their magic to crush the Tenth and Twelfth Legions on the plains of Mador, and then Midian called on the legendary Andvari Burling, and asked him to crack the forbidden scrolls and to make a weapon that could defeat the elves. Some say Andvari never succeeded. Others claim he did, or that something went terribly wrong. They claim it was his failure, rather than the attack of the elves, that actually defeated the kingdom of Midian and laid waste to Linden Lot. What did King Midian ask this Andvari to make? Seaton asked. The only real magic our people ever had. Which is? Griswold paused a moment. Then a twinkle flickered in his eyes, and he leaned in 
and whispered, A golem, a protector made of stone. No one in the plaza had noticed the gargoyle come to life. All eyes were on the acrobats, the dancers, or the juggler. Mercator nimbly raced through the oblivious crowd. For someone who claimed to be old, the Calean Mir moved as well as the acrobats they dodged. She and Royce ran through the ring of dancers, breaking the chain of clasped hands, causing a disturbance. Like rambunctious children running through an adult party, they turned heads and provoked shouts. Royce was reminded of his youth. Fleeing had been a daily occurrence back when he survived by picking pockets in the squares of Ratabor. Just as wind was a bird's ally, crowds were his. They provided cover as well as opportunity. But just as too much wind could kill a bird, too dense of a crowd could jam him up, lock him in, and give his pursuer the chance to catch up. Being able to read a mass of people, to see the patterns and guess the timing, had made the difference between getting away and losing a hand. Royce was older now, and out of practice, but it didn't take long to rediscover the familiar skills and remember old techniques. Mercator did a fine job of finding and exploiting holes as well. Anticipating openings, she managed to stay out ahead. She looped the fountain, heading for the steps of the gallery. He wasn't sure what her plan was, but then Royce wasn't certain about the extent of the danger. Seeing a gargoyle come to life was disturbing, but the fact that Mercator felt the need to flee was the real worry. Why was something he could ask later. As it turned out, why was answered sooner than expected. People pointed at something behind Royce. Then the screams started, and finally he understood why Mercator was making for the steps of the gallery. The plaza was like a river where a dam had burst upstream. He needed to reach the safety of the bank before the rush of the flood. Whatever the gargoyle was doing, it had caused a panic, and the once happy crowd turned into a mindless mob as people began to push in a frantic attempt to get away. A man bowled over a woman and her daughter, causing him to trip and fall to the ground, where he, too, was stepped on. The juggler and the dancers were consumed in the tidal surge. Royce and Makeda reached the marble steps of the gallery just as the wave burst. She wasted no time running to the big bronze doors. Royce finally saw her plan, and was once more impressed by the level of strategic forethought. And she was a mere. If she knew, she could say the same about me, couldn't she? The gallery wasn't as big as Grom Gallimus, but it was still large and almost entirely made of stone. There weren't any ground floor windows, and its doors opened out. Royce and Makeda would only have a few seconds to get inside. The swell of the crowd fleeing whatever mayhem had ignited their stampede would realize what Mercator had. The gallery was protection from this storm. If Royce and Mercator were inside when that happened, the bottleneck would inhibit the gargoyle. Brilliant. Locked! Mercator pulled angrily on the door. You can open it, right? How'd you know? Royce knelt at the door making a quick study of the lever tumbler mechanism. Anyone expecting a severed finger seems the sort to have a background in theft. 
Royce inserted his curtain pick into the keyhole. Lifting the lever, he popped the latch. Although the process had taken only seconds, the crowd moved faster than Royce had expected. A mass of revelers turned stampeding herd pushed up behind them. Unable to pull the door open wide, the two barely managed to slip in before the pressing weight of the mindless crowd slammed it shut again. Part of Royce's cloak was caught, and he freed himself by ripping it in half. The two looked back at the pair of bronze doors, backing slowly away, listening to the muffled cries of the terrified crowd that grew louder as the seconds passed. The interior of the gallery was tomb-quiet and dark, but Royce knew the building and remembered the room. He'd been there only the night before. This was the rotunda with the murals and paintings, odd artifacts on pedestals, and that big chariot with the stuffed horses yoked to it. The strange beast he'd seen from above, he now saw from level ground. This was the proper viewing position for everything, and from there, the dragon hoisted overhead was suitably terrifying. What is that thing outside? Royce asked. A golem. Makata's eyes remained fixed on the doors as the two backed away. The fear on her face did nothing to convince Royce that they were safe. Dwarven sorcery. Old, deep, evil magic. That thing was a statue a minute ago. What is it now? Still a statue, in a way. It was after us, right? Still is. Can it get in here? Makata looked up at the broken window in the upper colonnade, where the night before Royce had chased Vilar. I think so. Maybe you'd better tell me exactly what a golem is. I hate getting visits from total strangers. Sitting in the chair was aggravating the pain in his arms, so Hadrian switched to the floor, where he could stretch out his legs. Seaton helped him, brushing away a pile of rat pellets. What does ancient dwarven magic have to do with you, Erasmus Nim, and Villar? Griswold reached up and ran fingers under his beard, his lower lip jutting out. He paused there, and Hadrian thought he might not say anything. We doubted our forces would be enough to prevail against the Duke and the city guard. We needed more. We needed what Anvari offered King Midian. I'm guessing that's knowledge you can't pick up just anywhere, Hadrian said. Griswold nodded and addressed Seaton. Do you know about the Night of Terror? That was centuries ago, Seaton said. Griswold scowled at her. And I suppose you were there. Before my time. Even before Mercator's, I think. One cold night, mobs came into Little Town. That's what they called our ghetto back then, and set our houses on fire. Everyone was dragged into the street for a beating. Almost a hundred of my people died on the same night that the rest of the world calls winter tide. Strange way to celebrate the rebirth of the sun, don't you think? In the aftermath, the elders found a way to protect us. At that time, the city was under construction, Gromgalamus only half built. My people did the stonework. Cheap, skilled labor is what we were. 
The archbishop commissioned many sculptures, and we were happy to oblige. Right under his nose, and with his blessing, we created weapons that we could call on in time of need. Griswold smiled. Surely you've seen all the fanciful downspouts and carvings, malevolent faces that spit rainwater out to the streets. Adrian nodded. Those were our creations, every one of them sculpted by my people. We made them fierce and grotesque as a means of embodying what they are, monsters. The archbishop thought they were fanciful. Funny, he called them. What he didn't know was that each one was sculpted ritualistically, and the shards were saved so we could use them when necessary. If the day came when we were threatened again, we could breathe life into these decorations and send them to fight for us. Griswold's glare hardened. The nobles have their soldiers and we have ours. Ours sit upon their perches, high above the city, awaiting the day when all debts will be paid in full. You can be really creepy. You know that? Hadrian asked. What exactly is a golem? Royce asked. Is it alive? Can it be killed? I'm not an expert on dwarven magic, Makata said. But I know golems are sculptures brought to life, creatures that are supposed to retain the characteristics of the material they were made from. This one is made from stone. Royce stared at the bronze doors with their detailed reliefs, nine framed images that told the life story of a grand city. How do you harm stone? Boom. 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 The gallery echoed with the sound of drumming on the doors by what could have been a huge hammer. They both watched as the elegant images were distorted by dents, the metal puckering where it was struck. Mercator and Royce backed up. Can't burn it, doesn't have any blood, so slitting its throat is useless. Pretty much nothing sharp will be helpful. Royce was thinking out loud as he scanned the chamber for a weapon. What is this place? The Imperial Gallery, Makato said, bumping into a bust of a balding man. The sculpture toppled, fell, and shattered on the marble floor. She stared aghast at the ruined artwork. The noble houses brought a lot of this stuff with them after the fall of Persepliquis. They keep the best pieces in their homes, and the rest is displayed here. I don't suppose there's an ancient weapon around that kills stone gargoyles. Mercator flashed him a scowl that he guessed had more to do with the beating on the door than his poor attempt at humor. Hadrian would have appreciated it. Royce found a pair of hammers set on a display pedestal, one large, one small, both old and crude. He felt the weight of the heavy one, thinking it might be useful. Why is it after us? Makata stared at the door. It's being controlled by Vilar. How do you know? He's one of the few people who know how. Erasmus Niem is dead, and Griswold is busy guarding your friend. It has to be Vilar. 
So what does he want with us? I don't know. Her eyes darted back and forth in thought. Then they widened. Wait. You said no list of demands was found in the carriage. No one but you appears to know anything about a list. Mercata placed a cupped hand over her mouth in disbelief. The list wasn't overlooked or blown away. He never left it. Everything makes sense now. Villar didn't kidnap the Duchess to seek concessions. He never wanted a peaceful solution. He was only placating me, pretending. And now... The bronze door ruptured. A stone fist punched through. Claws reached in and began ripping the hole wider. The metal screeched as it tore. Mercator stuffed Jenny's note into Royce's hand. Take this to the Duke. What are you going to do? She looked back at the doors, and Royce couldn't tell if she was scared or angry. Both, maybe. Stop him, I hope. He's driving that thing, running it like a puppet. He can hear and see through it, so I can talk to him, reason with him. The golem pushed in farther, and Royce dropped the hammer and sprinted for the stairs. The extra weight would only slow him down, and speed was what he needed now. He took the steps three at a time. Four flights up, he glanced back. Mercator remained in the middle of the main room next to a statue whose plaque read, Glen Morgan the Great. The gargoyle had opened the hole to the size of a window, and it was pulling its body through, emerging like some hideous insect splitting a pupa sack. Filar, Mercator shouted. She had both hands up, palms out. Stop! You don't have to do this. I've talked to the Duchess. She's on our side and wants to help. The creature appeared to be listening, or maybe it was merely having trouble getting through the ragged opening it had made. The bronze had left deep scratches across its stony skin. I know you want your war, Vilar. You think it's the only way, but it isn't. Jenny can get the Duke to change the laws, and they will force the guilds to change their rules. The Duchess was already working on it. The very night you kidnapped her, she was on her way back from- Mercator stopped. Oh, my Lord Farrell. She staggered, as if from a blow. You knew, didn't you? You knew all along that she was working on a solution. That's why you did it. You wanted to stop her. You needed to stop her. The gargoyle cleared the door. Using its feet and the knuckles of its hands, the thing scrambled monkey-like across the room. It slowed down as it neared her. Mercata shook her head in disbelief. Filar. How could you? The golem hesitated for a moment, and Royce thought she had a chance. Then the thing sank both sets of claws into her body. Royce was no stranger to violence. He'd seen, he'd performed, brutalities that many would label gruesome, even sick. He was as used to bloodletting as a butcher, and yet what he witnessed in that artifact-filled chamber unsettled him. It didn't so much vivisect Mercator as tear her open like a cloth bag with poor stitching.
Royce heard muscles shred, and her bones make a greenwood splinter sound. The Calean Mir, whom Royce had only begun to know, and thought he might like, died in an explosion of blood that splattered the statue of Glenmorgan and stained the perfect marble floor. The gargoyle showed fangs and pointed teeth, grinning its delight. Then, as tears of blood ran down stone skin, that grotesque monkey face tilted up. No more encouragement was required. Royce resumed his rapid climb. The window on the top floor was his goal, his exit, the broken one Vilar had shattered the night before. Reaching the top floor, Royce once more spotted the suit of armor standing against the wall, still holding its long spear. Behind him, the gargoyle was climbing the steps. Royce listened to the crack of stone on marble, as if someone were clapping rocks together. Glass from the window still lay on the floor. Outside was the wall, the leap to the cathedral, and a trip across rooftops that Royce had made once already. Except this time, he would be the prey, the one who would slide down slate shingles and fall into the river. Maybe he, too, would survive. No, that sort of thing happens to other people, not me. He wasn't Vilar, and he wasn't competing with Amir. With Royce's luck, the thing would embrace him in a bear hug, they'd hit the river, and he'd be dragged to the bottom. Supposed to retain the characteristics of the material they were made from. Remembering what had happened to the bust that Mercator had knocked off its pedestal, he grabbed the spear. Jerking it free of the armor, he positioned himself near the balcony's railing. Hope this works, he thought, even though he suspected it wouldn't. I still have the window, he consoled himself, if I survive that long. Royce held the spear low, not in front, not braced against himself, just at his side. He didn't want to slam the beast head on. Royce was certain if he tried that, the gargoyle would splinter the spear, or more likely drive it from his hands. He didn't want to stab the thing. He wanted to do what Hadrian had once achieved when facing an indestructible foe. Worked once, might work again. But theory and reality were often distant relatives. After seeing what the golem had done to Makeda, Royce was less than confident. Watching a person being torn apart had that effect. I don't have Hadrian's luck. The gargoyle's head rose above the steps as it climbed. Its wings spread wide like the hood of a snake before a strike. It spotted Royce, and its eyes widened, the mouth displaying more teeth. Stone teeth. Stone face. Every inch of it was craggy and coarse and covered in rivulets of blood. The creature broke into a charge. The spear didn't give the monster the slightest pause. It didn't try to dodge, didn't shift or slow. The gargoyle appeared bemused, even joyful. Royce couldn't have had a more accommodating enemy, and imagined the golem felt the same way. As they came together, Royce planted his rear leg and held tight to the pole. Then, as they collided, he gave ground to prevent the gargoyle from jarring the spear from his hands. The impact was, nonetheless, powerful, and the tip broke. 
Royce fell back, dodging to one side while pushing against the stone beast, acting as a lever instead of an impediment. The golem's course altered, only two feet to one side, but it was enough. Shoved off balance, all its weight slammed into the balcony's railing. A man would have hit the balustrade and slid or bounced off. Supposed to retain the characteristics of the material they were made from. It may have wings, but stone can't fly. The heavy body of the charging gargoyle shattered the rail, and over the edge it went, crashing through the suspended body of the dragon, shattering the whole exhibit and sending it all to the floor four stories below. A bang, deep and solid, echoed off the walls, bouncing back and forth twice. Shatter, you miserable figurine! This half-thought, half-wish, filled Royce's mind as he peered over the edge. He hoped to see a burst of plaster, as when Mercator had overturned the bust. Four stories down lay a mess of broken dragon parts and the torn body of Mercator, her blood draining through a large crack in the checkered marble floor that marked the impact crater of the golem. The gargoyle hadn't been pulverized. The creature was on its knees in the center of the cracked floor. No, not Hadrian's kind of luck. Royce then noticed that the golem hadn't escaped unscathed. Part of it was missing. Its left arm lay on the floor a few feet away. The gargoyle looked at it mournfully. Then the fanged monkey face once more fixed its stare on Royce. This time it added a hiss. Great, I've made it angry. Well, angrier. The golem ran for the stairs, and Royce raced for the window. Already knowing the route was his one comfort. The map was still engraved in his mind, which allowed Royce to move with speed and confidence. Poking his head out, he saw the street below. The avenue throbbed with a mass of people, some of whom wore uniforms and held torches. Bodies lay in a line, marking the golem's path to the gallery. Ducking past the remaining broken shards and out the window, Royce climbed up the wall. He wished he'd brought his hand claws, but he hadn't had them the last time and had managed just fine. But I was the hunter then. Being the prey is a different matter. Royce had been chased before. He never cared for it, and usually the hunt ended when he managed to gain enough distance to turn around unseen and don the role of huntsman once more. That wasn't going to happen this time. How do you harm stone? He'd broken its arm by dropping it from a height. Perhaps taking a tumble from higher up? Reaching the roof of the gallery, he looked back. Nothing but a single sheer curtain fluttered, blowing out through the broken window by an errant wind. Is it possible the thing lost interest? The answer came when the window's remnants burst outward and fell, along with portions of the frame and a few stones of the wall. More screams erupted below. Arms went up, fingers pointed, men shouted, Up there! There it is! The gargoyle wasn't as nimble as it had been when descending the cathedral. Climbing was clearly harder to manage with only one arm. Brute force now replaced grace. 
it fearlessly launched itself up from the sill, one clawed hand creating its own handhold, gouging out mortar like soft dirt. Rear claws did the same, then punched up again, stone muscles propelling at amazing distances in single thrusts. Royce didn't like the ease with which it followed, nor the power it displayed. Mercator's death remained fresh in his mind, and he didn't want to be anywhere near those claws. Taking a cue from the previous night, he pulled slate shingles free and threw, hoping he might make the golem fall. Royce's aim was better than Villar's, and he struck the beast three times, once in the head, twice in the body. The slates shattered. The gargoyle didn't notice. How am I going to make it fall again? The question was pushed aside as he realized it didn't matter. Not yet. He needed to get higher. Royce resumed his flight. Running out along the gable, he jumped the gap between the gallery and Gromgalamus, landing on a stony lion's head. Below him, he heard the crowd cheer with excitement. As he scaled the cathedral's pier, Royce realized how futile the effort was. Even if he got away from the golem, reached the duke, somehow convinced him his wife was alive, and persuaded the man to concede to Mercator's demands, Hadrian might still die. The issue of Nim's death hadn't yet been addressed. If Hadrian's luck provided him the means to slip free of that noose, Royce just might kill him anyway. They were up six stories now. Is that enough? No, I need to go higher. After Royce reached the flying buttress, obtaining additional height was no longer an issue. He ran up its angled length, and the world below dropped away as he climbed several stories as quickly as ascending stairs. Reaching the high balcony just below the cathedral's eaves, Royce saw it as a death trap. Too narrow to pull another spear stunt, even if he had one. Up there, the golem would have all the advantage. Facing the thing on the steep roof of Gromgalamus wasn't to Royce's liking. The peak was equally dangerous for both. The battle odds would be even. Each had a good chance of falling. Royce was never pleased with a fair fight. But fair was better than certain death. They were about 250 feet up, and he guessed his odds of surviving a fall assuming he could hit the water, were one in a hundred. Villar had managed it. Hadrian could probably pull it off as well, but I don't have his kind of luck. Royce saw it as a last resort. Reaching up, he grabbed the eaves, scowling at the row of gargoyle faces that glared down at him. Each one, he now realized, was grinning. I really hate these things. Royce was breathing hard, his clothes stuck to his skin, and as he pulled himself up, he realized his muscles were weakening. Stone, he guessed, doesn't get tired. As he reached the roof, the wind greeted him with a familiar blast of cold air. He replied with a grunt and a scowl, as he was forced to remember that spring, while very near, hadn't yet arrived. The chill sent a shiver through him and whipped what was left of his cloak over his shoulder. Below, he spotted the golem racing up the buttress, wings extended like an acrobat's balancing pole. 
When crouched and seen at a distance on the walls of buildings, gargoyles appeared small. Up close, the creature was eight feet tall. This isn't going to end well. Royce shimmied up the ribs to the fence-like peak of the roof, where he would make his last stand. His options were limited. He could try to climb the bell tower, as Villar had considered doing, but there was no more benefit in it now than before. He could climb down the other side of the cathedral and hope the golem would follow and fall the way Villar had. Already tired, Royce knew if anyone fell, it would most likely be him. Each step inched him toward exhaustion, while the gargoyle showed no sign of weakening. The thing lost its arm. If I lost one after falling four stories, I'd quit. It hasn't even slowed down. Royce had to make a move while he still had the strength. The golem was one-handed now, and needed both feet to stand on the roof. So it couldn't rip him apart as it had Mercator. The thing would have to resort to slashing, biting, or crushing. But without a spear, without a weapon, fighting the golem would be suicide, except... Royce pulled Alverstone from the folds of his cloak. Moonlight gave its blade a luminosity that was pleasantly eerie. Royce had few possessions. The dagger was his most prized, for two reasons. The first was that it had been a gift from a man who'd shown him kindness and saved his life. The only one to do so. Until Hadrian acted the fool on the crown tower. The second was that the blade was remarkable. He had no idea how it had been created. The weapon had somehow been forged in secret in that infernal pit that was the Menzant prison and salt mine. The one good thing to come out of there? No, Royce corrected himself. Not the only good thing. The dagger wasn't the real gift he'd received. It was but a symbol, the embodiment of something more. The gleeful, thieving assassin who entered that salt mine wasn't the same as the one who'd crawled out. As Royce straddled the peak of Gromgalamus, waiting for the arrival of the golem, what he held in his hand wasn't a dagger. It was what it always had been. Hope. He didn't wait long. The gargoyle leapt onto the roof and once more grinned with delight to find his prey waiting. With his other hand holding onto the decorative iron fins along the roof's peak, Royce braced in a crouch, facing into the howling wind. Is this the craziest, stupidest thing I've ever done? That this was even a question made him suspect the idiocy of his past life choices. Using the stone claws on its feet, the gargoyle pinched into the slate, creating firm footholds as it walked up the steep slope. A gust of wind hit its wings, staggering and nearly toppling the beast, but the creature folded them away and continued its climb. This is what Villar had seen last night, an unstoppable predator. Irony. Oh, how I hate thee. Royce maintained his perch along the line of the peak. When the first attack came, a wide swipe from the remaining arm, he shuffled back along the length. All this did was grant the gargoyle room to take position on the ridgeline with him, 
With only one arm, the golem couldn't both attack and hold on to the fins. Still, it had claws on its feet and, of course, fangs. Royce couldn't forget the fangs. Makata's blood was already drying, aided by the brisk wind. An ever-present, sinisterly sculpted smile revealed zigzagging teeth as pointed as spear tips. The invention of an artist with a sick mind and no concern for realism. The gargoyle moved forward with the confidence Royce lacked. Facing the monster, guarding from attacks, Royce shuffled backward blindly, knowing he would eventually run out of roof and do so without warning. He was a sailor walking a plank backward. Royce dodged a swipe from the golem's foot. In the process, he backed up too far and found the end of the roof. He fell, catching himself by grabbing the decorative ironwork. The golem pressed the advantage, rushing forward. With Royce dangling and nearly helpless, the sensible thing for the golem to do would have been to crush his hand and let him fall. Instead, it grabbed his wrist and jerked him up. The golem's grip on his wrist was exactly what Royce expected, vice-strong and cold. This was the end of the fight. But while the golem had but one arm, Royce had two. As the golem jerked Royce up, it had no defense, likely didn't feel a need for it. How do you harm stone? The golem had no reason to fear a delicate dagger. Royce had slim hope himself, despite knowing the weapon was endowed with an extraordinary blade that cut wood like hot iron cut wax. Once, it had even cut a link of iron chain. Alverstone was hope in the face of despair, and Royce hoped very hard as he jabbed at the gargoyle's chest. Rather than turn, deflect, or snap, as it should have, the dagger's blade punctured the stone, not deep. It didn't have the opportunity. The golem screamed, recoiled, and in that instant of shock, the heavy stone creature was thrown off balance. Falling from its precarious perch, the golem let go of Royce in the hope of grabbing support. Released from bondage, Royce fell. He hit the roof's surface, started his slide, and, without thought, used Alverstone the way he so often used his hand claws. Royce stabbed into the slate with the blade. It penetrated, caught, and held, leaving Royce hanging from the dagger as beside him, the golem tumbled. The gargoyle's weight worked against it. It managed to grab an edge, but tore it free. The one-time statue fell, rolled, and picked up the sort of speed one expects from a rock rolling down a steep roof. It bounced, jumped, and finally fell, this time on the plaza side. The gargoyle's wings spread, but stone wings did nothing to slow its fall. Royce didn't see the impact. The edge of the roof blocked the climax. He heard it, a loud crack. Screams and shouts followed. They were short-lived, the sort that came from the surprise of a falling stone, rather than the fear of a living golem. Chapter 21
the Duke. The bronze doors of the Imperial Gallery, one with a massive hole torn in it, were open by the time Royce reached the street. A skittish crowd remained in the plaza, and given the way they scuttled back at his approach, they had watched his upper-story jiggery-pokery. That was most certainly what Evelyn would have made of his chase across the rooftops, if she'd been in the crowd. Royce considered for a moment whether she'd been one of those people the gargoyle had injured in its murderous march across the plaza. No one would have fared well before the golem's onslaught, but an old woman would lack any ability to get out of the way. His teeth clenched in anger. He didn't know why. He hated that old woman. He took a breath before entering the gallery. And then another. He'd just survived a race with a golem, and felt he deserved to take a moment. His back was sore, and his wrist ached where the stone monster had held onto it. But at least it wasn't broken. Not exactly Hadrian's luck, but better than his normal lot. Few spectators had found the courage to venture inside. Those who did hugged the wall nearest the exit. A handful of men dressed in the uniform of the Duke's city guard made a semicircle around the bloody mess in the middle of the rotunda. Most stood awkwardly, shifting their weight, unsure where to look or what to do. Three others pulled back the broken remains of the fallen dragon, revealing the extent of the gore. Everything within twenty feet of Makato's body wept blood. The remains bore as little resemblance to a once-living person as did a slab of bacon. A young man, in a crisp new set of clothing, clapped both hands over his mouth. When that didn't work, he ran for the door, brushing past Royce in his dash to the street. As a general rule, Royce disliked everyone. Strangers began at a deficit that required they'd prove their worth just to be seen as neutral. Makata had jumped that bar in record time. And a mere to boot, he thought. How remarkable is that? Royce couldn't help feeling he'd blindly brushed past greatness. An opportunity had been lost. A treasure squandered. That was how he framed it in his head as an abstract business failure. But looking at Mercator's blood and the blue-stained lumps of meat that had once been the most remarkable mere he'd ever known, Royce clenched his fists. A shriveled-up biddy, and now a mere. I'm becoming soft. This is all Hadrian's fault. You there, one of the guards shouted. Grab him. Not twice in one night, Royce thought as he took a step back, dipping into a crouch. The guard wasn't a fool. He recognized the body language, which must have looked like a badger raising its fur, teeth bared. The man didn't rush him. Neither did anyone else. Instead, the guards fanned out. Royce heard movement behind him. Turning, he found himself face to face with Roland Weiberg, just coming in through the torn bronze door. Well, it's about time, Roy said. Come on, we gotta go. Go? What are you talking about? Where's Hadrian? Roland asked, puzzled. 
He looked at the hole in the door, then at the bloody mess in the center of the room. What in Novron's name happened here? I saw this man running across the rooftops, chased by... The guard faltered. Chased by whom? Roland asked. His stare extended to everyone in the room, finally settling on Royce. Not a who, a what, Royce replied. One of the stone gargoyles from the walls of Grom Gallimus. A gargoyle? Roland asked, pronouncing the word with distinct incredulity. Royce nodded. A stone statue, normally content to sit on a ledge outside the cathedral, decided to climb down. It took a particular dislike to myself and... His eyes tracked to the blood pool. Amir named Makata Sikara. Roland stared. He opened his mouth. It hung there for a moment. Then he closed it again, his eyes shifting helplessly. I... I don't know what to make of that. Luckily, I do, Royce said. He pulled out two parchments. Here, this one's for you. It's from Hadrian, explaining why you need to take me and Mercator to the Duke and insist on an audience. Although, now we'll have to settle for just me. And the other? Roland pointed at the parchment but made no attempt to take it. This guy's a lot smarter than I gave him credit for. And that's good because whether either of us likes it or not, we're about to become a team. This? Royce held up the letter from Jenny Winter. If we're lucky, it's a weapon we can use to prevent a slaughter tomorrow. Roland continued to look puzzled. Then realization dawned. The Feast of Nobles? Exactly. We need to see the Duke. Right now. Governor's Isle was an odd name for the ancestral residence of dukes, but Royce guessed it had something to do with all that gibberish Evelyn had blathered on about. The place didn't look anything like a ducal castle. The estate had the typical ugly wall surrounding the grounds, but it appeared out of place, newer and more slapdash than anything inside, all of which was extraordinarily precise. Brick paths wound through open lawns and alongside trimmed hedges. One led through a small orchard and garden to a stable, a coach house, barracks, and a kitchen built separate from the main structure, all constructed from a smooth rock with no visible mortar. The estate itself was a rambling country home built of the same precisely cut stone, something the elite of Colnora might have referred to as a grand villa. The house was three stories high, with gables and a centered portico, complete with stone pillars. Royce counted five chimneys and twenty-nine glass windows facing front, including a round one set at the portico's peak. At the very top, the ducal flag flew just below the colors of Alburn. The entry path formed a circle before the front doors, and fine gravel lined a neatly edged lawn well-trimmed hedges, and early purple flowers that Royce couldn't identify. The style was relaxed, opulent, and open, nothing like the homes of Western nobles, which skewed toward the dull and solid, with an emphasis on solid. In places like Warwick and Melengar, 
a duke's residence was barely discernible from a stronghold. Even successful knights lived in grey stone citadels with narrow, glassless openings. But this place... If the wall was a relatively recent addition, Royce struggled to imagine how the Dukes of Rochelle could have lived in an open, defenseless house. The idea was both incredible and unfathomable. The lack of walls suggests an absence of enemies. But no ruler fits that description. Had the ancient governors been so ruthless that sheer terror replaced the need for walls? Perhaps in place of stone battlements, they had encircled the island with posts laden with corpses. Or, an odd, alien thought popped into Royce's head, one that was as unlikely as his walking alongside the captain of the guard into a ducal estate. Could there have been no need for walls, because it was a more virtuous world? The sort of place where Hadrian would have fit in, Royce pondered all this as he walked past the yellow-flowering forsythia bushes, listening to his feet crush the gravel. Hadrian was one of those people born too late. And I? Am I born too early? Royce wasn't surprised that obtaining an audience in the dead of night was difficult, even for the captain of the Duke's guard. Weiberg had to browbeat the soldiers at the gate, who complained about his lack of an appointment. At the front doors, Roland had to remind the pair of men about his rank in order to gain entry to the foyer. Looking up, Royce spotted an open third-story window. He could have already entered the Duke's bedroom by then, though the meeting might not have been as cordial with that approach. Inside, the estate continued to impress. The Duke's foyer was ballroom-sized, and decorated with sculptures and paintings instead of swords and shields, the normal ornaments for any serious lord intent on projecting a sense of power. Royce was genuinely impressed by some of the art. When he'd visited such places in the past, the homes were always dark, and he was in too much of a hurry to notice the furnishings. The place was elegant, but he wouldn't want to live there. The residences of the rich always felt cold. Duke Leopold does not meet with his soldiers in the middle of the night, said the Duke's Chamberlain, a portly, balding man who displayed a well-worn frown beneath a neat mustache. While unarmed and unimposing, he was proving to be a worthier adversary than the gate or door guards. With thumbs hooked on the breast of his robe, chest thrust out, he stood blocking the way. We have a hierarchy to handle problems. Exactly, and I'm captain of the guard, Weiberg declared. But did his grace request an audience? No, this is an emergency. The Chamberlain's frown deepened. Aren't you supposed to handle emergencies? Why does the Duke have you in charge, if not to provide him the luxury of sleeping at night? As you can see, the sun is down. We don't bother him with trifles when he is sleeping. Trifles? Roland burst out. I just said, tut, tut. The Chamberlain placed the palms of his hands together, then tilted the tips of his pressed fingers toward Roland. 
This is what you will do. Tomorrow morning, and not too early, you can come and make an appointment to speak to the ducal clerk. Given the feast, I'm sure he'll be too busy to receive you, but if it truly is an emergency, he looked at Weiberg skeptically, he'll get you in to see the duke's secretary. He will evaluate your request and determine if it warrants an audience. If it does, your request will be passed on to the Ducal Council of Attendants, which will review his lordship's itinerary and try and find time in the schedule for you. Now, doesn't that sound like a better way to go about this? I'm sure whatever the problem is, you can manage it for a while. This can't wait, Roland exploded. Royce stayed out of the confrontation. He had entered behind the captain, acting as Roland's shadow, and soundlessly moved about the foyer, feigning interest in the art. With all of Weiberg's outbursts, the Chamberlain only gave Royce a cursory glance, then ignored him altogether. Royce inched behind the Chamberlain, slipping beyond his peripheral vision. Spotting a painting of a stag in a river valley, Royce moved toward it. While it wasn't the best art in the room, it was near the corridor. Moving over, he leaned in to inspect it further. I must see the Duke tonight, Weiberg shouted, and thrust his arms out in a rage. You have no idea what's going on. If I don't, calm yourself, the Chamberlain snapped, throwing up his hands and cringing as if he felt Weiberg was about to attack. Royce took that opportunity to slip into the unguarded hallway. Wood paneling, tiled floors, and an arched ceiling complete with painted designs in the ducal colors greeted Royce as he trotted down the corridor, moving fast, far faster than if he were burgling. It felt odd. This was wholly without precedent, and Royce wasn't certain how to proceed. What do I do if I spook a servant, or worse? A guard. He guessed his normal solution might not be the best choice in this instance. He was there to talk to the Duke, not kill him or his servants. He was acting blind. Moving boldly through a lit house, unannounced and unwanted, was strange when doing so with none of the normal tools he used in such situations. This is more like something Hadrian would do. The man is becoming a serious liability. As he searched the vast estate for clues to the Duke's whereabouts, Royce reviewed the pros and cons of continuing his partnership with a man who didn't seem to live in the same world. He genuinely liked Hadrian, although at that moment he wasn't able to bring to mind a single reason why. But is liking something a good enough reason to offset the risks? I like Montemorsi wine but too much will kill me. The more he thought about it, the more similarities he found between them. They both impede my ability to think sensibly, resulting in bad judgments, and too much of either gives me headaches. Still, the best argument was also the worst. Hadrian was wrong. I do have a unicorn in my world, and the damn thing goes by the name of Hadrian Blackwater. He's a mythical beast, impossible to believe in, even when he's right in front of me. Royce had never had the need to believe in anything before.
but that was the effect of the unicorn on a mortal man. It made him consider things he thought impossible. Because if unicorns were possible, what else might be? In that way, Hadrian was less like Montemorsi and more like Alverstone. Perhaps that was why Royce could never throw either of them away. Finding another stair, Royce took it, guessing the Duke slept on the highest floor. Reaching the top, he found the residence to be more inviting. Deeply stained wood and tapestries softened the hard edges. Small tables topped with bouquet-filled vases added a dash of personality through spring blossoms. Expansive windows framed with thick green drapes invited moonlight in and made the house feel more like a home. A three-story one with a footprint the size of a large island and filled with priceless art. Royce passed an open door and spotted a chambermaid turning down a bed. She didn't see him, and Royce slipped quickly past. A boy in a white tunic who carried a tray of porcelain cups and plates did see him, but the lad didn't say a word, just walked right past. I've been doing it all wrong, Royce thought. Apparently, I can saunter into any mansion, lift what I like, and stroll right back out. He looked at the corridor of closed doors and considered his next move. Should I knock? The idea felt absurd. Royce heard a noise behind him and spun to find the chambermaid stepping out, holding a pile of white linens. She, too, saw him. He was certain she had, but the maid, like the boy, didn't raise her eyes to the level of his face. As she turned to leave, Royce had an insane idea. It was the sort of crazy notion that Hadrian would propose. Excuse me, Royce said, feeling ridiculous. Where might I find the Duke? As soon as he said it, Royce knew he'd made a mistake. He wasn't Hadrian, and such things only worked for him. Maybe if I was wearing polka dots. I believe his lordship is in the library, sir, the maid replied. He's having trouble sleeping again, sir. Royce stared at the woman, dumbfounded. Apparently, mistaking his bewilderment for an unfamiliarity with the estate, she added, Around the corner, first door on the left, sir. Ah, uh, thank you, he replied. She nodded and walked off with her armload of sheets. What sort of place is this? Yes, please. Right this way, sir. The Duke is right in here. Have at him, sir. Slit his throat. Would you like tea with that? Royce shook his head while watching her vanish down the steps, then remembered why he was there. The door to the library was open, and Royce walked in. What wasn't windows was bookshelves, though there weren't many actual books. Most of the shelves were filled with painted plates, potted plants, intricately carved boxes, models of sailing ships, and even skeletons or stuffed figures of small animals set in poses. A large map hung from the ceiling above the fireplace's hearth, where a meager fire half-heartedly burned. The Duke stood at one of the windows, looking out at the night sky. He was a balding, plump man 
the sort that might have been strong and stocky in his youth, but years and wealth had transformed him. He was barefoot, wearing only a long nightshirt that exposed the gray hairs on his calves. My lord, Royce ventured, trying his best not to sound like a thief. The duke failed to react and continued to stare out the window. Royce inched forward, as if sneaking up on a skittish rabbit that might bolt. Duke Leopold, the man turned. Oh, he said. I see. He nodded some understanding that eluded Royce. Perhaps he thought he was there to retrieve dishes or turn down the bed. The duke lifted a decanter filled with an amber liquid and poured some into a crystal glass. He held up the decanter in offering. Royce shook his head. Do you mind if I... He didn't wait for approval and drank, then took a deep breath. I'm ready. For what? Royce asked. You're here to kill me, right? Royce was stunned. You look surprised. I, ah, uh, what else could you possibly be doing in my residence unannounced this late at night, just before the crowning? And your cloak and hood, well, it just screams killer. At least someone is awake in here. That's what separates the duke from the chambermaids, paranoia. Not going to get any complaints out of me, Leo said. Honestly, you're doing me a favor. I'm not here to kill you. The duke looked over with an expression that could only be described as annoyed. No? No. That's disappointing. He turned. So, who the blazes are you then? And why are you here? Footfalls rushed up the steps. Royce pulled the parchment from his belt and held it out. A moment later, soldiers burst into the library. They would have to wait. To give you this. The duke stared at the parchment, puzzled. What is it? A letter, Royce said, as a guard stepped toward him. From your wife. He waited in what they called the parlor, but Royce saw it as just another overly polished medium-sized room with too much art and too few chairs. He was left to himself. No guards watched. The door was open, and he hadn't been shackled or tied. No one had even tried. This was a good thing for everyone involved. After reading the letter, the Duke had ordered his thugs to let Royce go. Then, Leo Hargrave had merely asked him to wait. Royce appreciated that it hadn't been an order. He'd actually used the word, please. Nevertheless, waiting wasn't something Royce was fond of especially as the night was short, and there was so much left to do if Hadrian was to be extricated from the pickle barrel he'd jumped into. Roland had been ordered to wait as well, but then he was called up for questioning, leaving Royce alone. That had been some time ago. The estate had many paintings. In that room alone, there were eight. Only one caught his eye, the portrait of a man who was unmistakably Leopold. The work was exquisite, and Royce felt uneasy.
as if the painting were an actual person in the room with him. The sensation was so pronounced that he went over to inspect it. His eye caught the artist's signature. Sherwood Stowe. Should have known. Royce had no idea what Weiberg was telling the Duke, and that made him uneasy. Just being in an expensively appointed room filled with carvings of elephants and deer, not to mention a silver tea set, made him jumpy. He didn't stay in places of this sort, but he did often visit, and he couldn't help noticing how easily the carvings would fit under his cloak or avoid calculating what a small fortune they would bring on the black market. The room was chilly, despite the fireplace, because no one had bothered to light it. This left Royce sitting on the velvet and wood chair, feeling the cold seep in and wondering why he was still there. He thought I was here to kill him. If this job had turned out the way I had expected, I would have been. Royce pictured two different paths running side by side, so close, yet so different. He'd come to Rochelle to kill Leopold. That's what Gabriel Winter had wanted. Make that goddamn duke and all those working for him bleed. Turn the Roche River red for me. For me and my Jenny. Royce had arrived on that road, but somehow he'd gotten off it. Now he was on another path, but the duke had assumed he was still on the first. Royce felt as if he'd performed sleight of hand, so subtly that the world itself had been duped. I was duped too. Even as he sat in that cold, empty room, he could see himself on the other path. I would have stood behind the duke as he stared at the stars and slit his throat, careful to catch his glass so it didn't shatter. That reality feels more authentic than this one. That's what I should have done. That's what I was supposed to do. Royce found it surreal that he should be standing beside that path, looking down and seeing a history that didn't happen. His trajectory had altered course, just a smidge, a tiny tilt. But it was enough to change events from bloodbath to letter delivery. Were you expecting a finger? Royce had been expecting a whole lot of fingers, and even more heads. Instead, he sat in a luxurious room, waiting on the ruler of the city to... He had no idea. That was the problem with this new path. Royce didn't know where it went. He'd never gone this way before. Just as he was deciding that waiting on a duke was about as smart as listening to Hadrian, the duke showed up. The man was dressed but not in the finery Royce would have expected for a ruling noble. Wearing a crisp shirt, waistcoat, and casual trousers, he looked more like a modest merchant. He was followed by a half-dozen men who were better dressed but appeared worse for wear. Whereas they looked as if they had just woken up, Leo Hargrave beamed as if born again. Bright and smiling, he strode up to Royce and nodded. So. Old man Winter hired you, Leopold said, and studied Royce's face for his reaction. Royce didn't give one. He hates me, you know. You're in the Black Diamond, right? 
Royce remained silent, his sight shifting briefly as Roland entered. For better or worse, Weiberg was his advocate, his lifeline out of this, and it was reassuring to see he was still there. This way, when the bastard betrayed him, Royce wouldn't need to hunt him down to slit his throat. Doesn't matter, the Duke said, and then chuckled. And you can relax. Right now, you're my best friend, and I owe you. Leo shivered. Why is it so cold in here? Did they leave you so ill-attended? Idiots. The man scowled, then lifted the parchment in his hand, grasping it as gently as if it were a newborn. My Jenny is alive. She won't be if you don't. I know, Leo said. It was all in the letter. Grant the dwarves the right to work. Give the Calaeans the right to trade. Bestow on the mere the right to exist. Not something I can simply change overnight. Guilds are powerful things. But Jenny... He shook the letter again. Never a dull moment with her around, and never a moment's peace. The woman was already working toward those ends. She was fixing the problem that is Rochelle. She's a businesswoman, you see. Rochelle is a horrible tangle. This city is choked with regulations and procedures, layers upon layers of protocol, and ages steeped in narrow-minded intolerance. She doesn't know anything about such things, had no idea of the impossibility of the task. That's the way with her, you know. Don't ever tell that woman she can't do something. She'll take it as a challenge. In this case, she came up with a plan where the existing members of the merchant and trade guilds will receive a percentage of the money earned by the Calaeans and dwarves. She also indicated that if they refused, I should raise taxes on trade goods. Nothing speaks to businessmen like money or someone threatening theirs. And as it turns out, the daughter of a Colnora merchant baron is fluent in such matters. She was getting close to an agreement, but then she disappeared. I need to get back, Roy said. I need to bring proof you're planning to do something. Yes, I know. Jenny mentioned an uprising. Lovely handwriting. He grinned. She has these pudgy little hands, but her penmanship is beautiful. Years of keeping books, she told me. What proof can we provide? Royce pressed. The Duke gestured at his companions. These gentlemen are leaders of the city's merchant and trade guilds, the ones Jenny met with. They are quite eager to assist, especially after I explained that if my wife dies, I'll charge them as complicit in the murder and execute every last one of them. Leo focused on the sleepy men and glared. The king will condemn the murder of prominent merchants, one of the men said. What king? The man looked uncomfortable. Don't worry, Leo smiled. I will definitely hold a trial immediately following your deaths in order to get to the bottom of this conspiracy. And while we are doing that, you can voice your concern to his late majesty, King Reinhold, when you see him. I like this guy, Royce thought. 
Guess we'd better get going. Captain Weiberg will go with you. Good luck. Royce, is it? He sighed and nodded. Royce, the Duke said to himself, as a curious, thoughtful look came over him. I've heard that name before. Let's go, Royce told Roland, and quickly headed for the door. He didn't want to discover what revelations the Duke had uncovered. Chapter 22 The Morning After With nothing else to do, Hadrian had fallen asleep. He woke to the first light of dawn spilling down the wooden steps from the shack above. The three of them were still huddled in the stone cellar. Griswold sat where he'd always been, hunched up with knees high, his long beard pooling on his lap, demonstrating the patience and unruffled composure of a rock. He still had the dagger, out and ready. Seaton had curled up beside Hadrian, using him as a pillow, her hair creating a pool of blonde across his lap. He guessed she'd done it for warmth, or perhaps as a precaution against treachery while she slept. No one can steal me away without waking my protector. For Hadrian, who was cold, cramped, and couldn't feel his hands, the beautiful mirror was a wonderful comfort. In the newborn light that gave everything a spotless purity, she was something more than beautiful, more than a woman. In the same way, the first snowfall of the year was more than snow. Both were transcendent. She's so light, like having a cat sleep on me. Hadrian had always felt that cats were picky, untrusting things. Being fragile, they had to be. Whenever a cat sat on him, Hadrian felt special, as if the animal approved and their acceptance was some sort of gift. Makes a body feel worthy of something to have a cat trust you that much. Hadrian didn't feel worthy. I did one good thing. How quickly does a pure drop of rain disappear in a muddy lake? How many did I kill that night? I don't even remember. In her story, he was a monster who came to slaughter and maim. Hadrian had few illusions about those days, and his memories only got worse the farther he traveled east, where civilization was little more than an inconvenient philosophy. Still, he'd never really seen himself as evil. But I was. Maybe I still am. He looked down. Her eyes were closed, her body rising and falling gently, silently. Maybe she was a hundred years old, and had witnessed and even participated in atrocities of her own. Maybe she had closets full of horrible regrets. Who didn't? But in that forgiving light, she was as innocent as a newly budded flower. And she was his savior. Cats don't sleep on monsters, do they? Noises turned Griswold's head and woke Seaton. They all listened. Voices coming from outside. The sound soaked through the walls of the overhead shack and dripped down through the gaps in the floorboards. Conversations impossible to clearly hear. Identities were equally vague. Men and women, 
were all Hadrian could reliably discern. Not many, two or three perhaps, but they were coming closer. The dwarf climbed to his feet. Either your friend's back or time's up. If he's betrayed us... He pointed the dagger at Hadrian, an old, dull blade. Is it the same one he uses to carve figurines? After seeing him with his family, after looking at the beauty he created out of wood, Hadrian found it hard to believe Griswold could kill. But Hadrian had been wrong before. Maybe in a society of stoneworkers, wood carving is an indication of insanity. Griswold might be the sort of crazed killer that no one suspects. Hadrian had met a few of those. Young soldiers, usually the quiet ones that he worried might not be up to the task, revealed a different side on the battlefield. Normally constrained by social pressure, they felt a sense of freedom in combat that they never encountered in daily life. Killing, the ultimate taboo, became a necessary relief to the building pressure to conform. After the fight, they went back to their shadow life. But the taste of blood worked like an infection. They were the ones who volunteered for missions, but fell into trouble after the war. Killers hiding in plain sight. Pots boiling with sealed lids. Griswold might be like that. Hadrian felt Seaton stiffen, as if she'd had the same thought. And then the mirror got to her feet as well her eyes on the dagger. That was the deal he made, Griswold told her. The noise grew louder. Then footfalls hit the floor of the shack, thumping on the ceiling above. Hadrian, Royce yelled. Griswold shuffled away from the stairs and toward Hadrian. No. Seaton moved with surprising speed, thrusting herself between them and raising her hands, putting up the defense Hadrian couldn't. Griswold's expression was grim, not gleeful, and Hadrian was pleased to see it. At least he doesn't want to kill me, or maybe it's just her he regrets killing. Stop! The order came from the stairs where Seely Nim descended. Griswold Deange, you put that dagger away. Right now, you hear? Why? What's happened? Where are Mercator and Villar? Merkitor Sicara is dead, the Calean woman said. This did nothing to improve the dwarf's attitude, and his expression went from grim to angry. Was it the small one who did it? Royce joined her at the bottom of the stairs, and Griswold took a tighter grip on the dagger. Hadrian got to his feet. The dwarf let out a heated growl. What happened to Merkator? I don't see. That's right, Griswold. You don't see anything. The widow was furious. Mercator Sicara was murdered, and it's all your fault. My fault? Don't be ridiculous. I've been here with them all night. Mercator was torn apart by a golem. She could have hit the dwarf with a bucket of water and gotten the same response. He stopped not only his movement toward Hadrian, but even his breathing. A fortunate turn for Griswold, as by then Royce was past the widow, and Alverstone was out and ready to say hello. Drop the dagger, or lose the hand, 
Royce ordered, in the sort of voice that allowed no hesitation or argument. Griswold let his blade fall and backed away, but his eyes were still trained on Erasmus's widow, still aghast. Damn it, Royce cursed, kicking the blade away and frowning at the dwarf. They never pick the choice I want. The dwarf had backed up all the way to the wall, retreating from more than Royce. I don't understand. How could a golem kill Mercator? You tell me, you little bearded excuse for a mole rat. The widow was filled with fury. Erasmus had always been against using those things, those evil, disgusting creatures. And now, now, she took a deep breath to compose herself. Who have you taught that evil sorcery? Do you see what price has been paid? Mercator is dead, and so is my Erasmus. He killed your husband, Griswold pointed at Hadrian. He didn't. Seaton looked at Seely in desperation. The widow patted Seaton's cheek. Honey, do you think I would believe anything coming out of his mouth? Erasmus's face was damn near chewed away. What happened to my... to my... That wasn't done by any man. I... Seaton began. The widow was done with her, but not with Griswold. You're the only one who knows. The only one who... The widow put her hands to her hips, her eyes narrowing to the sort of slits archers use when targeting small prey. Hundreds of people saw a golem in the plaza last night. That stony monster climbed down the side of the cathedral, smashed into the gallery, and tore that poor woman apart. First my Erasmus, now Mercator, all because it wasn't me. I was here with them. He gestured toward Hadrian and Seaton. But you showed others. You're the only one who knows how. Who else did you teach that vile black magic to? Who else can raise a golem? Griswold bowed his head. Just three of us. Only three. I had to, you see, as a kind of safeguard. A way to ensure no single person, no one sect had more power than the others. And so each race would have equal power. I was one, your husband another. She glared. Who was the last? Villar, Royce said, cutting Hadrian's bonds free. The dwarf's eyes indicated agreement. Mercator figured it out, Royce said. He never left any note with demands. He used Leopold's lack of action to fuel dissent and his bloody little war. He was trying to stop us from getting to the Duke. Mercator tried to talk him out of it, but it didn't go so well. Did you get into the estate? Were you able to see the Duke? Hadrian asked. Royce nodded. And he has Weiberg and a group of guild leaders in the meeting hall right now. They're discussing the Duke's intentions and what changes will be coming. Looks like Mercator accomplished that much at least. There won't be any revolution. He looked at Hadrian. I told Roland we'd take care of getting the Duchess back to the estate. 
Hadrian's fingers suffered the dreaded pins and needles as blood flowed back to them. To his surprise, Seaton, whose face was streaked with tears, took his hands and rubbed them. With his hands returning to normal, Hadrian clapped and rubbed them together. Let me get my swords, and we'll get going. So, where is she? He asked Royce. Don't know. He looked to Griswold. The dwarf began shaking his head, though Hadrian doubted the dwarf was aware of it. He had a lost, horrified look, as if he'd just woken up with blood on his hands. I don't know. No one does. What do you mean, no one? Hadrian asked. The Duchess was the mere's responsibility, and only Vilar and Mercata know where they took her. But the Duchess isn't the real problem. Then what is? Hadrian asked. If Vilar doesn't want reforms, and is only after bloodshed and violence, then, then nothing. He has no mob to follow his... He doesn't need anyone's help. You don't understand, Griswold interrupted, his face white. He knows how to create a golem. You have no idea how much damage they can do. Think I have a pretty good idea, Roy said. Had one chasing me most of the night. Trust me, it can be much worse. But why? Hadrian asked. Why would Vilar be so bent on violence? Royce shrugged. Frustration, revenge, hate. He blames others for his lot in life. His father never appreciated him. The weather has been cloudy. Take your pick. People have an inexhaustible supply of excuses to wreak havoc. In this case, however, Vilar has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Griswold said. He can raise an unstoppable monster. And later today, all the nobles of Alban, the very people Villar blames for his misfortunes, are going to be gathered in one place. It'd take no time for him to tear through that crowd. Hadrian shook his head. Villar's last golem had to have made an impression. It'll keep everyone away. People are probably fleeing the city as we speak. We're talking about nobles vying for the crown, Roy said. No one is going anywhere. Silly Nim nodded. It's Vilar that we have to find. She turned to the dwarf. Maybe you don't know exactly where he is, but you know something, some way to narrow the search. Griswold nodded. To raise a golem, you have to be on consecrated ground. What does that mean? Royce asked. It has to have been. Blessed, sacred, otherwise you're committing suicide. How so? Raising a golem requires trapping a demon and forcing it inside a statue. They don't like that, and the first person they'll kill is their creator. Golems can't step on consecrated ground, so that's the only safe place to raise one. If they can't reach the summoner, they're forced to act as his puppet. Does that have something to do with the boxes you were handing out? Do they have to spread it around or something? Hadrian asked. No, the boxes are filled with the residue, the waste bits and chips that were chiseled off the statues when they were created. Using them, 
the summoner can animate the statue related to its corresponding bits. The plan had been for Erasmus, myself, and Villar to raise golems to aid in the uprising. I was going to use the church near the graveyard, the place where you saw me give Erasmus his box of gravel. So, where else can this be done? Hadrian asked. Will any graveyard work? Any church? That's the thing. There aren't many places in Rochelle that meet the requirements. It's not like anyone can throw salt around and say some magic words. The site must be on a focal point. Griswold looked at them, then sighed again. It's hard to explain if you aren't a dwarf. Even hard for some of us to understand. So many of the old ways have been lost since we were scattered to the winds by the Empire. He cupped his hands. It's like this. There are places, natural places, in the world that are centers of power. You've heard of Avampartha, right? That's an example. Drumador is another. Power rises to the surface in places like that, and people have built structures on them to harness that strength, sometimes without even knowing why. Gramgalimus, Royce said. Griswold nodded. That's where Erasmus, he looked at the widow and cringed, was going to raise his golem. Villar was going to be somewhere else. Where? I don't know. You wouldn't tell anyone. How long can a summoner control his golem? Royce asked. It comes down to a force of wills. The summoner needs to conduct the actions of the golem. You see through its eyes and direct its movements. But it hates being used, so the whole time you have to concentrate and be mindful about the amount of time the connection is in place. Keeping control for too long is dangerous. How so? Hang on too long, and you lose your soul and become permanently trapped inside the golem. It becomes immortal and nearly indestructible. Yeah, okay, Roy said. That's worse. How long does that take? Generally, we try not to hold the connection for more than a few hours, but a golem can do a lot of damage in that amount of time. Best way to stop the summoner is to force him to sever the connection. And how do you do that? Royce asked. Distract, threaten, or kill him. So the connection is broken if the summoner dies? Yes. Sounds like a plan to me. A smile grew on Royce's lips. I think I would prefer stopping him before he makes another one, Hadrian said, moving to the steps. What are you going to do? Griswold asked. Hadrian shrugged. We have a tendency to make this stuff up as we go. Amir had been waiting at the top of the stairs and handed Hadrian his weapons without saying a word. After Hadrian strapped them on, he jogged to catch up to Royce. What's the plan? he asked, as they walked down a roadway. He knew it was called Center Street, only because the name was neatly stenciled on a wooden road sign that the birds loved more than the residents did, as evidenced by the white streaks on the placard and pole. The street, as far as Hadrian could tell, tracked due west toward the plaza. He knew this not due to any growing understanding of the city, 
but because he could see the spires of Gromgalamus straight ahead. The tallest building by far in the city, the cathedral could always be seen rising above the other roofs. Not sure, I'm thinking. The two were as alone as they could be that morning, in a cramped city that was coming alive with the rising sun. Griswold, Seaton, and Seely Nim had remained to aid Roland with quelling the rebellion. Happy first day of spring, Hadrian offered, along with a yawn, as they walked by a shop where the owner flipped over a sign, presumably for the first time that year. It had read, dried herbs, but now announced, fresh flowers. Royce gave him a sidelong glance. Don't do that again. You have something against spring? When did that happen? Don't offer yourself as a hostage. Oh, that. Hadrian yawned again. He hadn't gotten much sleep, and it was starting to drag on him. Don't owe that me, Royce reprimanded, sounding eerily like Evelyn Hemsworth. This is not a laughing matter. You put me in a box. I put you in a box. See, I saw it as me putting myself in one. You did both. In our line of business, associations are liabilities. Loyalties are points of weakness. They get you killed. If they had captured you, locked you up, that would have been fine. But you... How would that have been fine? I would have just killed them. Roy said this in such a matter-of-fact tone that Hadrian failed to question the boast. If it had been anyone else, Hadrian would have passed it off as bombastic bluster. But Royce wasn't bragging, wasn't exaggerating to make a point. He was serious, and to him this was a practical matter, a basic trade rule, like not shoveling manure into the wind. But when you volunteer to act as collateral, Royce went on, that puts me in a tight spot. The stakes go up, and I can't walk away if things take a nasty turn, like this one did. Is this your way of saying you care about me? Royce continued his Evelyn Hemsworth impersonation by displaying an I-can't-believe-you-really-exist expression. This is my way of saying you're an idiot, and the next time you do something that stupid, I'll let them kill you. Hadrian smiled. You really like me, don't you? Shut up. I feel bad now, Hadrian said. I didn't get you anything for spring day. Royce walked faster, shaking his head as he moved forward. The sun was barely up, but already the day displayed all the indications that it would be glorious. The sky was blue, the sunshine bright, the temperature warmer than it had been in days. Birds built nests under the eaves of shops as owners threw wide winter shutters, letting the birdsong in. How rare that the first day of spring lived up to expectations. That sentiment was on every face as people crept out of dark homes to celebrate the holiday of rebirth. Mothers dressed their children in fine clothes, delivering stern ultimatums and handing out rules against doing anything beyond standing still. Young women burst out of doorways resembling budding flowers as they twirled their dresses of bright yellows, pinks, and greens, full of excitement 
that they might attract the attention of a handsome bee or two. The usual vendors were not present in the plaza. Even they had taken the day off. In their place, musical bands were in the process of setting up, while men who moved awkwardly in waistcoats, capes, and shiny buckled shoes set up banquet tables or roped off squares for dancing. One area suffered from an odd break in the boundary, where several shattered paving stones created a nasty crater. Hadrian noted that even though the steps of the gallery had been cleaned, there was still a rusty tinge on some of them, and one of the beautiful doors had been battered and torn. The tragedy of the previous night had been mostly erased by the morning light and the new season. But just like winter, the hardships couldn't be entirely forgotten. The people in the plaza moved around the crater and avoided the steps to the gallery. Still, they were unwavering in their efforts to celebrate the spring. Surviving was often a matter of moving forward. Moving forward was a matter of putting yesterday in the past, and all of it began with putting one foot ahead of the other, remembering how to smile, how to dance, and especially remembering that laughing wasn't disrespectful. It was essential. Hadrian's attention was pulled away by the grand procession underway as ten men carried a massive garland-festooned post across the bridge. The spring pole, streaming ribbons of various colors, was headed to the plaza, where it would be erected for the opening dance. Hadrian's home village of Hintendar put up a spring pole every year as well, though not nearly so big. He imagined every town did. Rochelle planned on celebrating on a scale Hadrian couldn't imagine. Feeling the energy and anticipation, he wanted to join in, help put up the pole, roll out the barrels, and find a partner for the rabbit run and the blossom ball. But they still had work to do. As if realizing only then that he was walking, Royce stopped. He took in a long breath and let out a sigh of frustration. What's wrong? I've got nothing. Villar is the only one left who knows where the Duchess is. Royce looked around at all the congested buildings. He could be anywhere. No, Hadrian said. He has to be somewhere special, someplace sacred. Sure, okay. But what is considered special or holy in Rochelle? Do you know? Because I don't. This is the problem with taking jobs outside our neighborhood. Even Griswold, who I'm guessing has lived here his whole life, only knew about two places. And if Erasmus was using the cathedral and the dwarf the old church, then where was Villar going? Griswold would have mentioned other sites if he knew any. Villar knows of at least one more, obviously, Hadrian said. He's a Mir, and Mir lived for a long time, right? So it might be something ancient, something everyone else has forgotten about. How does that help? Maybe we just need to find someone who knows a lot about the ancient history of Rochelle. Hadrian smiled. Can you think of anyone like that, Royce? Royce's eyes widened. Oh, you are kidding me! Chapter 23 A Prayer to Novron like the rest of the city, 
Mill Street had been transformed. The quiet thoroughfare of dignified homes was festooned with whimsical decorations. Nearly every house had garlands of spring flowers and pastel-colored ribbons in loops beneath windows. Some homeowners extended the loops beneath two windows, creating smiling faces with flowered lips and crisscrossed glass eyes. Here, too, groups of residents gathered in small clumps, chatting on a street devoid of its normal traffic. Five men in tall hats spoke in the middle of the road. A larger group of women in hoop skirts gathered near the lamppost, which had been trimmed with a spiraling green ribbon. One bent down to pet a little pug-nosed dog. Where have you two been? Evelyn burst out the moment they entered the house. With arms tightly folded, she stood beside a table of uneaten food. Just when I thought you'd been tamed, you prove that wild animals can never truly be domesticated. She looked at the grand banquet she had prepared, as if she might cry. But even a wild animal? She waved at the table. It's food, after all. Even a cave-dwelling beast will make a habit of being on time for a feast. Our sincere apologies, Hadrian said. We were unavoidably detained. Who's prison? she asked. Royce wiped his feet on the doormat and removed his cloak. Hadrian took off his sword belt. They needed her cooperation and couldn't afford to irritate Evelyn any more than she already appeared to be. Did the Duke catch you, or was it some underworld thug who locked you up? What makes you- Oh, honestly. She scowled and grabbed her skirt while stepping to the head of the table. Royce moved quickly and pulled out the chair for her. She frowned. If I look that simple-minded to you, I suggest investing in canes to help you walk like all the others Novron punished with blindness. The only surprise about you two is that my silverware hasn't gone missing, which, incidentally, is the only reason you are still here. I have friends in the Duke's court. My husband was very popular there, you know. In a way, he, more than the Duke, paid their salaries. I would have seen both of you in chains if so much as a toothpick had been pilfered. I didn't even see the toothpicks. Royce glanced at Hadrian. Hadrian shook his head. Evelyn tilted hers and peered sternly at the both of them. At this point, there is nothing either of you can say to redeem yourselves. I told you no jiggery-pokery, did I not? No shady business. But here we are. I'd throw you out now, but I can't stand wasting food. So, sit down and eat your last meal under my roof. Immediately afterward, please gather your things and leave. I'll have no more to do with either of you. But, Hadrian started. She shut him down with a raised hand. No, no, I don't want to hear your excuses. Just eat and get out. The eggs are ruined, and the pastries are likely hard, but that's your fault. They settled into chairs. Hadrian reached to uncover the food plates, but Royce stopped him. What are you waiting for? Evelyn asked, annoyed. We haven't given thanks. And before Evelyn could reply, Royce bowed his head. We thank you, Lord Novron, for the food Mrs. Hemsworth has made for us, and apologize for being late.
He weren't in a prison. Well, Hadrian was. Sort of, but only because he volunteered to risk his life to save the Duchess of Rochelle. She's still alive, by the way, but being held prisoner by a murderous mere. The same one who brought the stone gargoyle to life and hurt all those people in the plaza. Oh, and it killed Mercator Sicara, a mere who was only trying to keep peace between the pitifuls and the nobles. More would have died if I hadn't managed to lure the thing to the top of Grum Gallimus and cause it to fall, shattering on the plaza. Despite all this, we would have still been on time, except we haven't yet found the mere holding the Duchess, and we're in a bit of a hurry because he may kill her at any moment. Oh yeah, and he's intent on unleashing a great deal of bloodshed later today. So, Lord Novron, we've been a tad busy. We hope you understand and forgive us for our tardiness. Royce looked at Evelyn, who stared at him incredulously. May we prove worthy of your kindness. She concluded the prayer with wide eyes that looked back at Royce, dumbfounded. Hadrian gave her a big smile as he uncovered the food and scooped spoonfuls onto his plate, then passed it on to Royce. Are you... Was that true? she asked. I wouldn't lie to Novron, Royce told her through a mouthful of eggs, which were not at all ruined. Who are you? Royce glanced at Hadrian. Normally, this was where his less experienced partner would put them in jeopardy, openly admitting everything because someone had gone to all the trouble of asking. Hadrian, however, kept himself occupied with the meal. Neither of them had dined the night before, and Hadrian was fond of repeating the military axiom. Never pass up a chance to eat or sleep, as you don't know when you'll get another opportunity. Royce turned back to Evelyn Hemsworth, who waited with a cringing expression, a look that was half dread, half curiosity. She wanted to know, and at the same time, she didn't. Royce used the moment it took to chew and swallow to mentally sort through the most reasonable replies. None worked for this. After his acrobatics and his admission that they were seeking to save the Duchess, he couldn't exactly pretend they were traveling merchants or agents for such. He toyed with the idea of saying they were undercover Surrett knights, but Royce was certain Evelyn knew more about the Surrett than he did. He also considered refusing to answer it all, but that wouldn't do. They needed her help, and while his message of grace had blunted her anger, she was many leagues from trusting him. With all other options eliminated, and this being an absurd situation, Royce tried something utterly ridiculous. He once more borrowed from Hadrian's example. We were hired by Gabriel Winter of Colnora to come to Rochelle and find Jenny Winter, his missing daughter. Mr. Winter thought she might have been murdered. What we discovered was she hadn't been killed, but kidnapped. She was taken by a loose coalition of the city's underprivileged, who hoped to influence the Duke's policies by a route that avoided a full-scale revolution. However, it turned out that not everyone wanted to avoid the insurrection. A mere named Villar intends to use dwarven magic to create another stone golem to kill everyone at the Feast of Nobles today. Royce waited for the explosion. 
He expected Evelyn to demand that they leave, or to see if she would shout for the city guard, calling for their arrest. At the very least, she would loudly deny everything he said. He also expected a good helping of disbelief concerning the raising of golems. Royce had arguments ready, but they weren't good ones. The truth was a poor weapon when fighting faith, but he was prepared to do battle nonetheless. Oh, my blessed Novron, she exclaimed in shock. Her hands came down, two wrinkled fists pounding the table, soundly ringing the porcelain plates. Then why are you just sitting here? Royce and Hadrian looked at each other, surprised. You, you, believe me? Royce asked. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It does? Royce looked at Hadrian, who had a mouth full of pastry and could only shrug. Absolutely, Evelyn said. And besides, everyone saw you and the golem wreaking havoc through the gallery and across the cathedral. That's hard to argue with. So shouldn't you two be out looking for this Villar fellow? If what you say is accurate, he's been recruited to murder every noteworthy noble in Auburn. We are, Hadrian said. We didn't actually come for breakfast. She watched him chew a huge mouthful. No. We need to ask you about Rochelle, Roy said. We're looking for any special places, ancient churches, or something that might be considered deeply sacred. Drumgalimus, she replied instantly. Besides that, Hadrian managed to say after he swallowed. Evelyn thought a moment. Well, there is supposed to be an ancient burial ground up in Littleton. Dates back to the early imperial age. I've never been there. Littleton, or Little Town, as it was once called, is the dwarven ghetto. Not a safe neighborhood, you understand. We've been there, Roy said. But that's not it either. There has to be another place, maybe something related to Mir. Evelyn pondered while pouring tea for herself. Royce and Hadrian watched as she deposited two cubes of sugar and stirred. I'm sorry, I can't think of any place else like that. Of course, you could visit the gallery. That's what I'd do. Already been there, twice, Royce said. And from what I've heard, I shouldn't send you a third time, lest the entire place be destroyed. But there are old maps. One, in particular, hangs on the third floor wall. It's very big and believed to have been drawn by the original surveyors who laid out Rochelle. You might find what you're looking for on it. Royce and Hadrian pushed away from the table. Good luck, gentlemen, Evelyn said. Royce stopped and looked back. He reminded himself he hated this strict, authoritarian, erudite woman, but with no success. Had life been fit to give him a mother, Royce suspected she really would have been something like Evelyn. Anything less would have been useless. You might want to leave, he told her. Leave? Evelyn said. Leave what? Get out of the city. Are you suggesting I flee? She signaled her indignation with a raised eyebrow. Look, Villar harbors a good deal of resentment against those he feels suppressed his people. You're pretty much the face of that fellowship. Everyone knows about your hatred for Mir, and if you're- I do not, she snapped. Why would you say such a thing? 
Because we learned about your room for rent from one. Hadrian nodded his support. A young mother living on the street just a block down from here with her child. Said she could knock on your door all day, but you'd never take her in. I can assure you she never came here. I don't see how she could conclude such a thing if she never bothered to so much as knock. When the dirty tankard refuses to let you a room, Royce said, it doesn't seem too likely that the wealthy widow on Mill Street is going to invite you into our parlor. Evelyn looked at the rug with a thoughtful frown. Would you have let her a room? Hadrian asked. Amir with a child in her arms? Evelyn hesitated. I let you two in, didn't I? Royce nodded. And what does it tell you when you compare two shifty foreign men to a homeless mother and her child? I'm just saying, if we can't stop Vilar, there's a good chance he might seek vengeance in places like Mill Street. Leave, stay, it's your choice. But if I were you, I'd disappear for a while. Evelyn folded her arms with her normal, self-righteous indignation. Well, I think we can be quite thankful that I'm not you. Now get out of here. Royce picked up his cloak and a pastry. Hadrian grabbed his sword belt, strapping it on as they headed for the door. Wait, she called to them as they started down the hill toward the gallery. What? Royce asked. Evelyn once again hesitated as she stood on the stoop, then said, Don't be late for breakfast again, or I really will throw you out. With that, she stepped back inside and slammed the door shut. No one stopped Royce and Hadrian from entering the Imperial Gallery. The two didn't draw attention even when they climbed the steps and slipped through the bent gap in the bronze doors. Inside, the Grand Hall was a mess, debris everywhere. What looked to Hadrian to be a giant scaffold lay strewn across the floor. The snapped wooden beams were splintered and wrapped in cloth that had been ripped and torn. The thing had a papier-mâché head, like an alligator, and huge leathery bat wings. Little more than thin material stretched over bowed sticks. It reminded Hadrian of toys he'd watched kids play with in mandolin. They would run with playthings tethered to strings until the wind blew the toys into the sky. Maybe that's what this is. A giant wind toy. Under the ripped cloth and broken timber were shards of broken vases. The remains of chalky white busts of dignified people and toppled pedestals. Tears of blood, dried drips on statues and paintings, had yet to be addressed. He surmised this was where Mercator had been killed. Torn apart, Erasmus Nim's widow had said. There had been an uncharacteristic look of revulsion on Royce's face, but such sights weren't unfamiliar to Hadrian. In Calais, men were ripped apart by bulls or torn to shreds by lions both in the name of entertainment. And while arenas always had sand-covered courtyards that could be raked, the walls were dyed a ruddy brown from the layers of splatter. Gore on a grand scale was one more love letter addressed to Hadrian from an unwanted past. They were stacking up. The gallery had an odor. Hadrian knew what death smelled like, and it wasn't that. At least, it wasn't the stench of decomposing bodies, 
nor even blood. But it was similar. The scent reminded him of rotting straw, or a stagnant pond, a musty, almost spicy fragrance of decay. Hadrian had an urge to look around. The gallery was filled with so many strange and wondrous items set out as exhibits. Weapons, both refined and crude. A large bow hung on the wall beside a spear and a series of swords, two of which bore a close resemblance to the one on Hadrian's back. There were shields, cups of painted clay, wood carvings, sets of armor, musical instruments, furniture, cloaks, hats, lamps, rakes, and still corked bottles. Even a window, complete with its frame, hung on the wall. He only managed a glance as Royce led him in a rush up the stairs to the third floor. The marble steps bore sharp chips and cracks and indents the size and shape of large feet. The golem? Hadrian wondered. Looking down, he placed his own feet in the same spots. The golem would have dwarfed him. A giant stone beast wasn't something he wanted to fight. The map wasn't as easy to find as it should have been. The thing was huge and took up one whole wall, but it didn't look like a map. The ones Hadrian had seen comprised fine lines of iron gall ink on parchment. This was a tapestry, a massive wall hanging with needlework so fine it must have taken years to complete. The artwork was colorful, filled with shades of green for the forests and blues for the ocean and rivers. In the fields were dazzling splashes of yellow, pink, and purple wildflowers. The perspective of the image was as if the viewer were a bird flying at a slight angle so that buildings and hills had depth and dimension. The coast was easy to recognize, as were the Roche River and Governor's Isle, but little else was familiar. The map showed a bridge linking the banks and the island, but there was no building on the isle itself. Instead, cows grazed on what looked to be a pasture. The plaza wasn't on the map either, nor Grum Gallimus. Instead, a little clump of trees marked that spot. There were roads, but few followed the same paths as the modern ones. Mill Street was nothing but a path that led to, not surprisingly, a mill. The city's center was located farther to the east, centered on the smaller stream that today ran through Little Gurham and the Rookery. A dock was there not far from the modern one, and several small homes clustered up the slope. The town was tiny, rural, and more a village than a city. The focal point of everything, in the exact middle of the tapestry, was a round building east of the rookery. It possessed a dome like Grom Gallimus, but was significantly smaller. Pillars held the roof up, forming a circular, open-air colonnade that stood on a raised dais. What's that? Royce asked, pointing to the same building Hadrian was puzzling over. A church? Doesn't look like any church I've ever seen. A temple? To whom? Hadrian peered at the map, but there was no writing. He shrugged. How old do you think this map is? It obviously predates the city. Or maybe this was the start of it. The graveyard and Grum Gallimus aren't shown, so... So what? Imperial times? 
at least. Maybe even earlier. What does it mean? Hadrian asked. It means we should have dragged Evelyn here because I have no idea. But that, Hadrian pointed to the temple, that looks like something special, right? Something sacred, Royce finished for him. Hadrian nodded. Do you know where it is? Royce shook his head. Up on a hill. Looks like if we go to the rookery, head east and search for high ground, we might find it. How long do you think we have before Vilar attacks? The Feast of the Nobles is midday, right? That's when it's held in Colnora and Ratabor. Same in Hintendar and Medford. Royce looked at the windows. So, we still have a few hours if Vilar sticks to the plan to catch all the nobles at the feast. What are the odds of that? At this point, Royce scowled. We should hurry. Hadrian agreed, but was disappointed. We should come back here. I'd love to look through this place. Absolutely not, Royce said. We are never coming back. Be careful, Hadrian warned him. My father used to tell me, never say never on any endeavor. It sounds like a dare to gods that don't care. If the likes of us prosper, fail, or falter, it matters not while they roll with laughter on an altar at our miserable, sad little lives. Royce looked over and smiled. I think I would have liked your father. Chapter 24 Haunted Oswald Tynewell concluded what he knew to be his final service as the Bishop of Alburn. By the end of the day, his title would be different. His world certainly would be. Standing on the raised altar, he watched the people leave. They spilled out like water swirling through a funnel. Choked by the big doors, they clogged into a crowd. The exodus took longer than usual because the high masses always drew greater crowds. Usually, the cathedral never got close to full. Gromgalamus was a monster of a church, his grand flagship that sailed the stormy seas of iniquity. There simply wasn't enough faith in the city to satisfy its belly. Normally, such an idea distressed him, made him feel he wasn't succeeding in his role as spiritual leader. That morning, he couldn't have cared less about that role, and he wished for a smaller flock. Or at least, a faster one. He watered them out, all of them gone, so he could shut and bolt the doors. The time had arrived, and Oswald was uncomfortable watching his sheep as they went to slaughter. Not so distressed as to stop or warn them, of course. He felt merely a disquiet, a sort of unease one faces when delivering a white lie. That's what it was. A positive wrapped in a negative. A good intention shrouded in wolf's clothing. He would benefit the most initially, but everyone would make out in the long run. They would all see that in time. Oswald knew this was true. He accepted it without reservation. But that hadn't always been the case. At first, Oswald had ignored his calling. Grom Gallimus has a voice, it was said. She spoke to people who took the time to open their hearts and listen. 
When first appointed, Oswald believed this to be a metaphor that dovetailed neatly with the strange and inexplicable creaks and groans of the old cathedral. He knew better now. Thinking back, he was surprised it had taken a whole year. He'd been working in the office and had left his feathered quill in the bottle. The wind from an open window had blown the inkwell over, ruining hours of carefully worded letters to his fellow bishops, the sort of mindless drudgery that was a grind to get through. The whole pile of silly, pointless reports had been soaked, making them illegible. He cried out in despair, smashed his fists on the desk and wept. He sobbed like a child, not merely for the loss of the letters, but the need for them in the first place. What has my life become? He had thought. It wasn't merely the letters. It was everything. He was the Bishop of Alburn, curator of Grumgallimus, but he saw his future grow clear out of the mist. His life would be no more than a handful of ledgers and reports, the same as his predecessors. How can this be? He'd thought as he cried into the ink-stained desk. I always thought I was chosen, destined for more. How could I have risen to this seat, merely to keep it clean and tidy? Something has to happen. And something did. That was the night he first heard the whispers, the voice of Grom Gallimus. Only it wasn't one voice, it was two and they called his name. The last of the faithful funneled out, including the boys and the ushers, who were all eager to join the festival crowds, and Oswald personally shut and locked the great doors. This left him alone in the church. No, he thought, I'm not. The Calayan had to be around somewhere, but he didn't want to know where he was or what exactly he was doing. He refused to involve himself further in the details of the day's events. A blind eye was best. My part in this is done. He returned to his office, slipped inside, and locked the door. He didn't want visitors, or more precisely, he didn't want any more of them. Tynewell was never alone in that office. He removed the mitre from his head and set it in the case careful to pull the tails up before closing the cabinet doors. After slipping off his high vestments and hanging them up in the wardrobe, he poured wine into a silver chalice and sat down in his undershirt. Kicking his slippers off, he threw his hairy legs up on the desk and drank. He paused and raised the cup. To a better future, gentlemen, he said, hoping they didn't notice how his hand shook. But of course they do. They see everything, don't they? No sense denying it. They know what I am. I suppose you two never had doubts as you piloted the waters of your own lives, did you? Never had. He almost said fears, but caught himself. Concerns? Well, we all know I'm not either of you. He turned to Novron who was forever holding up either the exact same silver chalice Oswald now held, or its sister. He gesticulated with his goblet so that the wine spilled. After all, I'm not the son of a god, like you are, 
You have to admit, that's a pretty big advantage. Not really fair when you think about it. And I'm certain things were easier in your day. Fewer people to deal with, at least. Less bureaucracy. And you had the Relicon. I don't have any magic weapons at my disposal to sweep aside my enemies. His words were forceful, loud, and confident. No humble, self-effacing blather allowed. That was how he had to talk to Novron. The Emperor couldn't hear him otherwise. Then Oswald gestured at Venlin, a bit more slowly, but the wine still spilled down his knuckles. And you? What are you crowing about? What competition did you have? You were revered, and already the undisputed head of the church, and you had an army that would— He paused to lick the wine from his fingers. Take turns cleaning your sandals with their tongues if you told them to. So don't look at me like that. I have it hard, harder than either of you. He swallowed a mouthful of wine. It was much better than the watered-down service, Vino. I have to claw my way. He held up his empty hand. Do you see these fingers? Worn to a nub, everyone. And these feet? He sat back and held the bottoms out to the painting. Saw from the bloody balancing act I've been doing. I'm a lion tamer trapped in a cage with a dozen hungry beasts. Up, up, I yell. But do they listen? Oswald settled back and breathed, letting the chalice rest on the arm of the chair. Outside the window, he could hear laughter, shouts, and musicians' instruments being tuned up. Such children, he thought. They have no idea what's about to happen. He didn't worry so much about his flock. They were docile things. But the Alburn aristocracy, the wealthy merchants and clerks, and the military were another matter. He couldn't run the kingdom without them. If they refused to recognize him as ruler, which they would if they suspected his involvement in the massacre, or if they found a suitable surviving noble, he'd have a civil war on his hands, a war that he had no army to fight. All he had was faith. That, too, could be taken away. What will the patriarch do? Will he recognize me as the rightful ruler of Alban? Of course, Venlin said, his smooth delivery two parts velvet and one part barrel-aged whiskey. Venlin was the intellectual of the two, the brilliant confidant and advisor, the shrewd politician. That old recluse granted you complete freedom to choose the best successor to Reinhold. He did so because you know each of the candidates personally. Who better to select the most devoted, the most pliable, the best ally? You're doing that. He can't get upset because you did what he asked. But it's probably not how he expected me to do it. Novron scoffed. Are you serious? Doing what people expect gets you nothing and nowhere. Honestly, man, how did you rise in the ranks with that attitude? I should have asked permission, shouldn't I? I mean, it feels like such a deception. Novron shook his head and addressed Venlin. Talk sense into him, 
before I throw them at the window, will you? Venlon sighed. It doesn't matter if it's a lie or not. If it helps you sleep, then wrap it around you each night and smile. If you had asked for consent, or even floated the idea past Saldor when he was here, you know he wouldn't have liked it. Better to seek forgiveness than ask for permission. What you count on is that the world will come to see the truth in time. At first, it sounds crazy. Worse, it sounds conceited and self-centered. But you are granted the choice to anoint whomever you saw fit. And, Oswald, you're going to do just that. There isn't anyone in the running who isn't a short-sighted, self-centered idiot. And, of course, all the candidates will be dead. Navron parroted back Salda's words. Well, whoever you pick, best keep in mind that he actually has to rule a kingdom, you know. That was why he had to pick himself. But Salda wouldn't see it that way, and Maurice Salda was typical of the church. Oswald was the Bishop of Alburn, but somehow Maurice Salda was more influential. How that was possible was hard to determine. Perhaps it was location. He was the Bishop of Medford, and that was but a short carriage ride to Irvinon. I didn't actually chat with the patriarch. I've never seen the man. Oswald was certain this had to be a lie. While he was busy writing letters, Saldor was handling affairs like the disappearance of the Eternal Empire. Even after botching his own efforts to replace the ruling family of Melangar, Nilnerv had given Saldor another chance. He hadn't even trusted Oswald to take care of his own king. They all have it better than you, Novron told him. And Saldor isn't your problem. Garrick Gervais, Lord of Blythen Castle, is the ox you'll need to yoke or slay. Oswald nodded. He was about to defy the intent, if not the letter, of the Patriarch's orders while living in the shadow of the Surrette's base and ancestral home. Blythen Castle was less than a day's ride up the coast to the east, and the castle commander wasn't a philosophical man. Reason and logic? to Garrick Gervais, were sinful things. Oswald knew that convincing the Black Knight to support him wouldn't be easy. Garrick wouldn't see Oswald's initiative as a positive development. After all, Garrick saw his job as regulating the clergy, and crowning oneself king would certainly attract close scrutiny. Handling Gervais would be his most dangerous battle. If only he would attend the feast. Oswald settled deeper into his chair and drained his cup. He felt exhausted, the sort of fatigue that hits only after all the work is finished. Is it finished? he asked. For now, your part at least, Novron said. All the pieces are in motion. He got up and searched for the bottle to refill the chalice. I don't want to kill them, the nobles, I mean, but it's best to eliminate one's competition. He held his cup away from the desk as he poured, so as not to spill on anything important. Although his hands had stopped shaking, 
His head felt a tad loose, and he had a vague sense of it floating like a bubble on his shoulders. This was only his second cup, but he'd hardly touched the breakfast tray. He couldn't eat then, but he thought he might now. I'd better, or at the rate I'm drinking, I'll pass out before the feast. Would that be so bad? Novron asked. You do need an excuse not to attend, Venlin said. You can't trust Villar to contain his violence to only those dressed in blue. Chapter 25 Keys and Coins By the time Villar woke up, the sun was high. Light streamed in through the drape that Mercator had hung in place of a door. The old one had likely rotted away centuries ago. The new drape was, like everything else Mercator touched, blue. The long dyed cloth fluttered lazily, letting in varying degrees of brilliant sunlight, changing the shadows in the room. For a long moment, Villar lay on the floor, feeling the pleasant flower-scented breeze and watching the light war with the darkness. Sunbeams ricocheted up the wall, exposing the dye-stained pots and dust motes. Then the breeze exhausted itself, the cloth fell flat, and the room returned to its dull darkness. Outside, birds sang and bees hummed. A perfect spring day, he thought with detached judgment, as if he weren't part of it, but rather some distant observer. That aloof perception lasted no more than a minute. It took that long for the pain to catch up with his sleep-muddled mind. When it did, the observer became the tortured. Villar felt terrible. He always did the morning after. His head throbbed, his body ached, and his muscles were drained. He continued to lie there, breathing slowly, letting the blood bang at his temples. It would subside in a little while always had in the past. That's when he realized this wasn't like the other times. He'd stayed with the golem longer than usual because the little hooded foreigner was fast and agile and saw him coming. That was odd. No one had ever seen him before. But that wasn't all that made this time different. Villar felt pain in his chest. It, too, throbbed. But it also burned and that didn't make any sense at all. Grunting as he engaged stiff muscles, he rolled to his side, his elbow and hip hurting where they pressed against the floor. He had lain down on a blanket, one of the blue-dyed ones that Mercator had stacked all over. Should have used more than one. Should have used all of them. Made a thick, comfortable cocoon. He'd learned never to run a golem while standing or even sitting. Too easy to become disoriented and fall. When in the golem and on the hunt, the experience was so vivid, it was easy to forget it wasn't his body, running, jumping, and fighting. Everything was so real. Villar didn't know his safety point, how long he could maintain the connection without going too far. Griswold had warned him never to remain for more than two chimes of Grom Gallimus, 
but that was only a rough estimate. He didn't think the dwarf really knew. Villar speculated that the cutoff point would be different for each person. Not everyone's strength of will was the same. It stood to reason that an individual with a strong sense of himself could maintain the golem longer. The real concern, as Villar saw it, and perhaps this tied into the idea of losing one's soul, was that in the heat of things it was easy to miss the passage of time and everything else. Still, Villar was confident he hadn't gotten anywhere near two chimes. And for the first time, it wasn't he who had severed the connection. The connection had vanished all by itself. No, not by itself. The golem had been destroyed, and I was nearly killed. That's what happened. But how? When he possessed a golem, he wasn't actually there. The golem acted on his commands, but no matter what happened to the creature, Filar was safe because he was miles away. The whole process worked much like a dream. Dreams, no matter how awful, were safe. They had no power to penetrate the real world. He thought hard, trying to remember. Then it came to him. The gargoyle had fallen off the cathedral and hit the plaza. The moment it struck the ground, the connection snapped, releasing whatever demon he'd trapped in the stone. But because the gargoyle fell, rather than Vilar, that was all that should have happened. Then why do I have this pain in my chest? Thinking perhaps the pain was imaginary, a lingering, vivid memory, Vilar reached up and touched the spot that hurt. Running fingertips lightly, he found that his shirt was stiff, stuck painfully to his skin. Gritting his teeth and emitting a pained grunt, he pulled the tunic off. With the agony of ripping off a scab, he tore the cloth free of his skin. Thank Pharaoh, I don't have hair on my chest. On the shirt, a large, rusty red stain radiated out in a circle from a small slice in the garment. Touching his bare chest, he felt a very real wound. I was stabbed. I was stabbed? How could that have happened? The wound wasn't deep. It had cut the skin but was stopped by the sternum. Judging by his shirt, however, the injury had caused more than its fair amount of bleeding. After the two strangers had broken into the meeting, Villar had left and waited outside. He'd watched as the hooded foreigner and Mercator set off together. The two had a plan to contact the Duke. If they succeeded, everything could unravel. If they convinced Leo to intercede, no one would support the revolt. He couldn't allow that. When the two went separate ways, he considered killing the foreigner, but wasn't certain he could. The prior chase across the rooftops had made him second-guess his chances. Instead, Villar came up with a better plan, an easier and ultimately far more enjoyable one. He would use a golem. He'd followed Mercator back to the temple and waited for her to leave again. The ancient ruin had been the perfect place to keep the Duchess. It existed at the three-way intersection of the remote, the secluded, 
and the inaccessible. No one ever went up there. Too much trouble, and too many brambles along the way. This had long been Mercator's secret craft shop, and all her dyed cloth was worth a small fortune. She'd used this place as a safe haven, and wisely never told anyone about it. The ruins made an excellent place for him to store his supplies as well. Over the previous months, Griswold had provided him several boxes of gravel, keys to various statues stationed around the city. He had plenty to choose from. And, of course, he had his hearts. A reagent he had to provide for himself. They were not nearly as plentiful as the gravel. He had been down to his last two, but that problem could be easily rectified. He'd have the golem collect several more before breaking the connection. It was worth risking a heart to stop the foreigner and Mercator from reaching the estate. Once Mercator left, he entered. In his haste, he didn't bother with his usual safeguards. This wasn't the main event, merely a brief interlude. He'd be safe enough. Only he and Mercator knew about the ruin, and she wouldn't be coming back. He made the bed and began the ritual. Originally, he had only planned to stop Mercator. Yes, he would kill the foreigner, but Sikara need not die. Keeping them from reaching the Duke was the important thing. But then she figured out he'd been working against peaceful solutions since the beginning. If she told the others, they would turn on him. All his hard work ruined. And of course, the Mir didn't need two leaders. He could be both the Duke and the representative for the Mir people. Besides, her Calean blood made her an abomination. He'd borrowed the term from the bishop, but it fit. The mixing of elven and human blood was bad enough. Somewhere in his own distant past, one of Ilar's ancestors had made that mistake. But the Sakara family hadn't merely succumbed to a necessity. They wallowed in the deep end. Vilar's great-grandfather, Hannes Orphy traveled to Albernia with Sadashakar Sikara after the fall of Meridjed. The two had a falling out when Sadashakar chose to marry a dark-skinned Kalean. The tribes diverged at that point, the Orphy being more steadfast and the Sikara more accommodating. Further relations with the Kaleans led to the dilution of the Sikara bloodline, and Mercator was the obvious result of this weakening. She was more Calean than anything else. She lacked dignity and commitment, and barely looked like a mere. Villar rolled to his feet and moved to one of the pots of clean water. He sniffed it to be sure. Grabbing the corner of a large blanket, he soaked it and gingerly scrubbed at the wound while he gritted his teeth. Most of the blood wiped off easily enough, but around the cut, it had hardened, and he didn't feel like messing with it. Turning, Villar looked at the door to the little cell. He had forgotten all about the Duchess. The woman had been quiet. She hadn't even greeted him with one of her usual insipid quips. Usually, the Duchess just couldn't keep her mouth shut, 
and it was such a large, loud mouth. She was their prisoner, their captive, but she failed to act her part. A helpless, captive woman was supposed to be quiet, tearfully sobbing in the corner or begging for life, praying to her god. But not this one. He'd wanted to kill her the night before. The ritual required concentration, and he couldn't afford any interference from her. Nor could he risk her giving away his secret, should anyone come looking. Vilar had planned on killing her for months. Now with Mercator's death and the feast imminent, he'd finally get his chance. He couldn't rely on her staying quiet again. Villar looked for a knife, turning over crates of wool and throwing aside mounds of linen. He went through barrels that stank of vinegar and shook out rags. Nothing. Seriously, Marqueta, how did you work without a knife? Then Villar remembered she'd had it with her at the gallery when the golem- No, not the golem. It was me, and I do regret what happened. Her death was a loss. The mere needed to rise to the greatness the past proclaimed them to be, and after the feast there would be so many seats left unfilled. As duke, he would have campaigned for her to be appointed Duchess of Rise. She might be a mongrel, but she was still the descendant of the famed Sicar. Villar liked the idea of making Alburn a mere kingdom, just as Meridjed had been. She could have had a part to play in the restoration of her heritage. Her death was a waste. Villar took one last look around. Seeing no sign of a knife, he clapped his arms against his sides in resignation. I'll just have to strangle the bitch. As a golem, he'd killed dozens. That's how he got the hearts, those hard-to-obtain ingredients. At first, he tried without success to use animal hearts. Then Farol smiled on him and intervened, reversing his fortune. It had happened on the last hot day of autumn. Villar had watched six children playing at the storm drain where the rookery and little Gurum butted up to the city harbor. Villar had gone there to watch the ship's load. Or so he told himself. What he was really doing was searching for a victim, some new immigrant without family or friends, someone small, weak, and bewildered by the big city, a youth whom he could easily overpower. The sky was cloudy as the evening heat invited late-day thunderheads to form. The kids had pulled back the heavy metal lid of the cistern and were taking turns jumping into the stone reservoir using a rope to climb out. They obviously had done this all summer. The rope was bleached, and its edges frayed where it rubbed against the sharp side of the cistern wall. The children didn't notice, nor did they appear to care about the rain clouds blanketing the sky. Villar considered chasing them away for their own good. But one thing stopped him. The group of kids was a mixed lot, two Kaleans, one dwarf, one Mir, and two humans. If it had been simply a group of Mir, he would have ordered them out. 
Even if the dwarves and Kaleans had been with them, he might have said something. But the presence of the humans enraged him. Bilar couldn't bring himself to warn them off. As the sky darkened, one of the humans left, as did the dwarf and the two Kaleans. The other human, and, much to his dismay, the mere lingered. The two continued to play as if there was nothing wrong with that twisted friendship. Revolted, Villar was driven to leave. He was walking away when the rope snapped. Screams, followed by cries for help, echoed up. No one else heard. By Ma, thank Novrin, the human said as Villar peered over the edge. Can you lower more rope? Can you lower more rope? Villar could still hear that voice in his head. The kid didn't say, sir. He didn't say, please, just, can you lower more rope? A common human child, ordering him to obey with the same sense of disregard and entitlement as a noble. The little brat expected Villar to do as he was told. Why wouldn't he? How many times had the kid seen adults do the same? How many times had he seen grown mere smile and bow as they surrendered their dignity? The two children were treading water in the cistern below. Without the rope, the interior sides, sheer and slick with algae, made the sight a death trap. You really shouldn't be playing in here, Villar said. It's dangerous. That's why there's a cover over this. And it's about to rain. This thing fills up fast in a downpour. It's okay, the little human smiled at him. He had red fleshy cheeks, the sort Mir never had, the kind gained from an abundance of everything. In that smile, a sickening confidence bloomed, an absolute assurance that the world would always take care of him. He hadn't the slightest fear, not the hint of a doubt that Villar would save them. If it rains, the water will lift us up, and we can just climb out. He was right. Even without the rope, the two might survive. If it rained hard enough. They thought he was joking when he closed the lid. The laughs stopped when he secured it with the metal rod the kids had originally removed. With the top closed and the growing roar of rain, no one heard them. Villar regretted that one was a mere. But that was what came from associating with the wrong crowd. Villar was back before dawn to collect his prizes, and neither Dinge nor Nim asked where he had gotten the hearts. Turned out mere hearts worked better, at least for Villar. The human heart resulted in a vague, hazy, intermittent connection. The mere organs formed a clear coupling. The novice summoners speculated that the more similar the heart was to the individual conducting the ritual, the better the connection. Villar became responsible for obtaining hearts for Erasmus and Griswold as well. He spent one heart to gain two or three, four, if he was lucky. The dark, twisted streets of the rookery were ideal for killing the unobservant. Not only did hearts of the underclass work better, hunting them had another advantage. 
Few cared about the death of young Mir, Kaleans, or dwarves. This point was driven home as more and more children died while the city guard did nothing. The poorly run investigations aided Vilar's efforts in provoking people to revolt. Witnesses, when there were any, were ignored or told tales related to the Morgan myth. Vilar glanced at the blue drape across the doorway of the old ruin. He could tell by the sunlight on the cloth that it was nearly midday. The feast would be starting soon. Erasmus was dead. If the foreigner was able to deliver the cow's note to her husband, and if he agreed to changes, Griswold would sit the party out. So would the others. They didn't have the courage of conviction that he had. The citywide uprising he'd hoped for wasn't going to happen. But a single golem, the right golem, let loose at the right place and time, could still do the job. So, before he could crack the next box of remnants and set up his ritual, he needed to take care of one other thing. It was time to kill the Duchess of Rochelle. Jenny didn't like the way Villar looked. She never had, but now he was worse. Something had happened, something bad. He had blood on his chest and a cold expression on his face that suggested he'd suffered more than a bad night's sleep. Then he started tearing the place up. And she knew. She'd guessed something wasn't right the night before, when he arrived alone. Villar had never before visited when Mercator was out, and it scared her. Never once did he call Mercator's name. He knew she wasn't there. Jenny had almost asked about the letter, but kept her mouth shut. The sense that this isn't right, that something had gone wrong, shoved her heart to her throat. Instead, she had watched as he opened a box and checked the contents, something the size of a shriveled apple, gravel, some leaves. To this, he added a few strands of his own hair. Then he closed the box and set the whole thing on the cook fire. Villar took a seat on the floor and spread out a blanket as if he planned to take a nap. He waited for the box to burn until it was mostly consumed. When the wood became ashen white, he lay down and started talking, chanting words Jenny didn't understand. A cloud belched forth from the smoldering box. Villar's eyes were closed as he continued, and she watched bright white smoke snake up from the box, then stream out the doorway, as if it had a mind of its own and places to go. Villar stopped muttering and appeared to fall asleep. Five minutes later, she saw him jerk and twitch. His eyes remained closed, and it seemed like he was having a bad dream. He lay like that for some time, and then his eyes flew open. He gasped in shock and lay panting. Ho! he said, and then fell asleep. She waited for a long time. Then curiosity overwhelmed her, and she took a chance and tried talking to him. But he didn't hear. That was when Jenny knew she had to get busy. She took out the coins and the key and set to work. She didn't know how long she had, so she worked with haste. 
She had tested the coins on single hairs, and they cut just fine. But when it came down to the wholesale hacking of locks, they proved a lot duller than she would have liked. Listening to the deep breaths of Vilar just outside the door, she pulled out as many hairs as she cut. She wanted to believe Makeda was alive. But the fact that Vilar was here, and Makeda wasn't, made that a hard sell. As long as Makeda acted as her jailer, Jenny believed she might survive. Now that there had been a changing of the guard, it was time for her to execute her plan. Like all jailbreaks, it was an all-or-nothing shot. She would either escape or die. That kind of pressure made it hard to hold her finger steady on the coins. This isn't going to work. This is crazy. What am I doing? Something. I'm doing something. And something is oh so much better than nothing. I may die, but I'm not just going to sit here and give up. It's a chance, damn it. So quit thinking and cut. Turned out there was no rush. Villar slept through to the morning. When he finally woke, he was in a bad mood. He washed, then began looking around, going through Mercator's things. And Jenny had a sinking feeling she knew what he searched for. Villar came to the door of the cell. He grabbed the latch, but it wouldn't move. Makeda had asked Griswold to make locks for the door and the collar. They opened with keys, keys he didn't have. No knife, no key. Makeda is dead and still causing me grief. Villar turned over crates once more and threw aside folds of linen and wool. His frustration turned to anger, and he began smashing things in his search. He even kicked the suspended pot, knocking down the tripod of metal poles, which clanked and scraped across the stone. Villar went through the barrels and shook out rags. Why is this so hard? Did she keep the key with her too? Why would she take it? Why not leave it in easy reach, hang it on the wall? He saw it then. A shiny key was dangling from a hook just to the side of the door. Why he hadn't seen it before, he had no idea, except he wouldn't have expected Makeda to act in such a rational way. After the missing knife, he had assumed she wouldn't be sensible about the key. By the time he snatched it off the hook, Villar's blood was up. He was ready for murder. Still, the idea of actually strangling the noble bitch, of touching her, was awful. Then he remembered the metal poles. Better to beat her to death. I can do that. Returning to the pot and its stand, he saw a blade in the bottom of the empty container, a small one, not much bigger than a paring knife. Mercator had left it where she used it the most. With a grin, Villar took it. Holding the little knife in one hand and the key in the other, he returned to the locked door. He was so enraged, his hand shook, and he had a hard time putting the key in the lock. He was forced to put the knife under his arm as he used two hands to steady the key. Watch it not work. He turned and felt the tumblers engage. The bolt slid free. Ha! Finally, something went right. Pulling the door back, he spotted the Duchess. 
The lazy bitch was still asleep on the floor. She had one of Mercator's blankets over her such that only her head was visible, and only the top of that. He could see the chain looping from the wall to the collar, which was lost below her long, sandy locks of hair. That had been Mercator's idea. She needed to be able to feed the cow, and that meant opening the door. Without a chain on the big woman, she'd be able to overpower Mercator the moment she popped the lock. Chained up by the neck, she was helpless. He took a step into the room, then stopped. Something wasn't right. A lot of things, in fact. The figure underneath the blanket was too small. He could see her hair peeking out from where her head should be, from where the chain led. Only there was no bulge, no head, just hair. For an instant, he thought all the days of starving had magically shrunk her to the size of a skinny dwarf. But that wasn't possible. A kick revealed all. One blanket was laid over straw, and another bunched up to look like a body. There was a pile of cut hair, and the collar, the empty collar. He turned and caught sight of her bolting out the door. She had waited just to its side when he entered. Out she went, trying to slam the door closed behind her, trying to lock him in. The old bovine was no match for a mere. Villar kicked the door wide, throwing her flat on her back. She screamed, thrusting her hands out to ward him off. Time to die, you fat cow. Chapter 26 Haggling Explain something to me, Royce, Hadrian said as the two struggled up the slope. Why did Meribor create picker bushes? Did he? Royce asked, fighting through a thicket of fallen deadwood, high grass, and a wicked snarl of the thorny bush Hadrian was taking issue with. Thought he was just the god of men, not Flora. Oh, you might be right. Bet Evelyn would know. With any luck, she's long gone. I don't think we're going to find this place. Royce paused to wipe his face with his sleeve. That was when Hadrian knew it was hot. He, of course, was soaked with sweat. His shirt stuck unpleasantly to the center of his back. Worse, the material of his pants clung to his thighs, making it hard to move. Royce rarely perspired. But that day, his hood was back, his forehead slick and shiny, his hair sticking. Two days before, it had felt like it might snow. But now, summer appeared to have leapfrogged spring. Trudging uphill, across sodden grass and through brambles as formidable as castle walls didn't help. I get the strong feeling we're wasting our time, Roy said, waving a hand before his face to clear away the mini storm cloud of tiny black bugs. He turned and looked behind them to where the city of Rochelle spread out below. It wouldn't be this far out, would it? Hadrian shrugged. We're coming into a forest now. He nodded at the staggered line of pine and spruce that grew just up the slope. The trees were gathered in small groups as if chatting about their neighbors. But farther on, they marshaled en masse, forming a dense forest that covered the base of a coastal mountain. Was there a forest on the map? Do you remember? Royce shook his head. No, but these trees are, what, 
thirty, forty years old, probably been cut for firewood for generations. That map goes back hundreds of years. No telling what this place might have looked like then. The only positive thing is that it does make sense for Villar to be out here. The seclusion is ideal. I can't imagine too many people coming up this way if they didn't have to. Hadrian took advantage of Royce's pause and plopped down in the grass. At least the puddles left by the previous days of rain were cool. He scooped up a handful and wetted the back of his neck. Then he lay back and stared up at the blue sky and white clouds. Beautiful day. Doesn't seem right. What doesn't? Royce asked, scanning the way ahead and not looking pleased. That such awful things should happen on such nice days. You'd rather be up here in the rain? I was thinking more about the people down there. You saw them this morning, all dressed up in their finest clothes. Been a long, dark winter. They just want a little happiness. And on the first good day in months, what happens? It's not fair. Royce gave Hadrian a puzzled look. That's so odd. What? Here we are, fighting brambles and slick, muddy slopes, while trying to find a madman before he massacres hundreds. And your thoughts are focused on how unfair it is for the people having a grand time at a festival. Why is that odd? Why wouldn't you think of us struggling in this heat against these thorny vines, while breathing in these tiny black flies? Isn't that unfair? Why can't we be eating pork and dancing with ladies on such a fine day? Hadrian chuckled. What? Why is that funny? It isn't. It's just, I have this image in my head of you dancing. Can't get past it. Royce frowned. I'm just saying it's strange that you feel sorry for them rather than us. Well, I do feel sorry for you, if that makes it better. Royce clapped his hands together before his face, trying to kill some of the swarm that plagued him. Why? Because you can't understand why it is I would feel sorry for them. Makes me think your world is very small. Oh, Roy said, sounding disappointed. I thought you were going to say something else. Really? What? Royce made a <laughs> sound, spitting as if the flies had invaded his mouth. He stepped back from the brambles, waving his hands before his face as he retreated. Miserable little horrors. Why do they do that? Fly right into our mouth, eyes, and nose. It makes no sense. They can't like it. I certainly don't. There's no benefit to be had, and yet into my mouth they go. What was it you thought I was going to say? Oh. Royce washed a hand over his face. I thought you might be on the verge of apologizing for volunteering to be a martyr last night. Apologize? Are you kidding? I saved us. Is that how you see it? Is there another way? You put me in a very unpleasant position. Hadrian sat up to face him. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you the one tied up all night while our dwarf played with a knife, reminding you about his intention to slit your throat? Because I thought that was me. Royce was struggling, trying to extract something from his tongue with two fingers. A fly, no doubt. He got something, peered at it in disgust, and gave it a flick. You're supposed to be learning from me. You can't do that if you don't listen. Learn from you, Hadrian said. I think you've got that backward, pal. Arcadius teamed us up so I could teach you. 
Royce, who had moved on to cleaning his eyes, paused. Did you just call me pal? Yeah, it means friend, literally brother. I know what it means. So it's just your hearing that's going. If you want to talk about odd, that would certainly qualify. You have the most disturbingly acute ears of anyone I've ever met. Seriously, I don't know how you sleep at night. The crickets must drive you insane. It's not the crickets. It's definitely not the crickets. Hadrian smirked. I would think that this job would have convinced you of the virtues of being a decent human being. Look at Roland. My friendship with him has helped us. Not just once, but twice. Being respectful to Evelyn has reaped huge rewards. And we lived last night because, a long time ago, I acted honorably. Was that the same night you helped slaughter a town? Royce asked. And it wasn't that long ago, was it? You're not that old. Because of nights like that, I feel old. So, which was it? Royce asked. Were you saved because of a kindness extended to a girl? Or were you in jeopardy in the first place because you and your compatriots killed most, but not all, of the people during that battle? It's because I protected Seton. Are you sure? What would you have protected her from if the town hadn't been sacked? And if you hadn't been so proficient with your sword, the other soldiers might not have granted her to you. Which makes me wonder, what actually made the difference? Your kindness or your cruelty? Why is it you choose to see the darkness in everything? Because it's there, and ignoring that fact invites peril. But light is also there, and recognizing it allows happiness. What good is being happy if you're dead? What good is being alive if you're miserable? Royce paused, and for a moment Hadrian was certain he had won. Royce was stumped, but then he tilted his head. What's up, boy? Hadrian asked. You hear something? Wasn't funny the first time, Royce said. A moment later, a woman's scream came from up the hill. I'm not just going to kill her. Villar realized this with the perfect clarity that accompanied every mistake he had made while the noble cow hid to the side of the door. She had plotted to lock him in. He imagined her literally as a bovine with black and white spots. In his mind's eye, he saw her standing on her back legs, a massive tongue licking the broad pink nostrils of her nose, waiting with hooves up and together like a begging dog, hoping he would fall for the bait. The moment he opened the door, the second he rushed in so blindly, focused on her decoy of blankets and straw, was the same second she slipped out. He almost fell for it. The hair and the chain. His mind had registered those two things as incontrovertible evidence that she lay on the floor near the back wall. How could he conclude anything else? If her neck wore a collar attached to a chain secured to a wall, the odds were strong the rest of her was there as well. His eyes and his mind had joined together in a conspiracy to betray him. If the room was bigger or the cow smaller, the ruse might have worked. The realization of how close he'd come to a fatal mistake was frightening. As she lay on the floor screaming, Villar felt his heart pound from the near miss. He took a second to breathe, to calm down. 
Then he adjusted the grip on his knife. She scuttled away, kicking out with her legs like a crab. When she rolled to her knees and started to stand, he grabbed her. The Duchess was no dainty woman, no slender flower. She equaled his height and outweighed him by twenty pounds. With a sharp lurch, she slammed her body against his, knocking him back against the wall, nearly throwing him to the floor. The assault also knocked the Duchess off balance, and she went down to one knee. He was after her an instant later, but the old cow threw everything she could find at him, including two of the heavy urns. One hit his hand, knocking the knife free. He grabbed it up just in time to see the Duchess making for the door. He was on her then, catching her in the middle of the room. One hand latched onto her butchered hair, pulling her head back, while the other brought up the knife. She continued to twist and kick until the knife reached her neck. Stop. Villar looked up as the two foreigners burst into the temple. The smaller one had that white knife, the one that had stabbed the golem and somehow cut his chest. The other, the big one Seaton had called the Raza, held two blades, one in each hand. Kill her, and you die, Royce shouted. A portly woman, whom Hadrian assumed to be the Duchess of Rochelle, was on her knees, panting, sweating, her head pulled back. Villar stood behind her, his left hand holding a fist of the woman's hair, his right holding a dagger near her throat. Help me, Jenny Winter cried. Irritated by the outburst, Villar pulled her head further back, causing the Duchess to cry out once more. Drop your weapons, Villar said. Royce made a sound like he was clearing his nose. Why? Do it, or I'll kill her. Royce glanced at Hadrian. Didn't I already explain that if he kills her, I'll kill him? You did. So what is this idiot doing? Threatening us with suicide? Royce asked. He's under the impression you care about her life. Really? Royce chuckled. It's an easy mistake. You did order him not to kill her, and besides, he doesn't know you. Okay, sure. But even if I were someone else, I mean, why would anyone surrender? Would you? Even if that person cared if she lives, Vilar is still at a disadvantage. It's like trading pieces in chess. Sure, he would lose her, but then he loses the entire game. On the other hand, if we surrender, he'll kill all of us, and we get nothing. No one would take that deal. It's stupid. Not to mention, I'm going to get paid whether she's dead or not. Hadrian focused on Villar. That's his way of saying, we aren't going to put our weapons down. But if you kill her... Well, I'm sure you got the rest. Villar hesitated, the knife unsteady at the woman's throat. You need to make a deal, boys, Jenny said, her voice steady. Villar made you an offer, so now you counter. That's how haggling works, so now it's your turn. What do you propose? Royce shook his head. Don't have to counter. Yes, you do, the Duchess cried. You want me to live, or we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Of course, right. But we're at an impasse, so you need to deal. Got it? Who sort are you on? Royce asked. Her eyes widened in surprise. My own, obviously. I want to live. Now listen, 
she allowed herself to swallow. In the small room, it made a sound they all heard. I don't want to die. But that's beside the point, because, bizarrely, this has nothing to do with me. It's between the three of you. You don't want him to kill me, and Villard doesn't want you to kill him. That's good, because you both have something the other wants. Everyone can win here, even me. No one said anything, as all three waited. Okay, good. How about this? Villa let me go, and you let him go. How does that sound? Royce smiled. Fine with me. Go ahead. Let her go. There. You see? Jenny said. Villa shook his head. You think I'm an idiot? The moment I let you go, they'll rush me. This won't work. It's stupid. We can't make a deal. And if I'm going to die, then I'm taking- It's not stupid, Jenny shouted as the blade pressed against her skin. I can make any deal work. It's what I do. Now shut up and listen to me. I'm not letting you go so long as they can chase after me the moment I do. Fine, fine, no problem. This will be easy. It will? Hadrian asked. Absolutely, the Duchess replied. Vilar, how would it be if these nice gentlemen and I got into the cell and you locked us in? That way, you're free and no one can harm you. What's to stop him from... Roy started. Shut up, Jenny shouted. Whoever you are, please, just be quiet. His name's Royce, and I'm Hadrian Blackwater. How nice. Now, Royce, Hadrian, please shut up and let me handle this, will you? She forced a smile. The two of you will keep your weapons. That way, you won't be at Villar's mercy. Locked in a room, sure, but safely locked in a room. That's not very... Royce began. Shush! I don't want to hear arguments or counter-proposals. We have a deal on the table. Will you agree? Royce looked at the door, huffed, then said, Fine. Hadrian? Yeah, sure. Why not? Villar? You want to live, and so do I. This is a fair trade, a better than equitable exchange. My life for yours. Will you take it? Villar didn't reply. Lower the knife and let me move back while these two enter the cell. Then I'll get in. You can lock the door and just walk out. He still didn't answer, but slowly the knife moved away from Jenny's throat. She waved for Royce and Hadrian to enter the cell. Gentlemen, if you please. Royce looked disgusted but stepped in. Hadrian went so far as to sheathe his swords before entering. Then Jenny Winter followed the two of them. Villar shoved her forward into the room, slammed the door shut, and turned the key that he'd left in the lock. The moment the door sealed, Jenny threw her arms around Hadrian and kissed him. I love you! After the embrace, she started toward Royce, whose dagger was still out. Hadrian pulled her back. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Royce isn't much of a hugger. Well, gentlemen, you have my eternal gratitude. But who in Meribor's name are you? And what are you doing here? Your father sent us to rescue you, Hadrian said. He hired us to discover 
what happens to you, Royce corrected as he moved to the door. He knelt before the latch. And you did both. You're my heroes. I'll knight you or make you earls or something. Hadrian smiled at her. I think only kings can do that. Kings? The woman burst out. Leo, I need to find my husband. I need to show the bishop I'm still alive so Leo can be crowned king. Should have thought of that before locking us in a stone room, Hadrian said. I did, Jenny replied. She pointed at Royce, who had just managed to pop the lock and open the door. Royce immediately raced out like a dog released from a cage after being teased by an arrogant squirrel. You knew he could pick locks, Hadrian asked the Duchess. I knew he wasn't the type to allow himself to be confined in a cell unless he was positive he could get out. Business is like a card game. You have to judge people quickly and play the odds. Hadrian looked out the open door. Royce was already so far away they could no longer hear him. At that moment, the only sound came from the breeze and birds. Look, I have to help Royce find Villar, Hadrian said. You need to stay here. Safest place, really. I know you want to go down to the feast, but right now that's not such a good idea. We'll be back after we find Villar. Then we'll escort you back to town. And if you don't return, shall I stay here and starve? Or should I wander through the wilderness until I die of exposure? Look, we will be back, I promise. But if it makes you feel better, town is straight that way. He pointed at the door. Just keep heading down the hill and you'll run right into Rochelle. Just don't go until we get back. Why not? It could be dangerous. The Duchess scoffed. I'm not some fragile debutante. I'm sure I can manage a hike downhill to town. Adrian glanced outside. I'm never going to catch up with Royce now. I didn't even see which way he went. Look, I'm wasting valuable time. You just have to trust me on this. If we can't find Villar, if he gets away, there's a chance he might create a monster and attack the feast. Jenny Winter blinked. Hadrian saw the confusion on her face. It's called a golem, a monster made of stone. The explanation sounded absurd even to him. Villar made one before. If he does it again, he'll slaughter everyone at the feast. So you don't want to go there, understand? Her hand went to her mouth. Leo, she whispered, and her eyes darted toward the door. Look, I know you're worried, but there's nothing you can do. Truly, you need to stay here. Don't leave. Keep yourself safe. With that, he ran out in pursuit of Villar and Royce. Chapter 27 The Spring Feast Jenny had never been in the best of shape, and being trapped for over two weeks in a small cell, eating next to nothing, had only made matters worse. The moment Hadrian left, she bolted toward the city and was soon sweating rivers and heaving for breath. Blood pounded in her head, her chest burned, and she'd only run fifty feet. Three times she stumbled. Twice she nearly fell. Run, feet, run! Her whole focus was on the ground before her. Don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, rock! Don't fall, don't fall, tree! On and on she went, 
only vaguely registering the blur of green and brown and the warmth of a hot sun baking her skin, something she hadn't felt in days. The heat was nice, but it made her perspire. By the time she hit pavement, she was soaked, struggling to see through sweat-filled eyes. She had come down out of the trees and fields and entered the broken ruins of the rookery. She'd seen the place before, but only from the window of a carriage, and only the part of the destitute neighborhood that bordered Little Gurham near the harbor. When she emerged from the forest, she was in the shattered heart of this neglected corner of the realm. Grass grew up through the cobblestones and the entrances to buildings. Last year's leaves remained in corners where the wind had gathered them. The old buildings with their empty windows and missing doors looked hollow, cadaverous. Some were missing walls. Rotting plows and rims of broken wheels rusted on the street or in the yards. Despite the neglect, Jenny spotted yellow and purple wildflowers sprouting everywhere, even on the roofs of some buildings. She loved flowers and seeing them again made her smile to the point of crying. I'm alive. Jenny found she couldn't get enough air, as if the world were suddenly in short supply, and her chest burned from the effort of trying. Blood flushed her face. She could feel it hot and full, and her heart continued to pound a loud beat. When did running become so difficult? When she was younger, and a whole lot thinner, she used to run everywhere. Never once had her head felt like a cork in a shaken bottle of sparkling wine. When did that change? The answer came quickly, and in the form of another question. When was the last time I ran? When I was a child. When I was thin. Now I'm... Little wonder Leo doesn't love me. No one could possibly love this. Tears added to her torment. She ought to hate Leo, but at that moment what she wanted most was to see his face and know he was safe. All she could remember were the laughs they shared. He was so comfortable to be with, never making her feel ugly or awkward, never hurting or belittling her. Even Jenny's father had a tendency to condescend, to trivialize her feelings. Leo actually listened or did a damn fine impression of it. He never told her no, never tried to rein her in, or told her to behave. Thinking about it, she wondered if his refusal to protect her from ridicule was less evidence that he didn't care, and more a sign of respect that she could handle herself. And they agreed on so much. At times it felt as if they were the same person. Jenny slowed down. She was out of the rookery, somewhere between Littleton and Little Gurham. This was the trade and business district, filled with warehouses and workshops, and strangely few people. Everyone is at the festival. Leo was most certainly there, seated as close as possible to the bishop, trying to impress Tynewell and sway his favor. If I'm not there, will he be disqualified? Will someone else be chosen? For Meribor's sake, how pathetic am I being? What does it matter who wears the crown? I nearly died, but I'm still alive. I'm free. 
I'm married to a goddamn duke and I live in a lavish estate. What's there to complain about? So what if he doesn't love me? Who cares? I love him, and I'll keep on loving him. Bishop Oswald Tynewell stood behind the many panes of glass that formed the great rose window directly above the front doors of Grom Gallimus. Eight stories up, he had a perfect, unobstructed view of the plaza below. The dancing had stopped, and the rope dividers had been removed. Everyone advanced to take their seats at one of twenty tables set up in four rows circling the statue of Novron. Oswald marveled at the accuracy with which they were placed. No one down there could see the spacing the way he could. The fourth row, on the right side, was off a little, and it irked him for no reason he could fathom. The banquet tables appeared tiny from his vantage point, though he knew each seated twelve, and that meant more than two hundred nobles were gathered. From where Oswald stood, they appeared as little colorful dots, bright blue specks. The rest of the city's citizenry, as well as the throngs of visitors, were forced to stay back behind rope barriers that outlined the plaza. Those who, until recently, had been dancing and singing on the paving stones before the cathedral became sweaty spectators of the momentous event that they expected to reveal itself soon. The event will certainly be momentous and absolutely worth witnessing, just not too closely. Not everyone was there. Some of the lesser nobles, such as those who had resigned themselves to monasteries, hadn't come. Also absent were women who were old and unmarried. Inviting them would have appeared strange, if not openly suspicious. Monks and spinsters were nothing for Oswald to be concerned about, None of them could be considered serious contenders for the throne. Oswald's immediate concern centered on the fact that food was being brought out, yet nothing had happened. If the servants pulled the lids off the plates, if they began serving without his presence, there would be concern. Already heads were repeatedly turning to look at the door of Grom Gallimus. Everyone was waiting for his entrance, waiting for him to give his speech and explain who the new king of Alban would be. Or at least, how the person would be chosen. Oswald had no intention of coming out. The church was one of the few safe places in the city. At least, that was what Villar had told him. And he ought to know. That mirror was doubling in powers best left untapped, but if doing so got the job done, who was he to argue with results? Still, magic could be unpredictable, and Tynewell didn't want to leave his survival in the hands of those who might not be able to control the evil they were planning to unleash. While the Novronian Empire had once employed wizards, magic had also been the source of its destruction. As such, after the fall of the great capital city, magic had been eradicated from the world by edict of the church. Only the truly evil practiced the forbidden art. Its use was grounds for both excommunication and execution. That Villar planned to employ the dark art was further evidence of his vile character. Oswald shivered at the thought of his association with the mere. And yet, 
What else could he do? To obtain what he wanted, some rules needed to be bent and some lines needed to be crossed. Oswald felt that so long as he closed his eyes beforehand, he could step over those lines and still absolve himself of guilt by way of ignorance. Besides, no one could tell him that the sinking of the eternal empire was virtuous. Sin was often the bridge to salvation. Time kept ticking, and still nothing happened. No revolt, no attack from magical creatures. Oswald pondered what excuse he would give when at last he was forced to emerge. Perhaps he could put them off, saying he still hadn't decided. No, that wouldn't work. The kingdom had already gone five months without a king. A contest. He would have to go with that. But what sort? One that was impossible to achieve might be good. It would buy him time to... From outside the window, and through the many panes of glass, came the sounds of shouts. At first, they were merely cries of surprise. Then they turned to exclamations of fear. In the plaza below, faces looked up and fingers pointed at the great marble statue of Novron that graced the center of the square. Some seventeen feet tall, the sculpture was a marvel of artistry, a source of inspiration, and a point of reverence. But never before had it elicited cries of fear. Oswald couldn't understand the source of the panic until he realized that Novron, who for generations had looked across the plaza to the cathedral, was now looking down at his feet. A moment later, the statue shifted, twisting its torso and drawing forth its sword. A miracle! Oswald stared in stunned wonder. The god Novron has come to life! Many of the nobles believed similarly as they remained in the square, moving away but not fleeing. A few even went so far as to approach the giant figure. Florette Killian, for instance, who was dressed in his long velvet gown of solid blue with a matching cape, was the first to advance. The attire was so inappropriate for the weather, but so apropos for a man to be crowned in. Perhaps Florette saw this animated statue of Novron as a machination of the church. Maybe he thought it was the test their bishop had arranged to find Alban's next king. Fleeing from it might prove a lack of faith. Surely the bishop knew Novron would attend in person, and he would be the one to anoint the next ruler. Why else would the bishop insist that all nobles in the kingdom be present? Why else would he wait so long to declare the identity of the new ruler? Yes, of course. Meribor had told the bishop that his son would make an appearance at the spring festival, and he wanted to ensure that everyone would be on hand to view this miracle. Then the marble Novron began killing people. One of Novron's giant sandals came down on Florette's side and crushed him against the paving stones. From that point on, the statue left red prints wherever that foot landed. With the other leg, Novron kicked Killian's two sons across the plaza. Oswald was certain from the stain on the marble shin that they had died the moment the leg hit them. This was merely the preamble. Once Novron was off his pedestal and had his feet firmly planted, 
he began swinging the sword. A good eight feet in length, the huge marble weapon hewed through swaths of people, all conveniently clumped together. With each successive stroke, the once immaculate statue turned scarlet from the spray and splash of blood. Oswald clutched his throat in horror. He stood transfixed by the speed of the massacre. He was appalled that a mere had chosen to defile the most sacred symbol of the church as his instrument of murder caused him to hit the panes of the rose window with his fists. How dare he? His horror at the shrieks of the dying and the soon-to-die was overpowered by outrage at the humiliation being wrought upon the faith by a mere using the image of Novron as a tool of destruction. This is intolerable. Revolution was one thing, dark magic another. But this, this was an inconceivable perversion. He had to do something. He jogged to the stairs and raced down. Tynewell had no thought as to what he would do when he got to the bottom, but his indignation was overwhelming. He tripped on his own robes and fell the last three steps, but he refused to feel the pain. Grabbing up a wrought iron candlestick, he ran from his office to the massive front doors. There he stood, puffing from exertion, leaning on the iron stand and staring around at the empty cathedral while outside the screams continued. He didn't dare open the doors. Instead, he peered out through the windows at the massive animated statue wreaking havoc on the plaza. And just when the bishop felt it couldn't be worse, another towering statue arrived. Villar didn't notice the arrival of Glen Morgan, which was odd, given that the one-time ruler of the Stuart's empire stood a good twelve feet tall, and his boots crushed cobblestone to gravel. Villar was preoccupied, giddy, by his delight in crushing the life out of Alburn's rulers, using their own god. The statue of Novron was huge, and so different from the smaller gargoyles he had been used to. It moved slowly, reacting on a delay, but it was powerful beyond belief. And he liked the view. The statue was so tall he could see everything, everything except Glen Morgan. That revelation reached him in the form of a tackling blow. Villar wasn't actually in the plaza. He was remotely operating the golem just as he had done with gargoyles so many times before. And while both Novron the Great and the statue of Glen Morgan who normally stood on a pedestal in the center of the Imperial Gallery, slammed into a stone pylon that commemorated the war heroes of the First Battle of Villan Hills. Villar didn't feel a thing. He also didn't feel the repeated blows Glen Morgan hammered him with. He did, however, see the chips of marble broken from his chest by Glen Morgan's fists. Griswold. With Erasmus Nim dead, only the dwarf had the knowledge and ingredients to raise another golem. He's trying to stop me. Villar rolled away, pushing back to his stony feet. Glenmorgan refused to let up and grabbed him from behind. Leaping on Novron's back, he threw an arm around the emperor's neck and squeezed. Griswold might be a dwarf, 
a member of the race who had unlocked the secrets of the golem. But he lacked experience at running one. They had let Villar do all the work, all the prior murders in stone form. They had been lazy, and now the dwarf would pay the price. Griswold fought like a person. An easy mistake. Villar had done the same his first few times, only neither one was flesh, and stone doesn't breathe. Choking was pointless. Crushing and falling, on the other hand, was devastating. Before she arrived, Jenny was met by a stampede. Hundreds of gaily dressed people fled from the plaza. Ladies in spring gowns and men in hose and buckles ran as if Uberlin were in pursuit. A woman in a light blue dress with white lace cuffs waved harshly at her. Run, she cried. Novron is killing everyone. She might as well have said Grom Gallimus was dancing a jig, for all the sense that made, and Jenny didn't even slow down. Not that she was moving all that fast. Her one bit of luck was that everywhere she had run that day had been downhill. No, no, go back! The man holding a fanciful hat in his hands waved at her. Everyone has been killed down there! Jenny did slow down then. The man's words hadn't retarded her speed, but the smear of blood across the side of his face gave her pause. That streak of gore made her take his warning seriously. And yet it still didn't stop her. She continued down Center Street, to where it joined Vintage Avenue. From there, she had an unobstructed view of the plaza. Two giant stone statues were locked in battle, one on the other's back with an arm around its neck. Below them was a horrific display of colors. Like blueberries and strawberry jam, bodies lay on the blood-soaked paving stones of the plaza. Jenny continued moving forward. Leo? She scanned the bodies. They were a ghastly mess. And she didn't think she would be able to identify him in that tumbled, macabre mass. But she thought she might spot the vest. It was so bright. Then Jenny remembered she hadn't bought it. But even if she had, she wouldn't have had the chance to give it to him. They took her before she returned home. I wish I had given you something. She cried once more. If any doubt hid within the shadows of her heart that she still loved Leo Hargrave, it was washed away by those tears. Even if Leo doesn't love me, he's a good man, kind man. I couldn't love anyone this much if that wasn't true. Something blue moved. A man near the edge of the plaza struggled to crawl. One of his legs was twisted unnaturally, and he hauled himself away by the strength of his arms, leaving a trail of red in his wake. Overhead, the giants staggered, their massive stone legs bashing the paving stones so hard they shook the spring day decorations off the walls. The statue of Novron was struggling to throw off the statue of Glen Morgan, and in the effort, four feet repeatedly bombarded the plaza, threatening to crush the desperate man. Jenny's heart leapt at the possibility that it might be Leo, and she rushed forward into the Red Sea beneath the stone-footed hailstorm. She quickly realized it wasn't him. This man was younger, thinner, 
she didn't stop. Even if it wasn't Leo, it could have been, and she wanted to help him just as she hoped someone was helping the man she loved. Without even looking at the statues, and gasping for every ounce of air she could haul into her chest, Jenny grabbed hold of the man by the shoulders of his tunic and pulled. In her younger days, the Duchess of Rochelle had hauled, rolled, and stacked casks of whiskey along with the men. The cripple on the plaza was lighter than any cask she had ever hauled. She dragged him away from the carnage with speed, if not gentleness. Jenny wasn't certain where this extra burst of energy came from. It didn't matter. She had it and was going to make use of the newfound strength. She pulled the survivor out of harm's way. Then the ground shook, and there was a great crack. Novron had managed to lift Glen Morgan, flip him over his shoulder, and slam him down hard on the plaza's pavers. While the Emperor God had been chiseled from solid marble, Glen Morgan had been sculpted from lesser stone. The huge ruler of the Stuart's empire, who had once stood in the center of the imperial gallery, broke. Just to be certain, Novron brought his foot down and shattered his adversary, scattering the pieces across the plaza. Jenny had dragged the wounded man a short way up Vintage Avenue, but it wasn't far enough. The giant marble monster was finishing off the wounded, crushing them under his massive feet. He would notice them before long. The wounded man knew it too, and she felt him cringe. Vintage Avenue was one of the finer streets in the city, and equipped with storm drains. The large pipes ran under the street and flushed rainwater to the nearby river. The mouths were as big as barrels. A normal-sized man could wriggle in and disappear. Crawl into that drain. Get as deep as possible without falling in, she told him. I'll be right behind. She heard the slam of stone on stone. Looking back at the square, she realized the golem had spotted them. The giant statue began its uphill charge. Damn, she cursed. They couldn't both shimmy into that drainpipe in time. Tell Leo I love him, she said, and ran away from the wounded man. As she did, Jenny flailed her arms and shouted, Vilar, you son of a whorish weirbat! I'm still alive, and you're still ugly. She wasn't committing suicide, although she realized it might have looked like it. To the wounded noble, she probably appeared to be sacrificing herself to save him. In reality, she had a plan. Her strategy was to catch Vilar's attention and lure the golem away, granting the nobleman time to escape. This was an easy decision and a simple choice, given that Jenny had concluded she couldn't possibly fit into even a barrel-sized pipe. The second part of her plan was less thought out. She hoped to make it to the carriage shop across the street in time to find shelter for herself. This latter part wasn't likely, not by a long shot. So maybe this wasn't such a smart idea after all. The reality of her situation crystallized when her exhausted legs finally gave out. With muscles screaming from fatigue, Jenny stumbled on the uneven cobblestones. Then she fell face first in the street as the giant statue of Novron closed in. Chapter 28
Hide and seek. Royce followed a dirt path outside the ruin, looking for clues. He wasn't certain what he hoped to find. A dropped note penned by Villar saying, I went this way, would have been helpful. Hadrian eventually exited the ruins and circled them twice before wading into where the hawthorn bushes were thick. Royce had no idea where the Duchess was. Still in the cell, if she was smart. Villar might have returned to the city or gone deeper into the forest. Both plans had advantages and drawbacks. The city was downhill, but the terrain was mainly open. The forest was closer and offered cover. Which way did he go? Hadrian emerged from the brambles. Find anything? Nope, Royce replied. The two met back at the ruins. The search was extra credit, and it wouldn't result in any higher payment. Royce was only looking because Villar had nearly killed him on not just one, but two occasions. He didn't like loose ends, and Royce made a point of not letting those that opposed him live. He scanned the domed building. Such an odd place. The roof was the most striking feature. Forty feet high and massive. Royce was no engineer, but he couldn't imagine that creating a dome out of stone was an easy task. The only other one he'd seen was on the top of Grom Gallimus, and he wasn't certain what that was made of. Looked like gold, but probably was just painted that color. This roof was assembled from solid, hand-cut rock, no mortar, each stone precisely fashioned. What is this place? Too small for a cathedral, monastery, or church. Too elaborate for a house. It appeared to be a temple of some sort, like an overgrown chapel. You want to give up, don't you? Hadrian asked. Not giving up. We found Jenny Winter, even saved her life. I bet Gabriel will pay us extra for that. Job is done. Besides, Vilar could be anywhere. Pretty good bet he went to Grom Gallimus. Hadrian said, as the two entered the temple. Villar doesn't seem like the type to just give up. Not our problem. We did. They both halted abruptly, only a few steps inside the ruined temple. The first thing Royce noticed was the smell. The interior had an awful odor akin to, Smells like someone roasted a dog in here, Hadrian whispered. The whisper said more than the words. Hadrian had come to the same conclusion Royce had. Royce took another step and peered into the cell. The room, the whole temple, was deserted. But if that was true, where's the Duchess? He whispered back. I'm guessing on our way back to Rochelle, Hadrian replied. He had one hand on the handle of his short sword as he carefully moved toward the fire. What had been a nearly extinguished pile of faintly smoking ash had come back to life. Flames continued to lick at a mostly consumed stack of wood. Royce glanced behind him at the doorway they had entered. He looked at the floor near the wall and found it bare. There was a box here, Royce said. I saw it when I came out of the cell. Hadrian nodded. Like the one Griswold gave Erasmus. I think that's what's burning. Royce stared at the fire. Villar didn't run away. He doubled back. 
That's crazy. We were just outside looking for him. That's a huge gamble. All his stuff is here. He had to come back. He waited for us to leave, probably figured we would go back to Rochelle and look for him at the cathedral, just like you said. When we ran out, he rushed back in. Not a bad idea, considering it's the one place we knew he couldn't be. Royce and Hadrian began a systematic search of the debris, but found nothing. So, where is he now? Jenny expected to be crushed. She thought the stone novron would stomp her like a bag of grapes. But instead, the god emperor's head cocked to one side, as if listening. Then it abruptly turned and charged east between the gallery and the cathedral. It didn't quite run. Jenny wasn't certain something that big and heavy could. But the long legs gave it the speed of a horse. She watched it leave dumbfounded. Where's it going? Genevieve? The man she had pulled clear called out from the mouth of the drainpipe, looking like a groundhog peering out of its hole. Jenny rolled to one side. She wasn't getting up. That was way too much effort. Instead, she crawled over the cobblestones. She recognized the blood-smeared face of Armand Calder. Oh, of some place. She didn't know him well. She'd only seen him once during her wedding. She seemed to recall he might have kissed her hand. He was a lesser lord, no one of great account in the world of Alban politics. Hello, army. How are you doing? She responded with a ridiculous smile. Hanging in there, right? You're gonna be fine. Might not be dancing for a while, but you'll be up and about in no time, trust me. I'm gonna see to that. Armand shook his head. Either it was the pain, which looked considerable given the condition of his leg that had been facing the wrong way when she'd found him, or the terror had finally caught up. But she saw tears in the Earl of Someplace's eyes. It just came to life and started killing everyone. Everyone. He shuddered as he spoke. Everyone. The word hurt to hear. Yet hope, like a wisp of smoke in the temporary absence of a breeze, lingered. What about- Jenny stopped herself. She needed to know. Have you seen my- Leo wasn't here, Amand stated. Luckily, Jenny was already on her hands and knees. Even so, she nearly collapsed. Are you saying- I mean, are you sure? The news was too wonderful to accept. Jenny so desperately desired to believe Armand that her need made her hesitate. I'm only hearing what I want to hear. His spot, the chair next to Florette's, was empty all morning, the Earl told her. Are you sure? Jenny replied. We're talking about Leopold Hargrave, Duke of Rochelle. Yes, Armand nodded. Your husband. But Leo, he- he never showed up, Amand said. Guess he didn't want to be king as much as the rest of us. Lucky him. Jenny's body was still begging for air from all her exertion. But at that moment, she held her breath. Do you know where Leo is? He was out looking for you. Everyone was talking about it. 
Jenny breathed. Army, she said, crawling the rest of the way to the Earl of someplace. Army, you sweet, sweet man. She helped pull him out of the cobblestones and covered him with a discarded cloak, tucking the edges around his neck. You hang on. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to see you get through this. I swear by every god there is that I will. She meant it. Every word. Jenny decided then and there that she would defend Armand Calder with the last beat of her heart, for he had given her a gift beyond value, beyond imagining, beyond her wildest dreams. Leo wasn't just alive. Leo loved her. They were beneath the dome in a generally round room, with the fire pit in the middle. The interior was a mess of overturned crates, urns, and scattered piles of wool, of which there was a surprising amount. Royce and Hadrian had dug through the clutter, several tall clay pots stained with tears of blue dye, an overturned wooden tub, mounds and mounds of raw wool. But no vilar. Royce heard something outside, a distant thumping sound, like someone running. He darted out, certain that Villar had broken from cover and was making a dash for it. But the sound was louder than the pounding of hooves. It sounded like, Royce. Hadrian poked his head out of the doorway and then joined him. Royce, what is that? Peering between the oak tree and a spruce, Royce saw the sun glint off something brilliantly white, something moving toward them at the speed of a galloping horse. As it cleared a gully, Royce got a good look. Royce, is that? The statue of Novron from the plaza. Royce finished for him. They could both see it clearly as it traveled through the open, its long legs stomping with ease across the same fields and thickets they had just struggled up. The god's chest was marred. Chips of marble had been chiseled away. Other than that, he was perfect as only an artist could create. Broad shoulders, narrow hips, lean muscle. This was exactly how Royce expected Novron to look. Not surprising, given that Royce's understanding of the god had been formed by various statues like this that he'd seen in and around churches. This one had been the best of those the most realistic. In many ways, too realistic. Seeing it move felt less strange than knowing the lifelike statue was only stone. As the statue grew nearer, Royce saw dark stains on its legs, as if the son of Meribor had been stomping grapes for wine. Don't suppose it's just out for a stroll, eh? Hadrian said, even as he drew his two swords. What are you going to do with those? It's stone. You do better with a hammer and chisel. Don't have those. The statue crashed through a copse of trees, kicking them into a cloud of splinters. A branch, too heavy for Royce to lift, landed twenty feet away. Novron was close enough for him to see the marble god's expression. The normally stoic, proud, and noble features were twisted in vicious rage. Royce pulled Alverstone out from the folds of his clothes. Oh, okay, Hadrian said. A dagger is so much better. A very sharp dagger, Royce replied. When I was on Gromgalamus, Gromgalamus! Sacred ground! Hadrian burst out. Get back inside! 
They ran through the doorway. Having fought the gargoyle, Royce knew all too well the impossibilities of combat with living stone. He had managed to do some tiny damage with Alverstone, but Hadrian was right. A dagger wasn't a match for a giant. The fall from the roof of Gromgalamus had destroyed the golem, but that wasn't going to happen this time. Novron the Great looked a whole lot more dangerous than the stone monkey with its useless wings. But the thought that they could hide inside the ruin and wait out the golem like a summer downpour felt like little more than wishful thinking. Not going to work, Roy said, as outside they heard and felt the rumble of the charging marble giant. Why do you say that? The golems can't tread on sacred ground thing can't be true. I fought the gargoyle on top of Gromgalamus, Roy said, as if admitting some terrible sin. He had to shout to be heard over the hammering of the statue's footfalls as it closed the remaining distance. Doesn't get much more holy than a cathedral. Royce and Hadrian waited, each with a wincing expression. Nothing happened. The footfalls ceased. Through the open doorway, they spotted a pair of marble legs. They stood like a pair of birch trunks. Hadrian looked at Royce and smiled. Royce shrugged. Maybe because I was on the roof, it wasn't literally sacred ground. Or perhaps only the altar is sacred. He didn't think the golem's restriction would be that specific, and yet he couldn't come up with any other reason why Villar's Novron wasn't crawling through the door to kill them. It's not reaching in the doorway either, Hadrian said. Just standing there. Maybe it can't enter the interior space? Royce bent down and peered out of the legs. We can't stay here forever, but I'm thinking the god of man might. Giant Novron also bent down and peered in at them. Remember what Griswold said? There's a time limit. The person animating the golem can't keep the connection too long, or his soul will get stuck permanently, making the golem an immortal, indestructible terror. Royce sighed. And anyone willing to stick around to roast a child's heart while we were outside searching for him is bound to be the type to go down with his ship, the HMS Revenge. So, waiting for Villar to break the connection might not be such a good plan. Probably not. Good news is that the Duchess is safe. Yes, Royce said with a sour look. By all means, let's thank Meribor for that. Why not thank Novron? He's literally right outside. Royce frowned. If only, he started to say, then stopped, as if a new thought distracted him. Vilar has to be on sacred ground to summon that thing, right? Adrian nodded. And if he leaves it, the golem would kill him. Theoretically. So he must still be here. The ruin wasn't a big place. There were no adjoining rooms except the cell, no cabinets or curtains to hide behind, just the big dye pots, piles of wool, and the cook fire. Nevertheless, Royce moved around the space, nudging the blankets and looking inside the pots, which were huge, but still far too small for even a mirror to hide. Where? Hadrian silently mouthed. Royce shrugged in frustration. 
He looked back down at the crates and the piles of wool. He had to be close. He wasn't in the room with them, which meant... Villar had led Royce on a merry chase across the rooftops of Rochelle. That tour of the city wasn't random. The mere knew where he was going, what transom led to what windows, what ledges could be leapt to, and what streets were narrow enough to cross at a running jump. He'd been that way before. Villar has a thing for roofs. Royce looked up and pointed at the dome. Hadrian's eyes widened. He shook his head. Can't be. The golem is out there. Why doesn't it just climb up and kill him? Can't reach him. But you said the gargoyle- The gargoyle was small. Well, smaller. And Gromgallimus had all kinds of ornaments and handholds. I don't think Novron can climb up the smooth walls of this temple. Vilar, on the other hand, would have no problem. Probably been up there this whole time. That's why we haven't found him, Hadrian whispered. Now what? Royce didn't answer. The only way to stop that thing is to kill Villar. One of us has to get up there. Hadrian looked out the door. The legs hadn't moved. And that means the other has to distract the god. Hadrian sighed. You're the expert climber, so there you go again, Royce snapped. What? Royce shook his head in disbelief. Didn't we just talk about this? About your stupid habit of playing the hero? That's not grape juice on its legs. No, no, it's not. Hadrian's voice lowered. But time's running out, and I don't see another option, do you? I can't climb up these sheer walls, but you can. Obviously, you should be the one to distract that thing, but that's not the point. Royce snapped. What is the point? You don't have to be so eager. You should try to persuade me to be the bait out of self-preservation. Royce took a step closer to the door, to the marble legs. They were massive. Hadrian smiled. You think if I go out there, I'm committing suicide? Royce nodded. Hadrian shook his head. I'm not. I have complete confidence. I'll be fine. And what makes you think that? Because there are unicorns in my world. There aren't any stupid unicorns, Hadrian. Yes, there are. I'm looking at one right now, and I know you're a very fast one. Hadrian pulled off his cloak. Ready? Villar probably heard all of this, Royce told him. Then I have nothing to worry about. Royce held out Alverstone. Take this. It hurt the gargoyle before. Hadrian shook his head. You'll need it more than me, little unicorn. Ready? Don't ever call me that again. Or when this is over, assuming you're still alive, I will kill you. Deal. Hadrian threw his cloak out the doorway. A marble foot came down, crushing the garment. Hadrian dived directly between the pair of white, polished legs. His plan was to somersault to his feet and run, but the green grass beyond the door was an illusion. The turf lied about the rocks beneath its blades. Hadrian slammed his shoulder against a hidden stone the size of a saddle horn, making him cry out in pain and killing his forward momentum. A moment was all he had before the golem turned and another foot came down.
Hadrian log-rolled downhill, feeling the grounds jump with the golem's second failed attempt. Finding his feet, he ran for the thickets. The golem chased after him. Hadrian wasn't certain it would. If Ilar had heard their conversation, there was a good chance he might ignore the self-proclaimed decoy. Either Villar hadn't heard or suspected the verbal planning was a ruse. Or maybe he simply didn't care. In any case, Hadrian had the statue on his heels, a marble god he had no hope of outrunning and couldn't fight. Hadrian plunged into the mass of thickets, hoping to slow the golem down. The thorns slashed him, tore his clothes, and cut his cheek just below his left eye. Like a rabbit chased by a wolf, he clawed his way into the underbrush aiming for thicker branches and better cover. Behind him, the ground shook. Branches snapped and vines were ripped clear. Thorns didn't bother the god emperor. Royce didn't waste a moment. The instant the golem turned its back, he was out the doorway. A strong leap gave him a fingertip purchase on ancient decorative molding. After that, he relied mostly on cracks. Small ones, to be sure, but there were many to choose from. He pulled himself up as fast as he could. Everything was working perfectly. Too perfectly. No plan ever unfolded so nicely. Why did the golem chase Hadrian? Villar must have heard. He knows I'm the real threat. Unless I'm not. Royce cleared the rim of the roof and ran up the curve to the peak of the dome. The roof of the temple was empty. Villar wasn't there. Stones! Hidden beneath the brambles and old tree roots, Hadrian discovered a graveyard of tumbled slabs. Once part of the temple, these stones had fallen away and collapsed upon one another like playing cards. Three mostly buried slabs formed a hole that Hadrian crawled into. A deep cave would have been nice, a tunnel even better. What he found was little more than a pocket. Better than nothing. Peering out the opening, he watched the world grow brighter as saplings and brambles were ripped away by Novron the Great. The god was digging down toward him. Villar wasn't on the roof, but he had to be nearby. Royce climbed back down and re-entered the temple. Hadrian couldn't survive much longer. Royce stood in the little room, frustrated. Villar had to be there somewhere, but he couldn't find him, and Royce was almost out of time. I told you there were no unicorns. Royce looked at the smoldering coals of the fire. But the world is filled with vicious, merciless killers. Then he noticed the heaping piles of wool. I should know. I am one. Hadrian squeezed himself as deeply as he could into the stone burrow. The slabs were massive, far from trivial impediments, even to a seventeen-foot marble god. But Hadrian was reminded about Villar's resolve as the golem grabbed the first stone and heaved it clear, tossing the giant granite block like a bag of grain. The second slab followed the first, leaving Hadrian exposed, his cozy refuge destroyed. He scrambled to his feet. There was no fighting the thing. All he could do was run and dodge. Hadrian watched Marble Novron, hoping he might be able to evade whatever attack it made. If he could, he'd try running again. 
The golem raised a fist to smash him with, but its arm didn't come down. Hadrian waited, but Novron continued to stand there perfectly still. Its eyes were blank, vacant, like a statue. Royce had been quick, just quick enough. Inching away from the marble god, Hadrian moved back up the slope. He found the ruined temple engulfed in flames. Black smoke and orange tongues of fire licked out the doorway. Royce was out in front of the door, dagger in hand, watching the place burn. What happened? Hadrian asked. Bilar wasn't on the roof, Royce replied, not taking his eyes off the doorway. And I sort of got tired of looking. How about you? Where's your playmate? Standing over in the thickets, looking a lot like a statue. Adrian peered into the smoke and flames. You think Villar's dead? Royce shook his head. Not yet. No. Then why isn't the golem moving? Only a guess, but I think when the smoke reached him, Villar panicked and broke the connection. You know where Villar is, don't you? I can't prove it, but I think so, Royce said. If he wasn't on the roof, the only place left is underneath. Makes sense. It would have been hidden, Hadrian said. What would? The tomb. That's what this place is. A monument or crypt to someone. This one was secret, so the entrance to the burial chamber is disguised. Villar set his box to burning, then crawled inside to run the golem. The two watched the fire grow. The inferno was thirty feet away, a distance required due to the heat. When the fire spread to the undergrowth, they retreated farther. How did you figure out it was a tomb? Hadrian pointed at one of the fallen slabs the golem had thrown, now only a few feet away. On it was chiseled a passage of text. Falkirk de Roche, first disciple of Bran, rest with Meribor. Any idea who that is? Royce shook his head. Must have been someone important, but I suppose... Given enough time, even really important people are forgotten. It could have been... He stopped, and then pointed. There! Something moved just inside the doorway. It slowed, then collapsed before getting outside. Royce nodded. Now he's dead. After the killer statue had inexplicably run away, Jenny took a few minutes to catch her breath. When the marble monster didn't return, she found two boys cowering in the carriage shop. They looked like good kids, the sort to help a woman who could barely get to her feet. They said they were Wardley Woffington's sons. After a good deal of coaxing, which ended when one recognized her, Jenny convinced them to come out. Once they did, she ordered them to build a stretcher and carry Armand Calder to a physician which they managed with the skill of those desperate to have some normal task to concentrate on. After that, Jenny walked, very slowly, down the hill. She had no idea where she was going or why. The plaza was a gory scene, but maybe someone else might need help, and it was downhill. She reached the river's edge, but got no farther than the start of the paving stones, when everything finally caught up to her, and she broke down and sobbed. She wasn't alone.
People began to spill back into the square from all corners. They came across the bridge, down Vintage Avenue, from Center Street, even through the alley between the gallery and the cathedral. All the faces were the same. Shock, horror, bewilderment, sadness. No one could do much more than stare and cry. Hundreds of men, women, and children, most of whom were dressed in the blue clothes of the wealthy and noble, lay dead alongside those who had served them at the feast. Out of that sea of morbid faces emerged an oddity. Jenny saw him through blurry eyes. A portly fellow with a salt-and-pepper beard was dressed in a poorly fitted metal breastplate and carrying a sword. He dropped the weapon and ran toward her, his arms spread wide. He crashed into her, his embrace so tight she could barely breathe. His bushy beard pressed hard against her cheek. I thought I'd lost you, he said. And when he pulled back to stare at her face, as if to assure himself it was really her, she saw tears of relief. I thought the same of you, she gestured at the plaza. But you weren't here. You were looking for me. I was. Leo stared into her eyes, his lips trembling. I thought you were dead. For more than two horrible weeks, I lived with that pain. Then I got your letter. I gathered my men and have spent the entire night and all of this day digging through every hovel, shop, and barn looking for you. He started to laugh and covered his mouth and shook his head. I was coming back because I heard about the attack and, and, and here you are. I don't know how, but you are. Jenny, my love, where have you been? Jenny lingered on those two words. My love. Leo, tell me, do you love me? The Duke's brows shot up. What a question. Didn't I just get done telling you I need to know? Do you really love me? She insisted, grabbing him by the arms and holding him fast. How can you ask such a thing? Because everyone says you married me for my money, or the crown. That's not true. His voice was stern, his eyes growing dark and stormy. Then why? Why do we sleep in separate rooms? Why on our wedding night didn't you come to me? That night or any other? Why have you been so distant? The storm faded, and Leo looked down. The expression on his face shifted to pain and embarrassment. It is true. He doesn't. I'm an old man, Jenny. Set in my ways. I don't like too many people, even fewer like me. Living here, surviving in this place, it teaches you not to trust anyone. You learn early that people only take, they never give. Loyalty is a word that means, what can I get from you and for how long? I've had to guard myself, and I have, but it makes for a lonely life. But you're different, knew at the moment I met you. So bright, cheerful, smart and open. 
You never asked how many servants I had, or how big my holdings were. That was so odd. She smiled. You never really asked anything of me, except which whiskey I liked best, and what was my favorite food. Rye for the drink, and apple-braised venison to eat, she confirmed. He nodded. I was drowning, Jenny, and empty at the same time. And you were a lifeline, one I never thought I'd find. You gave me a reason to live when I didn't have one. I needed you, but you didn't need me. You were rich, beautiful, smart. What could I offer you? Beautiful. And what am I? Selfish, that's what. I shouldn't have asked you to marry me, but I couldn't help myself. Jenny's eyes widened. You regret your proposal? I wanted to marry you, he assured her. I just thought you would refuse. The question was my way to end our relationship before it went too far. But you said yes. I don't understand, Leo. What are you talking about? You should be queen, and so much more. But I couldn't provide any of the things you deserve. Many thought I was the front-runner for the crown, but I knew better. Rochelle is such a mess, and if I'm not able to properly administer my own finances, why would the bishop put me in charge of an entire kingdom? Leo, my love, I don't care about being queen. It's you I want, only you. Is it? Is that all? What about children, Jenny? And you'd be such a wonderful mother. Your children would grow up to be strong, determined, and honest. I can never give you that. I can't give you children. I can't give any woman children. To be honest, I can't do much of anything. Swords are dangerous things. And in battles, men have lost eyes, arms, and legs. I was wounded years ago in a nameless battle at an insignificant creek. A handful of monks nursed me at a little monastery. I never told anyone, and neither have they, for which I was grateful. But I should have told you. It was wrong for me to accept your hand in marriage, knowing I couldn't be a real husband. His beard wriggled as his lips folded, his mouth quivering. It's just that. I fell so deeply in love with you, Jenny. And I was going to tell you, even if it meant you'd leave me. I lied, but at least I didn't tether you to me forever. The bishop will grant an annulment since the marriage was never consummated. You do love me, Jenny said as tears fell. With all my heart, dear girl. That's why I want you to have your freedom. I don't want freedom. You don't? What do you want? I want a goddamn double bed. She grabbed hold of that bristly face and kissed him hard. His arms closed around her again. Chapter 29 Winter's Daughter
I suppose you two were involved, were the first words out of Evelyn's mouth as she poured her obligatory morning tea. Indirectly, Hadrian replied. The lids came off the food. That morning's thank you to Novron had been a mere communal bowing of heads. As usual, the breakfast table was impeccable and laden with a feast fit for kings, emperors, and at least one pair of very quiet thieves. Evelyn didn't look at either of them, focusing instead on the amber stream spilling into her porcelain cup. The serret will be coming soon. Such a thing happening in their own backyard must be addressed. They're not known for being prudent. It's likely they'll seek justice, and it won't matter who they choose to hold responsible. She looked up. A pair of no-account foreigners would be tops on their list. I think it best if the two of you return from whence you came. You're kicking us out? Hadrian asked. Yes, she said simply, and with an ever so curt nod. I am. Evelyn set her spoon down sharply and frowned. Truth is, I've already rented your room to someone else. So. Please pack your things and be out by midday. Thank you. Hadrian stared at her and smiled. You're concerned about us, aren't you? Evelyn glared back. Don't be ridiculous. You're abominable people, and I'll not have you spoiling my house with your unsavory ways any longer. There, you wanted the truth? You have it. Stop smiling. I'm not doing this for you. I'm not. Stop it! A knock at the door ended the one-sided debate as Evelyn stood up and, with an exasperated huff, marched to her home's entrance. Hello! A loud voice bellowed. Oh, good gracious, Evelyn gasped. Your ladyship! Royce and Hadrian abruptly stood, leaving the dining room. They entered the foyer at the same time as the Duchess of Rochelle, who was dressed in a long black gown, black shawl, and a matching wide-brimmed hat, the sort that demanded special care when moving in tight spaces. Large though she was, her presence was twice as big. She commanded attention like a loud bee in a small room. Her face, round and happy, beamed a smile that made crescent moons of her eyes. Evelyn smoothed a lace doily that was already perfectly placed. I'm so sorry. I had no idea you were coming. Please forgive this terrible mess. Oh, nonsense, my good lady, the Duchess said. I'm the one who should be apologizing, dropping in unannounced at this hour after such a tragedy. I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised if you turned me away. Kicked me to the gutter. A fine woman such as yourself would expect that I know better than to act so abominably. I... I... Ah, Evelyn stammered, lost. She's met a match, Royce whispered to Hadrian. But you see, I do have a reason, and while it might not be readily apparent, nor may you find it entirely important, I assure you that to me it most certainly is. And being the Duchess of this city, that counts for something, doesn't it? Of course it does. So I do hope you'll pardon this intrusion. The large woman pushed deeper into the home, sweeping the hem of her gown to make certain it wasn't stepped on. As she moved clear of the doorway, Hadrian spotted an elegant carriage waiting on the street, 
and a surprisingly large contingent of armed soldiers, including Roland Weiberg, working as the woman's security detail. I'm looking for two... The Duchess spotted them and smiled. There you are, aren't you? She said this as if she expected some sort of answer, but neither Royce nor Hadrian had any clue how to respond. The pause took only a single beat as her smile widened. She spread her hands toward them. My saviors! She crossed the room and enveloped Hadrian in a hearty embrace. No bear could do better. Apparently, she didn't remember his comment about Royce and hugging, for she took hold of him as well. Royce went rigid, enduring the embrace as best he could. Our pleasure, your ladyship, Hadrian replied. To you, dear boys, I'm Jenny, your most grateful damsel in distress. I thought you would like to know. My husband sent men up the eastern slope to look for any signs of Villar. They found the ruins, burned and destroyed, along with two bodies. Two? Royce asked. Villar and the original inhabitant, Falkirk de Roche, a first-century monk after whom the river and city were named. De Roche was in a tomb under the dome. Villar, on the other hand, well, I'm guessing it was Villar, was burned beyond recognition. They also found the inanimate statue of Novron. That monster killed nearly every noble in the city. Armand Calder and I came within a heartbeat of becoming two more spring-day casualties. Evelyn, who still hadn't found her tongue, continued to stare. Now then, if I know my father, my rescue wasn't his only request. I'm sure your remuneration is contingent upon returning me to his side. Well, that's not going to happen. My husband loves me, and I him, and I'm not going anywhere. She held out a sealed parchment, and Hadrian took it. So, here is a letter for my father, explaining that I'm safe and couldn't be happier, and that he should pay you the full amount he promised. But just in case he doesn't see it that way... She turned and bellowed. Wentworth! A little man with his hair in a ponytail rushed forward and held out a purse. Royce took it. Inside, you'll find seventy-five gold tenants to hold you over and pay for expenses. I'd give more, but it's no longer just my money, you understand. My husband and I are going to get the city's finances in shape, and we have to watch our expenses. Still, I wanted to make sure you weren't left empty-handed. So please, accept this along with my undying gratitude. Thank you, Hadrian said. Oh no, dear boy! Thank you! If not for your intervention, I'd be dead. My husband would be heartbroken, and Alburn wouldn't have such a fine new king. Has the bishop crowned your husband? Evelyn asked. Ha ha! No, no. Rochelle will just have to be content with us here. My husband took himself out of the running when he didn't show up at the feast. Apparently, finding me was more important than a crown. No, the bishop chose Armand Calder, the only noble to attend the feast and live. He might walk with a limp for the rest of his life, but it looks like he will make a complete recovery. He seems like a decent sort, which is good, and he likes me, which is better.
Auburn is in need of many changes, and I think King Armand will listen to my ideas about reform. Did you know Mercator Sicara? They both nodded. Remarkable lady. She died trying to get my letter to Leo, didn't she? Yes, Royce said. The Duchess nodded. That poor woman. All she wanted was a better life for her people. The Duchess raised her hand and shook a finger. I'm going to ensure the Mir are treated better. In Rochelle, if no place else. Leo and I are going to make this city a beacon for the rest of the world. A safe haven for the Mir, the Calaeans, and the little bearded folk. When people see the prosperity that harnessing so many talents can produce, they'll surely want to emulate our success. Well, I really must be going. So, thank you again, Hadrian Blackwater and Royce. Royce. I'm sorry, but I didn't catch your last name. What is it? Royce sighed. Melbourne. Evelyn glared. I thought your names were Baldwin and Grimm. Returning from the stable that had quartered their animals, Hadrian led their horses down Mill Street. He felt guilty about not checking in on Dancer all week. The stable hand had complained, saying he should have been warned if they were going to abandon their horses for so long. In truth, the man was probably more disappointed when Hadrian showed up. Any hopes he might have had of selling a set of orphaned animals had vanished, and now he would have to settle for the ridiculously steep caretaking fee that he imposed. Dancer showed no signs of ill-treatment or ill-will, nuzzling Hadrian's shoulder as they walked. Returning to Hemsworth House, Hadrian found Royce waiting on the stoop out front, surrounded by their gear like a man washed up on a deserted island. What did you do now? Hadrian asked. Nothing, Royce said, standing up and throwing Hadrian's saddlebag at him. Royce hooked a thumb over his shoulder. The new occupant is here, and Evelyn wanted me and our things out so we didn't upset her. Her? Yep. He wore an odd smirk, part surprised, part amused. The new guest is that mere mother who told us about the place. Hadrian put his little finger in his ear and made a show of wiggling it before pulling it out and saying, Sorry, sounded like you said Evelyn let her room to a mere. Royce nodded. Don't know how she did it either. Tracked the mirror down somehow. I suppose she's lived here her entire life and knows this city pretty well. Old woman is full of surprises. Royce tossed his own bag on his horse. But before tying it, he lifted and hooked the stirrup on the horn, double-checking the cinch. Seriously? Hadrian leaned on Dancer, shaking his head in disgust. You had to check. You don't think I know how to cinch a saddle? Royce didn't even look up as he ran fingers along the strap, checking its tension. No, I don't. Trust. You have to learn to trust people, Royce. He dropped the stirrup without making any changes. No, I don't. They finished lashing bags to their mounds. The animals stood impatiently, stomping hooves to express their desire to be on the road. Along the street, the milkman was back to delivering his jugs, and a flower girl was going door to door with a basket of fresh-cut purple pansies. 
Only a day later, and the city was back to old routines. Hadrian pulled himself up onto Dancer and grasped his reins. But Royce hesitated. He had his things secured, but remained staring up at the window of what had been their room. Forget something. The rug. What rug? Oh, wait. You're not serious. It's just that it would definitely fit nicely through that window and hit the street with hardly a sound. Royce looked up and down the thoroughfare. There are never any constables on this street. I bet we could sell it in Little Gurham for five gold, maybe six. I'm leaving. Hadrian started to urge Dancer into the traffic, then stopped. What? Royce asked. You're having second thoughts about the rug, aren't you? Hadrian gave him a sharp look. No. He pointed across the street at a little pug-nosed dog sitting on a patch of recently turned earth. Must be a stray. I've seen that dog around here a lot. I wish I had some food. It's not a stray. It has a collar, Roy said, and continued to stare. Then his eyes narrowed and a stunned look filled his face. That's not possible. What's not? Royce abandoned his horse and crossed the street. Royce famously hated dogs, and thinking he might harm the animal, Hadrian leapt off his mount and raced over, catching up just as Royce bent down to study the little mangy pup's collar. I can't believe it. What? Hadrian asked. It's Mr. Hipple. No, that's not possible. You don't mean... Royce nodded. Lady Martell's dog the one who sounded the alarm at Hemley Manor and nearly got poor Ralph the guard killed. How could that dog possibly be here? Hadrian looked around at the unkempt field filled with crooked posts. This is a cemetery, a pauper's graveyard. Maybe this is Lady Martell's grave. Lady Martell wouldn't be buried in a pauper's grave in Alburn. She's the wife of a wealthy Melangar lord. But didn't Puck say something about the diary belonging to a monk named Falkirk? Hadrian asked. No, he said the diary was written by someone named Falkirk, and that she got it from a monk. Whoa, that's really weird. Wonder what she's doing here, and how she died. Hadrian looked at the dog sadly. That's one loyal pet. I've heard stories about things like this. The dog gets so attached that it waits on its owner's grave for them to come back. Some end up dying because they just can't leave. Royce didn't say anything. He merely stared at the dog and the grave. Maybe we should take Mr. Hipple with us, Hadrian said, bending down and reaching out. The little mongrel with the flat face and folded ears snapped at him. Or not. They returned to their horses and climbed up. Perhaps Evelyn will adopt him, Hadrian said hopefully. Or maybe he'll be crushed under the wheels of a milk wagon. I'm not sure which would be the worst fate, Royce added. The streets were just as congested as on the day they had arrived, but this time the current was all in one direction, out. Like Royce and Hadrian, everyone was leaving the city, heading home. At the bottom of the hill, they found that the plaza had been cleaned. 
the sound of hammering announced that the door to the gallery was being worked on, and the bells of Grom Gallimus were chiming on time. But no vendors had set up shop. In their place, flowers had been laid out in bunches around the empty pedestal where a seventeen-foot statue of Novron once stood. Wreaths, candles, and lovingly drawn portraits were mixed in with the bundles of recently gathered blossoms. The odd thing, no delineation existed between the memorials for servants and nobles. No line separated the privileged from the poor. Grief blended them all together, ignoring differences as readily as death had. Don't understand how all this connects, Hadrian said, as they waited to cross the bridge to Governor's Isle behind a trio of wagons filled with families. How could reading the diary of a several thousand-year-old monk get Lady Martell and Virgil Puck killed? Maybe some ancient ghost wants his book back. Which brings up another mystery. What? Who killed Erasmus Nim? Roy shrugged. I suppose a golem got him. Hadrian shook his head. Only Villar, Griswold, and Erasmus knew how to raise them. You were chasing Villar across rooftops when Erasmus died. So, it must have been Griswold. Nope, he'd run away from the cemetery. Besides, the two of them were friends. He'd have no reason to kill him. I have a friend, and I think about killing him all the time, Roy said with a straight face. Oh, so you admit it now. We're friends. I never said anything about you. Don't be so presumptuous. The wagon ahead of them began moving, but slowly. They were at the edge of the bridge where the big gargoyle pediment Royce had perched on was still guarding the entrance to Governor's Isle. Hadrian looked around at the congested city of towers and grotesque statues dominated by the cathedrals and bridge spires. Even in the daylight, with the many shadows cast by the tall buildings, the old city felt dark. Who knew? what other secrets it kept to itself. Royce turned sharply around in his saddle and looked behind. What? Hadrian asked, looking back as well. But he saw only the city and more throngs of people. Nothing. What is it? Royce gave a second glance back and sighed. I just thought of something. What? why Lady Martell might have been buried in an unmarked grave. It's because her body wasn't claimed. No one identified her. I think that's obvious. If they'd known who she was, her body would have been sent back to Hemley Manor. And why do you think that was? I mean, why didn't anyone identify her? Shock crossed Hadrian's face. You don't mean... Royce nodded. What if Lady Martell didn't have a face. Hadrian grimaced and pulled his blue scarf tighter. Crossing the river, they started up the far hills, heading west. When they reached the crest, they turned back for a final look. From that distance, the city, nestled in the valley, surrounded by the mountains and the sea, appeared quaint, even romantic. What's that up there? Royce pointed to what appeared to be a fortress down the coast. The castle was nothing but an outline on the top of a distant mountain. 
but even from that far away, it appeared intimidating, dangerous, powerful. Blythen Castle, Hadrian said. I think that's where they imprisoned Glen Morgan III. And it's now headquarters to the Surrette Knights. Creepy place. Wanna go look? Royce pulled up his hood. No. Let's get home. I'm never coming back here. Hadrian laughed. Never say never on any endeavor. Quit it. It sounds like a dare to gods that don't care. I mean it. If the likes of us prosper, fail, or falter, you are seriously annoying me now. It matters not while they roll with laughter on an altar. Royce kicked his horse and trotted off up the road. Hadrian looked back once more at the city. He thought of Seton and the night he first met her amidst the smell of blood and the cries of widows. He remembered his father, who'd made him butcher a chicken, the first life he took. And he thought back on his years of war and slaughters within the arenas of Calais. At our miserable, sad little lives. Royce was right. They were never coming back here again. This has been an Audible Studios production of The Disappearance of Winter's Daughter. Written by Michael J. Sullivan. Performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Author's note performed by Michael J. Sullivan. Executive producers Jarrett Lee and Mike Charzik. Producer Neil Basic. Copyright 2017 by Michael J. Sullivan. Sound recording copyright 2017 by Audible Inc. Audible Studios is a division of Audible Inc. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.